The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hello, Luke. Hi, Joe. We did it. We made it. We finally made it happen. I wasn't sure it was going to happen. Yeah, well, uh, kudos to you for taking the chance to come here during the pandemic. I know. The all uh, very oppressive pandemic. Well, we were supposed to do it in March. Yeah. And then the world turned upside down. Literally, uh, basically, but we figured out a way. Yeah, we we're here. Yeah, it's um, is it you said you did some traveling? Would you do traveling for before this? So I went to the Charlo Brothers doubleheader in oh, Mohegan okay. Sun, uh, which was interesting because I got there early in the week and the casino was empty. That bitch was slamming by Saturday night. I was not, I'd not been in crowds since March, right? So that was a little bit weird, but so uh, the casino is packed, it was packed. Yeah, not so, like not like to the rafters, but. Crowded. Do they have rules like with masks? It's, it's Native or? American territory. They make their rules. So yes, yeah. I mean they do have the normal protocol. Like there's uh, hand sanitizing stations everywhere. Mm-hmm. You have to wear a mask. But if you're at the table and you're drinking, they just pull the mask right down. Yeah, I'm like, and even if it wasn't that, it's like, can you imagine how fucking dirty those poker chips are? It's like the Excalibur. <laughs> you ever seen chips at the Excalibur? Holy shit. Um, but anyway, so I was just, you know, I minded my business because it was actually in the sun, the Mohegan Sun Arena. Mm-hmm. So we would just like beeline to the uh, to the place there. And then last week I went back to Jersey City, which is where the studios are for my Showtime gig. So, so th- that that is interesting that if it's on Native American ground, they can kind of do whatever they want. Pretty much. Which yeah. is why the casino's there in the first place. Right. And they and again, I would say, you know what? Most people were, they were pretty good about compliance. I did not feel like... Like honestly, I thought it would, people were more compliant than I, like the airport yesterday. All these fucking weak, constituted people that pull the mask below their nose. I want to fucking hit all of them <laughs> with a car antenna. I hate every single one of them. It's not. I just want to look at them. It's like it's not a hardship. Just put on the fucking mask. Not only that, if you have it below your nose, you're not doing anything. I know. I was like, just like, take it off. Just I, take it yeah, off. I feel better if you had it off. Right. Because at least you're like, it's an o- you're an honest broker yeah. in this exchange. You know what I mean? <laughs> but so it, it, it was fine. You know, they tested us a bunch of times when we were there. Have you seen the new things? Like the, these new hazmat suits they're selling? Like it's literally like, go to John Joseph, uh, John Joseph Cromag. Go to his uh, Instagram page. Do you know John Joseph? I do not. You have to forgive me. Uh, he was uh, he's the lead singer of the Cro-Mags, but he's also a triathlete. Okay. And, you know, he's a firm believer in strengthening your own immune system. And yeah, yeah. He, There's uh, something to be said for that. Look at this. Look at this. Holy mother <laughs> of Jesus. <laughs> we're, we're in space. I mean, this is this is the future. And it apparently has some fog-proof uh, attachment some way, somehow or another. And you you put your hand, if you have to scratch your face... There's little uh, zips on the side, yeah. and you put your hand through. You know, I I appreciate the spirit of innovation here, <laughs> but this is a Black uh, Mirror episode, it right? It is. It is. It is. Well, you know, you talk. How many people do you know that have gotten it? A bunch. Yeah, me too. Jamie's the the latest. Jamie, uh, but they're saying it's which was which is very interesting. They're saying it really depends upon what kind of dose you're getting. Right. You obviously got a very mild dose, and you had a very mild case of it. That's and, why the masks are important, right? Because yeah. even if you get it, someone has it, you know, they're not wearing it properly. There's not, a, you're not getting sprayed right. with this huge amount. Especially if someone sneezes on you or something or yell. That's the thing with drunks, like bars or super spreader events, right? right. Because everyone's like drunk talk. That's what I miss. I miss yeah. the bars a little bit. I miss the movie theater mm. and I miss the bar. And I'm not like, you know, till 4 a.m. I got a kid, but you know, just 
saddling up a little bit, having a couple cocktails. Yes. I miss that a little bit, to be honest with you. I did well, me too. I just got through sober October. I've had it. Hey, an it's November second. Yeah. You want a drink? I'll drink. Uh I was gonna lift after this, but I'll have a you drink can, if you, you have one. I have a couple of drinks and still lift. That's Come listen, on, I'm forty. I can't have a couple of drinks and think right, much less lift uh, weights. But well, I'll try. I'll try. Uh but you know what? You know, we never gets talked about it. I deserves to be mentioned here. Send in some whiskey. I know a guy who was a uh, an ER doctor in New York. In, he's still there now, obviously, but through March. This doesn't get talked about, but it's worth mentioning. There is... we. So I, I knew a bunch of people that went to Iraq because I was in the Marine Corps, but I got out right before my unit sent, so I was very, very lucky in that regard. But a bunch of them came back super fucked up. You know, They're all fine now, but super fucked up. These doctors who were in New York in March, they all have PTSD. Mm. Watching day after day. Remember, there's a, there was times when New York was losing 800 people a day. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, like, you know, you hold up enough phones to someone who's dying, and so their kids are crying on the other end of FaceTime, and you do that day after day after day. He started smoking, like, the whole thing. Uh, we don't talk enough about that. I don't think it's bad enough now. And he was even saying, it's like, if you're 25, you're fine. But, like, all of these at-risk folks just coming in and collapsing mm-hmm. one after the other, it fucked him up big I can time. only imagine. You know, this is the also falls in line with the, the conversation that I've been having a lot about cops. Like, oh God, it doesn't, people don't understand what it is to be a cop. Like you, all you see is these terrible videos like George Floyd, Right. you know, just imagine being a person who every day you're seeing suicide, murder, rape, car accidents. You're constantly worried that the next car you pull over is going to be the guy that shoots you in the head. Right. And you've had improper training probably. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. For you're sure. asked, you're asked to do responsibilities you couldn't yeah. possibly handle. Yeah. Uh, the policy failures of the world are just pushed onto you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know you pr- you have to deal with the dregs of society. Like certainly, obviously, the George Floyd murder is horrific, horrific in every way imaginable. But my stepfather, my my mom eventually got divorced, but I had a stepfather for a time, and he was a cop for thirty years in Washington D.C. You know, I'm not saying he had the most enlightened ideas of the world, but when you spend a few months in the hospital because they broke all your ribs, and you had to deal with you know two year old with a gun and you know every other situation, it will warp you. It will affect your moral calculations, and if you have improper training and improper funding, it only exacerbates the problem. Like, we ask cops to do way too much shit, and um, it results in a lot of problems. And the job, the, the, like now, good luck trying to find really intelligent people that could do other things. You know, right, right now, no one wants to be a cop because the cops are the bad guys. Right. They're the enemies. And... You know, it's like defunding the police is now like a mantra that the left likes to use. Like right. Defund they, you, the police. And by the way, I'm, I'm a member of the left. And so I, I, when, I, I. when I first heard it, I was like, I, I didn't know what it meant. And yeah. they, they like to tell you that it means one thing. I don't think that it means one thing. It means a series of different things. To some, it means actually what they stay, which, nice, which nice. is what they claim, which is utterly demolish it and start from scratch. For others, thank you. For others, it means... Uh, uh, not go into that nuclear option, but sort of uh, rearranging funds to go to different uh, policy or other kind of intervention projects. You ice or no ice? Um, it depends on how good the whiskey is there, Joe Rogan. It's uh, still Austin. I've not tried it because we I'll bought try it. it. I'll try it neat. All right, there you go. We tried it when I was uh, doing the... Cheers, sir. Salud. Salud. Mm. Ooh, smells nice. It's pretty damn good. Um, that does not need ice. That's good. Yeah, it's a bummer, and you know it's a really a bummer when you see cops scrap and they can't. And you're like, <laughs> how did you get this far? Like you're an actual police officer, and you never learned how to. 
You don't even know how to no, distribute I, your weight on the ground. I understand like, that, quite frankly. I was in. I was like I told you, I did six years in the Marine Corps. The uh, the Marine Corps has this reputation, somewhat deserved, about there being super macho and shit relative to the other forces. And some of that is true, and some of that is deserved. I'd never seen. I remember the first time you ever been to uh, the Mojave Desert at all. Yeah. So there's the the Twenty Nine Palms is out there. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the first time I went to Twenty Nine Palms because there is there is fuck all to do at Twenty Nine Palms. And so the Marine Corps wisely just invests in weight rooms. I, it was the nicest gym I'd ever been in in my life, and it was nothing but Hoss Marine. After the, I mean, they're all on steroids. They had to be. I don't think I don't think any commanding officer gave a fuck. And they were all huge, and they were, they lived this gung ho life and blah blah blah. But then when it came time for hand to hand combatives training, McMap is shit. It's not good. It's better than nothing. But if you unless you do straight up army combatives, like which is a best thing maybe the army's ever done for themselves in terms of um, that kind of uh, uh, aim, policy aim, you get nothing. And every cop I know who has ever trained. There's a bunch of guys who uh, um, I know from various different martial arts schools. They took the initiative to go train outside of what law enforcement was providing them. But, like, they, this is what I mean. They don't get any of this shit. Not, yeah. you know, or they, if they do, it's like, you know, here's how to get out of if someone's choking you in this very – it's almost like a women's self-defense class is really the extent to which they're, they learn. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's not much. It should be mandatory. And not only should it be mandatory, it should be, like, a part of the curriculum. You know, Jocko Willink said that they should spend 20% of their time training. And I think he's right. I think who's got know, the money for that though? It's a good question. I mean, the real, real consideration should be put to why don't we have the money for that? Also, I would challenge it a little bit, if I may. Which is, I saw in the wake of the George Floyd thing, there was a lot of people like, "How do we?" Most people were basically horrified by that. But the question is, what do you do about it? And so I saw some op eds. I think MMA Junkie published one from this guy. I'm sure he was well intentioned, but he was like, I think Henry Gracie had some similar ideas because he really believes in the transformative power of jujitsu, right? Yeah. Um, I do. do I. I do to an extent. I mean, here's what I would say. It, it, it was, it's the same thing going through the military. Like if you don't if you don't succumb to the process, it will not redevelop your character. Right. You have to willingly give yourself to that. Just giving cops jujitsu training does not force that transformation. So while I think it would help in certain situations, it could exacerbate existing problems with whatever cop has deranged mm. or bad training about the world. And now, oh wait, now you know Kimura's and you're a fucking asshole? Right. That's a problem. That is a problem. Yeah, you're right in that respect. If you do get an asshole and you just teach him a few moves, you could create a worse asshole. Um, but I would hope... The problem is, like, in normal jujitsu, the way jujitsu transforms your life, it's not transforming your life in the stress of you being a police officer and people, and all the things that we talked about PTSD, worrying mm-hmm. about people shooting you, dealing with all the horrific things you see every day. You're essentially you're going through this struggle, and that struggle sort of steals you and mm-hmm. makes you a better person. Yes. And yeah, if you went through that struggle along with the chaos of the police academy or or, or of uh, rather police uh, duty i would imagine best case scenario is it alleviates some stress it helps you get past a lot of the bullshit that you, you would normally it would normally eat at you and it also allows you to relieve some tension and yeah i just i don't know that i would for cost reasons i don't know that i would mandate that kind of training i think i would offer particular forms of incentives to get it to the right kind of folks i would mandate it just because you're going to have situations 
where people have hand-to-hand experiences. You, you should know how to distribute your weight. Fair enough. But I, but I would say doing that by itself would not be sufficient. That along with no. other forms of reform so that yes. we're asking police to do the things that police are supposed to do and not the things they're not supposed to do. I think in conjunction, it's never one solution, right? Yeah. Most problems in the world require a series of interventions. Yeah. Do those in conjunction, you're probably going to get a better policing. When I was 19, I worked as a security guard at a concert place called Great Woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts. And uh, it was a, a short amount of time. I wasn't there for about a few months over the summer. But during that time, I recognized a really clear us versus them mentality between the police or the the security force rather and the concert goers, and it happened pretty quickly. It happened really quickly where you know I saw security guys beat the shit out of the first day on the job. I saw this guy get beaten up with a walkie-talkie because he stole a golf cart. Like I was nineteen-year-old, fresh-faced kid. Like, what is going on here? And this guy, his name is Alley Cat, tackles this kid who had stolen one of their golf carts, and he's hitting him in the face with a walkie-talkie. And I'm like, what kind of job did I fucking sign up for? <laughs> I mean, and it was only like you know, fifteen bucks an hour or something. Yeah. I, would, I would imagine. I don't really remember, but I remember thinking real early on, like this is a, this is a very strange how I've like very quickly developed this us versus them mentality. I've also noticed, um, you know, back when I was 24, I was working doors at various bars in New York City to make some money, to make ends meet, because New York City is crazy expensive. And uh, people, and I was lifting weights like crazy, I was huge, you know, the whole bit. And I'll never forget, people would always tell me, they're like, oh, I bet people don't want to mess with you. And I was like, it is totally the opposite. Drunks, right? right? If you got yeah. a badge on, they want to fuck with you. So a, a bunch don't, but there's going to be a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's big and tall and muscly or whoever. Anybody, you yeah. know, you got sleeves of tattoos. That is exactly who they target. There's a certain kind of guy who's like, you know what? I'd like to see what happened if I tried to to ride that ride, you know? Yeah, Chuck Liddell said that, like, when he was in his prime, guys would fuck with him. Absolutely. I, I, not, not the least bit surprised. You're like, dude, are you, you have a fucking death wish? Like, what is, what is wrong with you? They have a death wish. Well, some people are just really stupid. Well, have, have you ever seen that Onion article? It's like, average study, average man overestimates fighting ability by 4,000%. You ever seen that? <laughs> no. Most people think uh, they know, yeah, yeah. Look, if push came to shove, I know a little something, something. Yeah. You don't know Fuck yeah, no, all. fuck all. <laughs> the the humiliation of seeing those guys on the mat is really adorable. When you see a person who thinks they're fairly tough just get manhandled and ragdolled. Yeah, that, that's the tragedy of modern MMA. Because there was a time where it was like, is jiu-jitsu really all that good? And they'd make videos of some guy coming in being like, I'm going to fuck all these black belts up. And then yeah. he goes in there. And they wear him out like a, they work him like a summer job. You oh, know what the, I mean? For the Gracies, it was like the greatest promotional scheme ever. Amazing. Like to have people come in and fight them. Yeah. Come on, guys. And they would be pretty gentle with those guys <laughs> when you really think about it. I mean, they hit them a little bit, but mostly they just strangled them. Yeah, basically. You know? Yeah, it's yeah. true. But we don't really see that anymore because basically the word got out like, eh, <laughs> maybe don't do that. But it's kind of crazy when you think about the history of martial arts. That martial arts were around for. Since the dawn of time, people have been trying to figure out better ways to fuck people up. Since they they figured out language and figured out how to teach skills, they've been working on techniques. Right. And then not until 1993 did we really know what worked. You have a quote. I I have an old DVD back when those really mattered. I bought it in, I want to say 2004. So this must have been one of the early editions of like Ultimate Knockouts. And you know, I think Phil Baroni fucking up Dave Monet was on the cover or something like that. And you had a quote, and it was, um, maybe it was like 2003. I think that's what it was. 
So I forget what, maybe it was like one of the Miami shows, one of the early, whatever mm-hmm. it was. You had a quote, and it was, martial arts has evolved more in the last 20 years than it has in the last 2,000. Yeah. Uh, with, with the exception of weaponry, that is 1,000% true. Yeah, 1,000% A million percent true. true. And weaponry, really, like it's guns. If you want to have a weapon, guns and knives. You know, knives have been around forever. Swords, I guess. They well, used to be I better just, at swords. I don't know enough about hand-to-hand combat with weapons mm-hmm. to say one way or the other but i just know as it relates to martial arts the uh, the fast forwarding that happened from 93 on b- relative to before it mm. it was this sort of slow process and then it hit overdrive you know what's really very satisfying to me is that when i first got involved in the ufc in 1997 it was when i was on news radio and the people on news radio literally look at me like i was doing porn <laughs> they were like what are you doing like why are you doing this like you're gonna ruin your career yeah and I was like, oh, like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I like it. You know, yeah. my, my whole life I've been a martial artist. And now finally someone did the thing that I've always asked them to do. Right. My whole life I was like, I want to know what would happen if you got a judo guy with a boxer, if you got a this with a that. And then the UFC's like, let's let's find out. Right. And then I'm like, oh my God, it's real. It's happening. To me, it was like someone came along with like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Like it's it was happening. It was real. And then when they offered me a job, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going. How did you get that job? How did they know you? Was your, did your agent put in a word? My manager was friends with Campbell McLaren. And Campbell McLaren. Campbell's amazing. He's a great guy. Yeah. And uh, he's been on the podcast. And Campbell had, uh, he had an opening. And he said, we need someone to do the post-fight interviews. And uh, it was, you know, very little money. And you have to take little, little those little Buddy Holly killing planes. You know, fucking <laughs> fly to Dothan, Alabama. That yeah. was the first gig I did. I was actually supposed to be in Albany, but then they kicked it out of New York. And then last minute, right. they moved the Octagon to Dothan, Alabama. Yeah. And uh, I was so happy. It was the debut of Vitor Belfort. Back when we were calling him Victor. He was talk- They were calling him Victor Gracie. And I was trained. This is when I was training at Carlson Gracie's. And they were calling Vitor Victor. I mean, the early posters were V-I-K-T-O-R Gracie. Like he was Russian or something. Um, I don't know why they call him Victor. Like, I I don't understand why they did that. But he he was using the last name Gracie. And so uh, he was fighting. uh, He fought John Hess over in uh, Hawaii and beat the shit out of John Hess. And, you know, I was training at his school and I thought he was like, impossible to stop and he was 19 and when he was 19 his hands were a blur of light he was so fast and so aggressive and so different than any other brazilian jiu-jitsu guy because we thought of brazilian jiu-jitsu guys and he was a black belt but we thought of black belts as being someone who just wants to get a hold of you drag you to the ground strangle you or get you in an arm bar and all of a sudden you got this guy who's wearing gloves because nobody else is wearing gloves or very few people tank abbott wore gloves and just lighting people up with punches and we're like, holy shit. And so just by chance and fortune, I was training at his school and got to be on the card and doing the post-fight interviews the very first time that he fought in the UFC. Wow. Yeah, so I got to see him. Um, he fought uh, Trey Telegman. Remember Trey had Missing a- the peck. Yeah, he got a car accident when he was a little kid. Yeah, he, he could still strike his ass off that fuck guy. Fuck yeah, he could. He was tough as shit. And he, he had no idea. No one knew what Victor was. V- Vitor. <laughs> I'm going back in time. Yeah. But we, we called it. Like, yeah, I think I may have even said Victor a couple of times during the broadcast because that's what we called him at the school. Everybody called him Victor. Wow. And then all of a sudden it was Vitor. So you had anglicized his name a little bit because no one. I don't know. Like, I don't it's like know they call, what It's happened. like they call Kamaru Marty. Well, how about Fedor? His real name is Fyodor. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Piotr Jan, uh, like no one... It's like Peter. Everybody called him yeah. Peter for a long time in the UFC. Yeah. It was a couple of years, and then fi finally they were like, oh, it's Piotr. I'm like, well, I could say that. Why didn't you tell me that earlier? Like, they just decided to anglify it. But um, Fedor's probably the biggest example of that, right? Right. Because, like, uh, Fyodor's not a hard name to say. I'm trying to think that's the biggest example. That's one of them. But he's the great. Right. I mean, if you want to think about heavyweight greats, you've got Stipe... Kane and Fedor. Those are the three. You got to choose between. And to have the Mount Rushmore of heavyweights, you have to have Fedor. Yeah, he wasn't some anonymous figure. But right. you get introduced to him the wrong way. It's hard to undo that. Right. Like, so that, I got introduced to him in pride as Fedor. Yeah, I'm still saying it. And that will just stick forever, despite yeah. how it actually is supposed to be. I know. It's If I was friends with him, I'd probably say it right. But if you. Uh, what you other ever met him? No, I never have. I had him in studio. Not the most thrilling interview ever. Well, he didn't give much. He's not there to give. No. <laughs> I found that out later. I'm like, I don't think he wanted to be here. No, no, he's there to give ass kickings. Uh, it, really but you know, that. to your to your point about like uh, the origin of things, I remember like I, most people were like, I've been watching UFC since UFC one. Well, I didn't because I just didn't know. I was a 12 year old kid at the time. I you know, I, I, you only know what someone shows you for the most part. Right. This is pre internet, so you definitely only know that shit. And I had, a, I had a family friend who was involved in a martial art that was South Korean called Tukong, which would mm. apparently was the official. So uh, Taekwondo is, as I understand it, and someone's going to correct me on this, but as I understand it, it, it was explained to me was that uh, Taekwondo is the official sport of South Korea, but Tukong was the official martial art or self-defense system of the military. Well, it's Taekyon, T-A-E-K-Y-O-N is what we were taught, was like a, an earlier version of Taekwondo. And I don't know anything about it. Other General than what this Che, guy told us. General Che Young Yi, he was the guy. I was a. I used to teach right, Taekwondo, right, right. and General Che Young Yi was the guy who really formulated Taekwondo into a system. And my instructor Jae Hun Kim was one of Che Young Yi's original students. Hmm. So I got real lucky that I got it like from the the root. I got like right. early Taekwondo, like rough. Like attacking Taekwondo before it was like more of a point fighting right, sort right. of a thing. Well, it, it, whatever the, the his background, I, I can't speak to it too um, accurately. All I know is that I remember it was the summer of God, was it ninety five, ninety six, something like that. And he was like, "Have you seen this skinny Brazilian dude out here fucking people up?" That's always <laughs> how they introduce it, right? Yeah. And I didn't believe it. And he's like, "Let's go to Blockbuster." Went down to Blockbuster. It's the one down there by Barracks Row for folks who are in Washington, D.C. listening. It's now a, a farmer's market or a, a yes market. And uh, it used to be Blockbuster. I went down in there, and I got uh, UFC 4 was the first one I ever saw. For me, it was 2. It was 2? Yeah, yeah, so it was 4. And uh, obviously, he had 4. I think it was it was 3 he had skipped, and 4 he'd come back and fought chemo. What was the one where he had uh, – I forget, I forget the, the genesis. But there was enough in the video – where he was just like lighting these people up in the way he's like, how the fuck is this possible? And it's been politicized now. It takes on a different meaning, but that truly was red pilled at that moment. Like there yeah. was a eureka moment, and the lights go on. You're like, wow, this it's really a is a bummer the that red pill has been politicized. I know because it's such a great term, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's a great term. It's like you just see Lawrence, fan. you see yeah. Lawrence Fishburne yeah. giving you the choice. You know? Yeah, it's been really uh, co-opted because uh, uh, that was the name that Radio Rahim came up with for the Radio Rahim, the uh, boxing yeah, commentator. Yeah. He came up with that for this room. To this Date. And I'm that like, guy. yeah, that guy. Yeah, I'm not sure. If you see, that's a bummer, man. The Deontay Wilder stuff that's going on right now. He's <sighs> he's released three different excuses. The first one was the weight vest, the the thing that he was wearing, that crazy costume, weighed 40 pounds apparently, and it wore his legs out. The next one was that th there was a bunch of people saying that Tyson Fury's gloves 
um, weren't attached correctly, so the gloves were extended. So he was hitting them with the knuckles, right. and the, the the glove part was not really attached. It was like so he was catching them like with the part that's supposed to be over the wrist. Not correct, not true, and easily provable. The next one, he said egg weights. He said he had egg weights in his hand. This is recent, like a couple days ago. Then yesterday, there was an article that said that he believes that he was his water was poisoned. By his own trainer. And Mark Breland right. was a part of that. Understand, for folks who may not know who Mark Breland is, former, uh, uh, I think, Olympic gold medalist, yes. world champion, yes. uh, across two different weight divisions, if I'm not mistaken. He is the voice of sanity, or was, till he was dismissed in that corner. That was the guy that threw the towel for him, who, how I mean... Breland should be thanked yes. by Wilder and his camp until the end of time. His other trainer, um, uh, I forget his last name, starts with a D. He was out there at the post-fight press conference being like, you know, I don't know if I would have thrown that towel. It's like, you oh fucking yes, man. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Breland took it upon himself to, uh, I don't save the guy's life, but certainly make the right call for halting the contest. He was thanked by being dismissed and now essentially dragged through the mud with utterly what I'm guessing are utterly baseless accusations about poisoning his own fighter. Mm. I mean, maybe Tyson Fury's fucking awesome. That seems like the simplest explanation well, for all of this. Tyson Fury changed his strategy. <clears throat> and also, you have to realize that Tyson Fury in the first fight was coming off of a, a multiple-year battle with depression, mental illness, drinking, got suicidal thoughts. He talked on my podcast about driving his Ferrari and almost slamming into a bridge. He's like, I was I was pedaled to the metal, and I was thinking about slamming into this bridge. Mm. And they changed his mind. And you know, just slowly worked his way into shape, got healthy again, got his mind right again, and pulled it back around. But when he fought Deontay Wilder the first time, his father didn't want him to take the fight. He's like, you're not healthy enough yet. You're not ready yet. And he did his best. He fought well, but it was a draw. By the time they fought the second time, he was in tip-top condition. Right. He had gone through the camp for the first fight. His body was completely recovered from all the abuse of alcohol and cocaine and all the shit that he was doing. And then he took on um, the Kronk trainer, Sugar Hill. And then his whole strategy changed. He's like, the guy does not fight well off the heel, off the back foot. Let's let's move him back. And Tyson Fury is fucking enormous. You know, he's huge. Six nine. Yeah, and he came into the fight. I think he was like two eighty. Yeah. And so he just pressed him and pressed him and just was throwing bombs. And I don't think Deontay Wilder expected that. Yeah. Deontay Wilder expected him to run and move and jab and fight the same way he fought in the first fight. And instead, Tyson Fury just came right at him and just clipped him hard and often. And I think if you go back to their first fight and you look at how when Tyson Fury got dropped in the twelfth rose like Lazarus, and then came back, survived, and then started winning the round. Right. And then I think he realized from that moment on, oh, the way to beat this guy is to back him up. Right. And then he took that strategy. <clears throat> Sugar Hill, of course, like Kronk, legendary, aggressive attack. I mean, they're, they're like the, if people who are MMA fans love shoot the box, they're like the shoot the box of boxing, right? <laughs> if you think about it, like yeah. aggressive attacking, multiple champions, Gerald McClellan, Tommy Hearns, I mean, the list goes on and on. And he employed that sort of attacking strategy. And he's a fucking masterful boxer, too. Right, that's the other part about it. I mean, folks don't realize he can play the defensive game. I think you saw it in the Otto Valin fight. He's so long and has such good trunk movement. He can actually lean on the ropes, and the punches go in front because he's so tall yeah. and long. He can he can play that game. Well, the, the Klitschko fight. Right, Exactly. Outbox Vladimir Klitschko right. is one of the greatest ever. It wasn't the most thrilling fight. I mean, the Wilder right. fight was much better, but... Um, 
I did a whole video on it, and too, and I was like amazed. He from the stance he took, he had a little bit of an A-frame stance, so you could say just away, and he was always um, a, a double jab away. So mm -hmm. he was long enough where he was outside of anything that Wilder could have put together. Who's a real one-two kind of guy, or you know, you know, Wilder would just come lunging in with a punch, and he was good enough to back him up and then steer him into punches. And I always talk about this. Eugene Behrman, uh, who is the you know, and everyone gets on me because I'm always promoting city kickboxing, I, but it's like. He's a masterful trainer. It's like, well, not only that, I mean, every once in a while you come around to a guy who not only can train fighters to a high degree, but has an idea about what the game is missing and how to fill that gap. And they are big believers in fainting. They, they, they make a point. They basically say, like, how is it possible you can have people come from this little tiny island and, you know, Adesanya is the very best version of that, but, like, they've got good fighter, Brad, Brad Riddell, uh, Shane Young, Dan Hooker, Dan Hooker. They got a lot of guys, and Volkanovski has trained under Brad, who trained under uh, Eugene. But basically, what they believe is that what has been missing for a long time in MMA striking is effective faking, faking and fainting, mm -hmm. and that uh, they do shadow boxing drills for hours just on fainting, mm. no punches thrown, just fainting, just to set it all up. Because they basically say, if you look at the way which a lot of American and even European strikers throw, it's a lot of sit down and throw combinations. Mm -hmm. uh, which you could do, but they don't really believe that's the best way to do it. The best gap to fill is that. Fury, to circle the point here, is excellent. He is such a brilliant fainter. And he had Deontay Wilder dead to rights over and over and over again, which he didn't really do the first time around. And so, you know, all these excuses about, my trainer poisoned me. Yeah. It's like, it's like I'm, I, that's not what the tape shows, bro. Well, he got it. He was making excuses when he got dropped. With the first punch, he was like pointing to the back of his head and he was upset and you could see it's like, it's really weird. It's we really weird when you see a guy who's so utterly dominant and who has what Teddy Atlas calls the great eraser, that right hand. Because it really is, <laughs> yeah, it erases all your problems. You, you fucked up a little bit, watch this. Plank, Hot. All your mistakes, yeah. gone with that. His right hand is a force of nature. It's one of the best right hands in the history of the ever, sport. Ever, yeah. ever. The Luis Ortiz fight? Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. What the fuck? Hit him on the forehead. Yep. And Ortiz is down, like with a look in his face, like what the f what happened? And Ortiz is not some chump. He's huge. He's a Cuban boxer. Yeah. You know who World has class. great pedigree. One shot set his ass down. And he was winning the fight. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He and was all, winning the fight. And uh, all of a sudden, black. If, if you look at the my my view on his power is that for straight rights, right, which is really what he basically throws, or maybe a little bit overhandy because mm -hmm. it's a little bit looping. That's one of the best, if not the best, right hands in all of boxing. If you're talking about full-on power punchers, though, I don't know that he's got the full repertoire. Like, is his uppercut with his right hand as good as his straight? I don't know that it is. You see a guy like Ernie Shavers. Right. Fuck, bro. Yeah. Go look up Ernie Shavers highlights on YouTube and then smoke some weed beforehand. <laughs> you will literally laugh at what he does to men. For it's sure. It's shocking to watch his power. And he has the full repertoire of it. You know. Yeah, a lot of fighters who fought him said he was the most powerful punch they ever faced. A lot of fighters. Someone too. told me, I forget who it was, but they uh, he got hit by Shavers. And then they felt it in the, um, in the roof of their foot. The, the, what's the, what's the, like the, the, the arch? The arch. They felt it in the arch of their, it like radiated into the arch of their foot. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I never heard some shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, power's a weird thing, right? Like you're either born with it or you're not. I mean, I've, I've seen so many guys who you, you'd look at and they're, they're big and strong and you would say, wow, I bet that guy hits hard and they can't crack an egg. No. There was, there's like, there's a bunch of them. There's always been a bunch of them in boxing. There's been a bunch of them. Like you see them in the gym. 
And then you see guys like, do you remember Michael McDonald when he was a kid, when he was coming up? Yes. Skinny, looks like a little boy, knock people into another dimension. And you're like, whoa, this is crazy. Do you follow boxing currently at yes, all? Yes, yes, I so do. So how about this kid, Jaime Munguia? You seen him? I have not he seen him. He fought last Friday night. Holy mother of God. You look at him, he obviously is an athlete, right? He's in good shape. You would look at him and think, eh, you know, I'm not going to say average, but there's nothing that stands out about him. At least Wilder is huge. Right. He's bricked up. Makes sense. Mungia is in, is, in, is in fight shape, but he's not bricked up. And this fucking guy, I mean, he's rearranging. I mean, he is keeping dentists in business. Was he on Showtime? He was on DAZN. DAZN. He was on DAZN. And what was the undercard of which fight? Oh, God. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. I only tuned in because I was like, I have an alert for Jaime Mungia whenever he fights. Oh, really? Yeah. He's that good. Yeah. Uh, there's Mungia, the guy on the left. This fuck, look at him. Does he look like a power oh, puncher to you? Super normal. He is arguably the biggest power puncher in boxing. What? For, by by way, arguably, really? arguably, yeah. That's crazy. That fucking guy can crack. And I think he rearranges. Oh, so you remember the, the lip split that mm -hmm. Overeem had when he fought yeah. Rosenstruck? Wait till you see what he does to this fucking guy's face. He uppercuts him to the point where a piece of his face goes flying off. This was last Friday. This was just a couple of days ago. Look at that shit. Look at that. That was from one uppercut. Oh, my God. Look at his face, Joe. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> he looks like he got attacked by a bear. Now, did they let fights go on in boxing with a split lip no, like that? No, they called it eventually here. That's I think. interesting. Because, like, you remember Robbie Lawler with that crazy split lip when yeah. he fought Rory McDonald? But, um, it was, but it was right at the end. Interesting. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, look at that shit. How about shit. the Gervonta Davis knockout? Bro. <laughs> How beautiful is that uppercut? That was a thing of The beauty. same uppercut that Povetkin used. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, Similar. That same, like, If you go and look closely, Gervonta uh, is uh, squared, and so he's leaning to either side, mm -hmm. and so when the punch comes, he's able to slip this direction. Oh, so God. he's left-handed, Joe, but he... Here it is. So watch. See, look at it. Look how he's square. Oh, yeah, he's totally square. So see how, see how that left hand... Can you go back and pause it for just a second? I want to show you something. Pause it right at the moment of impact, if you can, if, it, if it's at all possible. That's what he's going to throw here. So he slips... Now watch, first of all, the Pavekin one, the arm was extended, so it came under the arm. God. This is in front, it's on the inside angle. But notice, Gervonta is left-handed. He is left-hand forward here. Oh. So he's squared, and he's, you know how some guys jab with their power hand mm -hmm. to like throw people off or just stick them with it? De La Hoya. So he, exactly. So he sat in square and then <sighs> gave this guy every inch of a lead uppercut from his power hand. God damn, that was a beautiful shot. Look at that. Al Bernstein got saved, too, because poor Al Bernstein's the man I love, Al. Every time I've interacted with him, he's the sweetest guy. He's a great guy. And he was about to say, you know, if, if uh, <laughs> he was like right in the middle of saying, you know, if Gervonta uh, Davis thinks that his power is going to put, uh, you know, Santa Cruz down, and then he cracked him with it. So he stopped mid-sentence. Wouldn't have been his fault, because the point was, like, D Santa Cruz opened up. Like, he Look, was engaging Davis with the guy. Is, like, I think he's, what has he got, 23 knockouts? Something like, he's only had Something one person insane. go the distance, yeah. Yeah, which but, but goes back to the Wilder fight. Like Wilder, Deontay before Tyson Fury beat him had only gone to decision two times. Tyson Fury and uh, Dominic Brazil was that what it was? Brazil he knocked out in the first round in, in the, the rematch. rematch. Oh no, Bur uh, Berman Stavern, right? That's right, Stavern. Yeah. Stavern was in the first fight. He beat him by decision. Right, and so he had been used. And he had gotten so confident towards the end of his career. I remember there's a photo of him walking um, to the fight or walking through uh, a casino in Vegas. It's an amazing photo. He's wearing a fur coat with an open shirt holding his <laughs> wife's hand. 
and he just looks like the ultimate heavyweight champion in the world. Yeah. Like, you, you see him like, that is what I want from a heavyweight champion. Just top of the game, just wearing these crazy sunglasses, fully shredded, yep. fur coat, holding his wife's hand. I'm like, that, it, that's a heavyweight champion. Connor has that in his head. Yeah. Connor's the heavyweight champion of the world in his head, you know? <laughs> Which I don't like. I'm not bashing him for it. Like, I, right, I, I, right. Want, I want that. That's yeah, you should, you should be yeah. resplendent and ignorant and amazing yeah. all at once. See if you can find that photo of Deontay Wilder holding his wife's hand wearing a fur coat. It's one of my favorite fighter photos, like getting ready for a fight of all time, because it's so just aggressively confident. Just. And on top of the world. How do you do that? It's almost like a fuck you to everybody, yeah. you know? I mean, he was basically, he was being the baddest man on the planet. I don't think I've ever had that kind of self-confidence ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you have to have that to be that guy, right? right? Especially I mean, when you have, you know, he doesn't have the widest skill set. You know no, what I mean? I mean, literally came into the game. I mean, I, I had the privilege of, that's one of them. Is that the one? There's one where he's got no shirt on uh, up in the... Is it for the first or second? Oh, that he doesn't fight? have a shirt on. It's just a. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, there it is. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's it. Well, there's a few of those. He looks like Mr. T with all the chains too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. And you got a white guy getting your luggage. Even better. <laughs> just, I mean, I'm a fan of his. I really am, and I'm a fan of his as a human being. I really enjoyed talking to him, and he told me a story. He's a great that, interview. He's a great guy. He got into boxing because his daughter was sick. And he was deli- bifida, right? Yeah, he and he's a delivery guy for like was it Budweiser or something like that or Coca Cola? Yeah, some liquid. And he was like, "Look, I got to make some fucking money." And he knew he wasn't going to be able to play uh, in a college sport or in a professional sport without a college background. So he's like, well, "I'm going to get into boxing." A year and a half in, wins a bronze medal in the Olympics. Right. Like what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Just. Dumb power, crazy Dumb power. power, crazy like like a, one in a billion human power. But if you've ever seen him interact with his kids, like it, the the nobility of trying to do that for your daughter is one thing. He's got like a bunch of kids. He's got like five or six of them, and I've like uh, I didn't I I just had a kid about eighteen months ago, and I didn't understand it when I would watch. But like I don't think he's happier than when when he's with his children, and it's not even there's not even a close second. Like a, a doting family man, it's really unfortunate he's made these excuses because yeah, as a, a person, he seems like such a sweet guy. It's a bummer, and I, and I wish someone was there to advise him. Breland, he was. Well, I should bring you know I don't know maybe Mark doesn't have the kind of relationship with him that he can call him. My up understanding and- is uh, his uh, his manager Deontay's manager was the one who brought in Breland mm. years ago as like a way like we need somebody here who's like a high level trainer uh and brought him in and it worked for a time anyway but here we are I talked to Roy Jones about him and Roy Jones was saying if he trained him what he would train him is to, he would concentrate on his left hand he was like you already know you can put people to sleep with your right hand he goes well, what about your left hand he goes I want to keep people at distance use the jab use the hook he goes I would concentrate on just working that left hand hmm. he goes that would fix so many of his problems because his left hand is just like here comes the right here right. comes the right boom I mean he'll throw jabs but you're not terrified of it the way you're terrified of Roy Jones left hand you know Roy Jones have you ever seen Roy Jones left bicep is it the one that is split, splits down the middle like a no, perfect? He'll show you like his right bicep is like a normal bicep, and his left bicep's like twice his size. It's crazy. It's huge. You got the Sage Northcut bicep because he throws so many left hooks. Oh. Like he was flexing. He's like, look at this, and I was like, that's crazy. Sitting right, he was like, this one's normal. But you look <laughs> at this one. His left. Look at his left yeah, bicep. Yeah, he's got that Sage Northcut splitter down the Dude, middle. Dude, it's enormous. I mean, it's enormous. 
it's 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 crazy how much bigger it is. Like legitimately fifty percent larger. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, his left hook is just a thing of beauty. Yeah, and when yeah. he was in his prime, he barely jabbed people. He would just leaping left hook them and, and crack them. And his speed, his his foot speed and his hand speed were so incredible that he could get away with that. I know folks of this modern era, they know the name, but they don't really know what he meant yeah. to the game, you know? Like if someone asked me who's the modern Roy Jones Jr. in boxing, there isn't one. There's not one. There's one there's like this guy to take risks and liberties and had crazy athleticism and pinpoint punching and showman. He was a showman too. There's great boxers. There's, there's boxing's in a great place in many ways. There's nobody who does what he did. Roy made world champions look like they had no business in there. And people were like, oh, he didn't fight anybody. And oh, he, shit, he didn't he, fight he fucked, fucked world champions. He fought really tough guys, but he fucked them all up. I mean... It's the same with Khabib. Yeah. Oh, Khabib didn't fight anybody. No, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> he makes them look like he, they're fighting me. That's the difference. Look what he did to Justin Gaethje. That's all you need to know. If you say Justin Gaethje's a nobody, you're crazy. You watch that Tony Ferguson fight? Justin Gaethje's a fucking animal. He's a savage. And he just closed that gap. And he ate a lot of leg kicks, too, man. He ate a lot of leg kicks that would, I mean, I don't know how many of those you can eat from Justin. Right. Maybe he had like five or six more in the tank. Right. You're on E. But he closed the gap and then wound up finishing with a triangle off of his back. I mean, God damn. A, a serious question about this because I went through it a couple times. Mm -hmm. So from the moment he got kicked, mm -hmm. then he initiates the takedown. So it was a kick. Uh, he tried the first round. He did it off a head inside single. Didn't work. Second round, he tried it off a double from the outside leg kick. First round was an inside leg kick, hence the inside single. Didn't work. So then he goes to the double. It's 22 seconds from that till the finish. Mm -hmm. So 22 seconds, we're apart. 22 seconds later, you're unconscious. I mean, this is my question to you. Is that the best back take you've ever seen in MMA? Because what he does is when Gaethje is sprawling in this contest, he's not just sprawling. He is sprawling and turning so he doesn't get pushed into the fence. He was very diligent about that in the Alvarez and the Gaethje fights. You can go back and you can watch it. So in this fight, when you, you see the level change that Khabib hits you see automatically Gaethje turn because he doesn't mm -hmm. want to get turned that direction. But what Khabib does is he actually scoots under him, pulls him up, and then with his head posts him over, gets the hands to plant. Well, once the hands are planted, the double is over. He doesn't care about it anymore. Now he just wants the tight waist. And from the tight waist, he's holding – his elbows aren't flared. Mm -hmm. They're tight here, right? Like he's T-Rexing inside. At that point, you have created, if you're Justin Gaethje, putting your hands, you've created a stable structure for this guy to now mount. Plus, if you want to escape to the fence to like stand, he can control the uh, ascent. So he goes, double, turns, pushes hands to the mat, forces Gaethje down, and then with his, uh, his gable grip, then keeps it there and then replaces it with the hooks and then turns it to a, head, uh, turns it to a fake, not a real Joe Rogan, a fake uh, head and arm triangle attempt just so Gaethje gets his elbows away from his body. Then he chair sits to uh, occupy the space then throws the leg over, and then sits back and takes mercy upon him. As we learn later from Daniel Cormier, rather than armbar him in front of his moms, I'm just going to triangle you because that's the merciful... This guy is out here taking fucking pity on his <laughs> opponents. And he's doing back takes like that. He is... John Jones, to me, is the most accomplished fighter we've ever seen. Like the, the, the things accumulate over time. No one is as flawless as Khabib Nurmagomedov. Not even close. I think that is the argument, right? Like, who is the GOAT? I think if you look at John Jones's early career, right? John Jones wins the title in 2011 and from then on has fought more fights as championship fights than he has other fights. So he's the most accomplished for sure. 
wins the title, the earliest, youngest guy to ever win the title in the UFC, beats Mauricio Shogun Hua, who's a legend. And then the way he dominates all these other fighters, up until you get to Alexander Gustafson, you could make the argument that he had a similar career. You could make the argument, like if you look at what he did, John didn't lose any rounds. John was smashing people. You look what he did to Rashad Evans. You look what he did to Rampage Jackson. You look what he did to Lyoto Machida. You look what he did to everybody. All Everybody he fought up until the Gustafson fight. But the Gustafson fight, then you have to say, well, how much slack do you give him for admittedly not training? Because it was a really close fight. He pulls it out in the championship round, even though he's out of shape, even though you talk to Greg Jackson, he didn't train for that fight. Didn't fucking train. Like, barely worked out, but definitely didn't go through a training camp. Still managed to beat one of the best guys in the division after getting taken down for the first time in his career. Then goes on a tear, right? Beats... Look at the way he beat Daniel Cormier in the first fight. Took him down. Like, who the fuck takes Daniel Cormier down, <laughs> right. right? And then you look at him in the second fight. Even though it was ruled a no contest, we know what the fuck happened. He head kicked him and stopped him. You know, it was f spectacular. You look at what John has done. Then you have to take into account the things that didn't go that well. And we haven't seen those from Khabib yet. You have to take into account the fight like Tiago Santos, right? That fucker goes to... a a split decision. You're like, whoa, Dominic Reyes. Dominic Reyes thought he won the fight. Right. You know, real close. Too. Real close fight. So those fights haven't happened with Khabib yet. And we don't know if they ever could. We don't know, right? Like right now, would you see flawless victory after flawless victory? You can maybe make the argument that Khabib lost two rounds his entire career. Maybe the second round against Justin. Or uh, first round, first round rather, maybe first round rather against Justin, and maybe the third round with Connor. That's right. That's it. Right. And either one of those didn't get cut, didn't get dropped, didn't get hurt. Right. To never get cut and to never get dropped, I don't think folks understand what that means. Crazy. In a sport filled with, it's not a scientific measurement per se, right? Who gets cut the most or something? But in a sport built on unpredictability, yeah. on violence, uh, you know, St. Pierre went to wrestling to get away from all of that in large, in large part, and then to never experience that is like. It is shocking beyond description. I don't, shocking. I don't know how to explain that to folks. It's uh, but to your point, the thing about Khabib where he falls short is that it's just an inevitability. Like your run through twenty nine fights is the best run I've seen through twenty nine fights ever, ever, ever. But I, you know, and John's not my best friend or anything, but I just don't. That is the best total resume. I've ever seen. John is the best resume. It's just, it's not, I mean, I know he got, he was, he was getting all salty on Twitter being like, these fucking Khabib fans. It's like, dude, put the, eh, here's he shouldn't what, do that. Oh, well, he shouldn't do it. But here's my point to John. It's like, dude, put the keyboard down for just a second. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to heavyweight and you're going to probably win. I mean, I don't know if that's a guarantee, but let's assume that you do. All of the conversation, everything that happens right now is just recency bias. And Khabib retired yeah. and his father died and it was this incredibly mm -hmm. sad and like yet yeah. inspiring moment. Let the fucking guy have his moment because when you have your moment, all of the con the worm is going to turn. Yeah. And then everyone's going to be like, John's the fucking greatest. It's he's going to get his. Just not today at this moment. Recency know? bias, that's real. Recent bias is that's, that's a real thing. Like, you know, we just watch Khabib and then the fact that Khabib did. Uh, supposedly retire. Come on, son. I know you want some more. Yeah, I know. I, I haven't eaten much, so my head is spinning a little bit. <laughs> That's all right. Everyone asks me, like, when, when I go on, it's like, are you going to smoke weed? I'm like, there's no chance I'm smoking Joe Rogan's <laughs> fucking super weed. There's no chance I'm smoking it right now. Salud. I haven't done anything in a month. I had a couple glasses of wine last night, and I was like, woo. Yeah, I'm feeling it a little bit. Got to mm. be careful. The, um, the John Jode situation is also, uh, it's a contrast in personalities, right? Khabib, who's this really religious, 
very moral, ethical person who doesn't drink, he doesn't party, he doesn't do anything, he just trains. He's always in phenomenal shape. He he takes every fight incredibly serious. He's never been out of shape. He's never been fat. He's never I mean, he's missed weight a couple of times earlier in his career, but he got that dialed in. He's he's just uh so dedicated. Whereas John is a wild man. He's right. just wild. I mean, you talk about not training for the Matt, oh, so excuse me, for the uh, the Gustafson fight. Buddy that ain't the only fight he didn't train yeah. for. How about what he said to Cormier? I did coke and yeah. I still beat you. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think he's lying. I mean, the no. stories I've heard, I don't want to repeat them no. because I cannot verify them. No. But I've heard stories like, if y'all think that was the one fight, he just like, oh, I'm going to take that. I'm going to pump the brakes this time. No, yeah. bitch. I mean, uh, here's the other part about it. It's like, um, when you, so who's a guy, for example, who maintained dominance through the game and took you know, significant amounts of time off in boxing. Floyd Mayweather would be a great example of that. Yeah. But Floyd has been training as a family affair from adolescence, right? Yeah. For the long part of his life. And he is so gifted that he can take time off and the game is so developed that people aren't going to make warp speed development in his absence. And so they got a little bit better every time he took a little bit of time off, like the Maidana first fight with the corkscrew punch. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit of a, of a wild uh, card there. But in general, he was able to maintain that dominance. In MMA, the game changes rapidly, mm -hmm. super fast, because people are still discovering best practices. In two years, people will not be doing the same kinds of things to the same degree they do now. The calf kick and its explosion mm -hmm. is, a, is sort of an obvious example of that. John was doing things like not training between camps. I mean, that's something only elite boxers do because they've been doing this since they were five, six years old, and they can take the time to not necessarily do that, whereas most MMA fighters are like, I'm a I'm a everyday martial artist. I just ramp it up. He would do nothing and then something, and still go out there and beat world fucking champions in what at the time was the UFC's marquee division. That is out of this fucking world, bonkers. I'm gonna train. I'm gonna beat you as like a part time guy. Yeah. What? Yeah. You just couldn't wrap your head around it. I wonder if maybe there's some benefit to because it's not like he got totally out of shape, but I wonder if there's some benefit to that and that he's not getting beat up. He's not getting his joints wrecked and you know, there's probably there's, there's a lunch yeah, it's a real question of like what is what's the best way to approach it. I mean, we're still trying to figure that out, right? If you go back to the early days of like say like Hammer House and like the Militich fighting systems guys like those guys used to beat the fuck out of each other. <laughs> Curitiba, shoot the box. Yeah. I'm mean, talking about those guys beat the fuck out it was, of each other. It was hazing. Let's yeah. call it what it was. Hazing. Sure. Well, you know that's a famous uh, story about BJ Penn. Like BJ Penn's crew, like they would just scrap. They would fight. They would get together in the afternoon. They'd beat the shit out of each other, and that would be training. And like, whoa. And you know that was how everybody did it. And now they realize, like, hey, you can't really do that. If you do that, it's going to really fuck with your longevity. My, my sense about it is, is I mean, even then in jiu-jitsu, too, like the old Half Gracie school. Mm -hmm. Like you oh, talked yeah. to Dave Camarillo or whatever, all those guys back then. I mean, Half, you know. Savage. They were not fucking around. No, not you know, fucking around. This is not like, hey, you want to get better at self-defense? Mm -hmm. No, not, not that kind of school. But um, my, my answer to the question about, like, is it better to do what John did? My, my hunch is that there are probably some net benefits to it. Right On balance, there's going to be some downsides and some upsides. The downsides are going to be that this development that you might need as a martial artist will be somewhat impeded. However, there'll be some longevity issues you may not have to worry about by consequence. In fact, you look at him uh, tearing his toe in the Chael Sonnen fight. Now, I fucked up my toe similarly, not, not to the extent where I was through the skin, 
but you know he has a buddy system with the wrap on the toe, mm-hmm. um, and I had to use the exact same thing for a long time because it, every even now if I step on my right foot just right, it sends fire through my toe. It hurts like shit, you know. Yeah, John still tapes his. He toe still up. tapes it, and so my point being is, to that extent, he has probably minimized some of the long-term impacts. It's just he was so far ahead of the game, so naturally talented, so athletic. He could just get away with it. Yeah. You could not be average and do what he does. No. You have to be very, very, I mean, the day he fought Shogun, correct me if I'm wrong, it was either the Bader fight or the Shogun fight. That morning, he chased down Shogun a robber. Fight. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in Newark, Newark New, Jersey, New Jersey, which is, I had worked there one time. It fucking sucks. Okay? I was born there. Is that where, is you were born in Newark? Yeah. Wow, Joe, you've come up a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Newark sucks. Newark sucks. Uh, anyway, and he's so he chased down a robber there and the whole nine yards. And, you know, I mean, the, just things about distraction and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it had zero impact on any fucked. And everyone wants to say, by the way, I don't know if you follow closely MMA Twitter. I'm a little bit more, you know, in the weeds on that kind of a thing uh, by virtue of my media placement. Everyone wants to say, oh, Shogun was washed. Motherfucker, he was the belt holder at the time John took it. Yeah, just knocked out Leota Machida. What the fuck are you talking about? Was that prime Shogun no. from uh, the, the 2005 middleweight tournament in Pride? No. But was he some kind of washed afterthought? What the fuck? What kind of revisionist nonsense is this? He's one of the best fighters in the world. Right. Yeah. The, right. It's, it's hard to say he was washed up. Just because John comes along. First of all, John opens up with a flying knee. Who the fuck does that? You know, what young kid? What was he, 23? Right? If. If 23, that. He opens with a flying knee on a legend. <laughs> it, you almost watch it. And here's what he really did at the time. He was just disrespectful. Not mm-hmm. like in the fuck you kind of sense, but like... I'm going to fight you in a way where, like, all these stories that they told me about you, mm-hmm. it's like the buzzing of flies yeah, to me. didn't you know? matter. He was so confident. He just was a, a guy who, first of all, when you look at just the genetics in his family are phenomenal. His father is a massive man. Both of his brothers are NFL players, uh, elite NFL players. There's just tremendous athletes in the house. And then they grew up together. If you watch guys who grew up with athletic brothers, like they all beat the fuck out of each other, right? Like Matt Hughes and Mark Hughes, they beat each other's asses. Like that is the case. Like Joe Lozon and Dan Lozon right. beat each other's asses. There's so many examples of guys growing up with tough brothers and they are fucking hardened. You know, by the time they get into the octagon, this is just like there's there's so many of them like that. I think there's something to that. Right. Having two bad motherfuckers as brothers and like constantly competing with each other. I think. But it doesn't also say something that like, okay, uh, Noguera exception aside, Mm -hmm. most of the brother tandems or even the sister tandems, one is clearly better than the other, though. Like, Matt, better than Mark. Right. Valentina, Antonina. Joe, better than Dan. Joe, better than Dan. Right. The Nogueira brothers, I might say that uh, uh, Big Nog, a little bit better than Little Nog. Although Little Nog was pretty fucking great. You know, it wasn't like a tremendous difference. But in general, usually one, like, kind of puts it on the other one for a mm-hmm. little bit, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, sometimes that is what makes a really tough fighter, too. Like... Um, Chris Weidman's story, him, him and his brother, his brother used to beat his ass, and his brother was bullying him, and Chris Weidman became a fucking savage because he was just so tough from dealing with his fucking brother. You know, like, do, you have, do you have any siblings? I only have a sister. Uh, forgive my ignorance. I have a brother. Um, <laughs> not the same kind of thing. My brother was a super hardcore uh, academic nerd, and so I don't have any. Like I, like, I have a brother, and like you're telling me these stories, and it's like, that is so divorced. From like my reality from having a, a brother as a sibling, you know? 
really we're just, we're talking about like a, a lack of observation like parents should be there like hey you fucks <laughs> stop beating each other up like this separate or you know probably parents didn't have the time or the uh there's only so much you can do yeah. when you've got you oh, know, yeah. can you imagine if you had Arthur Jones, Chandler Jones and John Jones <laughs> in the back seat of the car and they want to slap each other the fuck are you going to do? What are you going to do? do? I mean that's some so, fucking so, so powerful I don't genetics. know if I don't know if Arthur is still in uh, the NFL. I think he is out now. I don't know if he still is in there, but his brother on the right is Chandler. Uh, Chandler, I don't know if you follow. You, I don't, you, you, don't, you don't watch team sports, right? No, oh, you're missing out, Joe. You got. I got to get. I got <laughs> to get you on. Too it. much to do. I, I hear you. I hear you. Chandler is like a legitimate multiple time All Pro. Mm -hmm. He is the fucking man. Um, he's at the little bit of the latter stage of his career at this point. Obviously, they're all kind of aging a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Chandler of the three, well, I guess well, John had a great career, but of the two in the NFL. Arthur had a had a good career, I think you could say, but Chandler is, I mean, primo talent. Arthur trains quite a bit. Yes, he was a wrestler for a for a time. I mm -hmm. wonder if he's thought about fighting in MMA now that he's not doing NFL anymore. I mean, he's probably a better athlete. He, you know, he, again, he doesn't like you know he's got right. the Paul Buentello syndrome a little bit where they don't look like it, you know. Mm -hmm. But then I bet he can go in there and fuck well, people up. Fedor. Right, <laughs> better than anybody. I mean, right. arguably the greatest heavyweight of all time. And then the second, I mean, the other two besides uh, Stipe is Kane, who also didn't, didn't have the have best them. body in the world. Although Kane, he looks menacing. Oh, his face, yeah. You know what I mean? He's got a big ass fucking head too. Yeah. You know, looks hard as fuck. I I rewatched um, Kane versus Junior three the other day. God damn it, that's hard to watch. That's hard to watch. He changed yeah. JDS. He yeah, changed he changed him. him. He changed him. It's hard to watch. You ever seen uh, this this documentary? Um, um, I think it's called The Season. But if I'm getting it wrong, I know your listeners are gonna fucking kill me if I get it wrong. I forget the exact name, but they, you know, Steve Mako. He's the ATT wrestling coach, mm -hmm. or at least he was. I'm not sure exactly. His, he was for a long time. <laughs> Steve Mako's hilarious. I one time speaking to John Jones. John was fighting Glover in Baltimore, and Steve definitely did not want me to interview him, but he didn't say no. I was like, Steve, can I get a couple, you know, seconds with you, whatever? And I stuck a microphone in his face. And I'm like, so, you know, specifically, what kind of strategies around uh, Glover have you trained here? He's like, you know, some particular strategies around Glover for John. Like, he would just literally repeat the exact words back to me. Four questions in, I'm like, you don't want to do this. He's like, I don't want to do this. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you could have said it up front. Anyway. What, John has an issue with you? You guys have a. Well, uh, well, thing? real quickly, I'll tell you real quickly. Because it was but, a funny time where yeah, he yeah, says, he fucking he sent me to hell on a press conference once. But yeah. real quickly, um, when it comes to Steve Mako, Steve was he wrestled at Oklahoma and then Iowa, or in, I think Iowa first and Oklahoma, and they had I think it was ESPN had done a documentary and they had gone to you know Iowa wrestling is like, you know, if not Penn State is now the best program in the country and has been for some time because of Kale Sanderson and the recruiting and then the great work that they've done. But in general, for a long time, Iowa is sort of one of these titans of college wrestling. And they ask Steve Mako, as a college student, why do you like wrestling? Like, why do you want to compete so hard? He's like, because when I really win and I dominate, I change people. They're not the same after I get done with them. They realize they're not who they think they are, and I'm everything that they feared I would be. Whoa. Whoa. And it's like, and he is, and he is dead <laughs> fucking serious about it. So anyway, that was the thing about Steve Mako. So when I put a microphone That's in his face, it was kind of funny. Quote. But about John, so I don't know what the issue is, candidly. I actually, what basically ended up happening was... He I had a good, I had a very good relationship with him and his management for a long time, and I still have a decent relationship with his management. But uh, he had so the fight back with Cormier at two fourteen, I think it was whatever the number was, the rematch. He had a press conference. He had a shaved head. And he was in a mood, you know. And I'd asked him some totally softball innocuous question, 
And to the public, he goes, um, you know, Luke, I don't like you, so I'm not going to answer your question. Was I think right. That, right? Yeah. And it was a shock to me because his coach, Brandon Gibson, I'm like very tight with, you know, and a bunch of other people. And they didn't know either. In fact, I talked to his manager, Malky, at the time. I met him at the host hotel. And I go, bro, what the fuck was that? Like, it was totally out of nowhere. He's like, he's like, you know, you know Malky, right? You ever talked to him? Yeah. He's like, he's like, I don't know. He's like, but you got a big mouth. That's your problem. You got a big mouth. And I was like, well, okay, but what specifically was the issue? He didn't know. And uh, and uh, I didn't get a chance to follow up with John, obviously, and Brandon Gibson didn't know. No, nobody fucking knew. So here's my hunch. My hunch is that we were reasonably in good terms. Then he had all those fuck-ups where you know he got into the car accident and everything else. And I probably said something he didn't like. Mm. And I just – it's not they don't tell you. you know They don't yeah. call you up and be like, I'm really mad at you. They just wait to some other opportunity. I had, I had a discussion with John where he was uh... – he was thinking, like, why did I go bad on him? Like, what was I saying? Because well, one of the things that I said that I, I speculated that maybe one of the reasons why he was behaving the way he was behaving was P, was, was CTE. And I, I still kind of stand by that. I think um, one of the things that happens with CTE, and not that I think John should get out of the game. I'm not saying this at all. But I'm, I'm saying that there's a inevitable consequence of getting hit in the head. Right. We've seen the video of John getting pulled over drunk driving, and he says, I forget a lot of things. I right. get hit in the head for a living. There, there's an inevitable, con inevitable consequence of getting punched in the head where fighters experience some sort of negative effect of it. And some of them become very impulsive. It's just one of the side effects of, of head trauma. And even head trauma that's like acceptable, they get impulsive. They, they, they do wild shit. I mean, they do more wild shit. Right. They have a harder, uh, it's harder for them to control their impulses. Well, in the case of John, I don't, um, as it relates to my interaction with him, and I hold no ill will, believe it or not, because frankly, I, I almost prefer that, you know, because here's what ends up happening. If so you get for, too friendly, then you, you could not, not even that, it's hold back. A little bit, but that's that's less my issue. Like I, I always tell fighters, I'm like, I'm not your friend, but I'm definitely not your enemy. Like mm. you have to understand that. Like I, I mean it's truly you cannot work in MMA media. You cannot work in MMA media. It's not possible to do the job correctly, such as the job can be done correctly, which I'm not even sure that's even true anymore. But if if you don't understand that the fighter doesn't owe you anything. And that the fighter is uh, uniquely disadvantaged relative to the power structures inside MMA. You cannot do the job effectively. You cannot. So, to the extent that he gets mad, he's okay. Does he want to answer? He doesn't. He is not. He does not have to answer my question. I'd have fucking preferred a different result. You know, right? Than him saying he doesn't <laughs> like saying you. in a press conference. Like I mean, I was like, <laughs> Jesus. All right, there's a better way to handle this. But but at the end, it's like you know, uh, I, I can't tell you how many fighters get mad at me. And then won't talk. And like mm -hmm. I've had intermediaries reach out and be like, hey man, like what's the issue? And they won't even tell their friend intermediaries who are offered coaches, fighters, blah, blah, blah. Dude, they're incredibly sensitive and which I understand. Uh, and they're incredibly, you know, they they don't suffer shit gladly, which I also understand. But it's like I've got a job to do. You, you think I can watch somebody do the shit that John was doing at the time in his life and just like constantly reflexively defend all of it. It's not possible. I have to, I have a job to do. So if he doesn't like that, that's okay. But, um, you know, what, what am I like? If that causes a, a division, then that causes a division. There's nothing I can do about that. You know? Well, I think fighting is uniquely personal. 
right? It's not like calling it, like saying Bill Buckner's a loser because he let that ball go between his legs. It's a different thing. Like when a fighter loses, it's uh, I, I I almost feel like they put themselves out there more than any other athlete, and they deserve more respect than any other athlete. This is my personal opinion. Obviously, I'm incredibly biased because that's the only sport that I've ever covered. Right. Right. But I, I get why they feel the way they feel. I get it. And I try to be as respectful as possible while still being accurate. And that's a fine line to draw. You know, but I'm an employee of the UFC. You're not. You know, and one of the things that I would love to get into with you, you said that you what was it the way you phrased it that they're uniquely disadvantaged yeah. within the power structure of MMA. Yeah, there's what? no way to I don't I don't think you can like if your job is to cover the sport, right? Your job mm-hmm. is different. Your job is to commentate for UFC and then do your podcast and um you know, my position I come to it a little bit differently, right? So for me, if you're looking at the world and your job is to the best approximation that you can tell the truth about it, how do you tell the truth about the world? and say that the fighters um, don't have every power structure pushing against them, because they basically do. That doesn't mean they don't act petulantly at times, that doesn't mean they don't bring shit on themselves at times, or that everything they do is above reproach, that's not what I'm here to say, but let's let's go through it here a little bit. Um, In the case of uh, fighter pay, the debate is over. It is settled, there is no argument anymore, we now have court documents to this effect, they get paid roughly 18 to 20% by the UFC year over year as a more or less fixed position. Now, now as the UFC makes more money, 20%, the percentage might stay fixed, but the amount of money can go up. So money is going up, but it's relative. It's all a, f- a function of this uh, continued amount, 20%. Okay, that doesn't seem to me quite equitable. That's a personal opinion, but that's the way I look at it. Then you want to look at their management. There are no barriers to entry for management. I cannot tell you half of these guys. Listen, some of these guys I interact with, they're great. I disagree with them at times. I agree with them at times. I think they really have the fighter's best interest at heart. But there's a lot of them there that are fucking snakes. That's just the way that it goes. And they are uh, not always acting in their uh, client's best interest. And I don't think the fighters are necessarily the best stewards of understanding what's in their rights and interests. It's my personal opinion. Uh, but anti-doping to me is to me, a I wouldn't call it a fraud, but I think it's a tragic mistake in the way that we are doing it how so well in the case of the fighters they had no say it was forced upon them all right here's another thing where it's like to what extent do the fighters support it there could be high support for it but we don't know because it's a compulsory uh demand that they have to give into it that's the first thing there's many issues that i have with it right we can get into that i have have, but let me let you go through your list and then we'll come back because there's a bunch so then it goes to the sponsors and then they take away all of them which is the ufc's right by the way it totally is their right but it again to me i never understood it from just a pragmatic standpoint because this was a way to offset complaints about fighter pay you know because you have now uh venom at the time or you know name any brand or whatever the fuck that was sponsored ryu you know whatever brand every brand that's coming on was a way to offset fighter pay so they are restricted in and by the way the media i think doesn't treat them fairly in the sense that and i'm a member of the mma media and i have been for almost 15 years they you are you are expected to be either friend or foe with them and i don't want to be either you know i want to be friendly i want to be professional I don't want to be like your buddy because it causes all kinds of problems down the road when shit starts to go south for you. And by the way, it will. You know, every fighter who's young thinks that they're going to live like off these wins forever. And it's like, dude, I've I've been around long enough to see the downside. It's coming for you, you know. 
So you begin to add up all of these factors and you can say, well, what is the, what is the moment we can create to fix all of this? That is the responsibility of the fighters. It used to be the case that you can make an argument that MMA media was not covering enough of these issues with full throatedness. That is no longer the case. They have aired out all of this. They have covered this uh, uh, multi-billion dollar lawsuit that is happening. They have covered... What is which multi-billion dollar lawsuit? Oh, there's a, there's a storm a-coming, Joe Rogan. So there is a uh, the Nate Quarry, um, uh, Kyle Kingsbury, uh, Kung Lee lawsuit, and many others as well. They are basically suing the UFC for, uh, to, to put it in layman's terms, the, the, the bad effects of Monopoly. And they believe they're entitled to... Uh, compensation and other forms of uh, change in the industry as a consequence. We are going to get a result, I think, on the 19th of this month from the judge in the case that if he allows it to go forward, he will have to certify them as a class. Um, and all indications are he's going to, which means that trial will proceed. Now, it still has a long way to go, but that is a major institutional hurdle on behalf of the plaintiffs. I'm not hearing anything about this. <laughs> because MMA media... <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Are you talking about this? Oh, like a fucking yeah. parrot. Here it goes. John Fitch is involved. Yeah, this is well. it got launched in 2014. Uh, let me can I shout out a couple of people yeah, who are sure. tremendous reporters in this regard? Sure. There's a guy by the name of John Nash. He goes by the name of uh you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Hey Not the Face. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand it. He has done absolutely fantastic work and is a professor at Pepperdine. Uh and he's, he's an economist, he's a professional economist who is a uh, he teaches uh, economics there. Uh, he goes by the name of at MMA Analytics, but his name is, um, God, I'm blanking now because I've been drinking, but uh, I've had him on my show a million times. These two guys and also um, um, MMA Payout has done a good job of covering this. Uh, Josh Gross to an extent. I know you know Josh. Josh yeah. has done some good work for The Athletic, although he's no longer with them. But um, these are basically the only folks really talking about it. No one else is really doing it. It, it, it. It's hard to focus on the lawsuit because if the judge denies them class certification or it gets thrown out at any moment, then the whole thing goes away. And it's a long-term projection. Like, we're not in anywhere close to any kind of end on this for the next five years what or is, something. What is the argument? What is um... Basically that the UFC is not a monopoly, it's a monopsony, which instead of sort of one um, uh, seller, it's one buyer. It's, it's a different kind of monopoly, and that it has resulted in depressed wages, it's resulted in unfair contracts, it's resulted in any number of harms related to the fighter and their ability to negotiate. I mean, most of that is not arguable, right? You cannot argue that the UFC and the fighter go to contract negotiations with equal amounts of leverage. That is not true. Now, what the solution to that is, is very debatable. How do you want to fix that? What kind of policy prescriptions do you want to pass? Do you want to pass the Ali Act and extend it to MMA? There are some problems with that as well. Let's explain the Ali Act to people. Uh, the Ali Act is an act that exists in boxing. It currently is a thing. It was passed, I think, by John McCain. I want to say around 2000 or so. I might be getting the date wrong. But basically, the idea behind the Ali Act is that it provides a series of protections for the boxer against the promoter and or the industry in the form of disclosures. So, for example, by virtue of the Ali Act, they have to disclose to the fighter, to the boxer, like Teofimo Lopez just won, right? Top rank has to disclose to him who's making what, margins on the costs, um, um, sales on pay-per-view, or it was on, on TV. But, you know, it's to the extent that it's relevant. So they have to disclose that kind of thing. Um, the Ali Act prevents any promoter from having the title. So it's a strike force title. It's a Bellator title. It's a UFC title. You can have a problem with the alphabet soup, but that really is the crux of the issue is to mm. the extent that the promoter holds the title, they hold everything. 
That is a weird issue, right? right? And it is with Bellator, with Strike Force. It was. It is with One FC, with right. all these organizations. It's like it's the it's a mix between the boxing and pro wrestling model to an mm -hmm. extent. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not I'm not suggesting that the Ali Act is the cure to everything. But, but yeah, see, because the other thing is like promoters and then the sanctioning body. Like then the fighters are paying the sanctioning body, right. and they're paying the promoter, and the sanctioning bodies are. You know they're trying to get mandatories that nobody gives a fuck about, and if you don't, you know what I mean. And then like, even WBA, like I've been, I've been, you know, I, I, I covered boxing for a long time, and then I stopped because of the nature of my job changed, and I didn't have the opportunity to really. Uh, I was just so engrossed in the MMA world, I, I missed a lot of time, and um, I, I remember I was catching up with my co-host for the show I do on Showtime Morning Combat, and my co-host was like, I was like, okay, so this guy has the WBA regular title, and then this one has the WBA franchise title and then this one has the wba latino title like what's the difference he's like do you see what mike tyson and roy jones jr are fighting for yeah like the old man belt or some shit it's some crazy thing but it has black lives matter on the belt <laughs> like they're just trying to capitalize on this moment <sighs> yeah, and no. I, I forget what it's called i forget but it's some bizarre name for the belt but both of those fighters are very upset that they're making them fight two minute rounds but this we're going to get off and yeah. didn't we anyway, can get to that. Long, long story long story short is I don't I'm not presenting to you the Ali that I'm a huge fan of it but I think it's the cure all. Right. Basically my view on what would be more equitable. This is my personal view and okay. economists will debate this. My view is that they should be there should be a union and or a trade association depending on how you want to view it. Um, there there's some debate about that as well and that that will negotiate on behalf of the fighters interests with some additional leverage by virtue of law. The UFC at that point if they're an actual union the UFC has a legal obligation to negotiate on their behalf. And so I can, as media, stop fucking talking about how I think the Reebok deal is unfair or the rankings are unfair or pay is unfair. At that point, it becomes the union's responsibility. And, to, and then you can just go into that. Does the NBA have a deal with like a particular sneaker brand? Or Forgive me, my ignorance. I don't believe so. I believe you're allowed to through... But the, the collective bargaining agreement through the NBA uh, certifies all of this. You are allowed to have your own endorsement. The teams might have some kind of individual sponsor, but if you're a LeBron, you can wear whatever the fuck you want. But that's also if you're Conor McGregor, you can negotiate in any way you want as well. Right. There are like, some carve-outs. When, when there's superstars. But, you know, but here's, the, the key is this. It's like, um, I don't... People think that if there's a union, the fighters are going to get 50% of everything, which they would not. It's not true. There's enough. The way that. What do they get in boxing? Uh, boxing purses are on average through the range of things. And again, John Nash has looked at this through the regional circuit. Basically, if you look at the two curves, there is a moment in time in the curve where boxing is less than the MMA fighters. It's that middle class. But before that and then after that, it's all boxing pays higher. Well, for sure, when you get to guys like Floyd Mayweather, who's yeah, the highest paid boxer of all point. time. Yeah. But there's no one that's really commensurate other than Connor in MMA like Floyd and really not commensurate because Connor's lost. Right, but let me give you a better example. Two guys who are roughly similar positions in their division, actually from the same area. Okay. Regis Progre just fought Juan Geraldez um, on Showtime. He was the number one guy at 140. He's probably number two now, right? Josh Taylor's probably number one. You got Dustin Poirier. He's number two-ish or mm -hmm. close in his division. Just If you look at the Google uh, analytics, Dustin Poirier is eminently more popular than Regis Progray. Like, it's not even close, okay? He's four or five times to one in terms of how people are interested in what he is doing and, and looking at for him. Regis Progray makes, you know, seven or eight times what Dustin Poirier makes. Really? So you have two people at roughly commensurate. Seven or eight times. I mean, I think he made, I have to look at his last, I don't know what he made for the Geraldes fight. Before the fight where he was trying to fight Josh Taylor, it was orders of magnitude different. I think he, it was 400,000 versus a couple of million or more. 
right? Significantly mm. different. So um, you can make an argument that there are sections of the boxing world that don't take care of the middle class as well as the UFC, and that is very, very true. Again, I'm not here to make paint UFC as criminals. The UFC is a business. They're going to run it like a business. And the only way to fix this is for the fighters to decide they want to do something about it. That is it. Media, there's no cavalry coming. The, the, the fighters have it's to decide. It's so hard for fighters to do right. that because another fighter will come in and say, I'll take that fight. Right. And then, then you have no, yeah. Hence the lawsuit being a bit of a game changer because it could, again, this is very much speculating. It could change the procedure for how this goes forward. It could result, there's a, there's a couple of outcomes where it could result in um, a union or a trade association and then that sort of fixes the problem. Yeah, there's, it's interesting, right? There's fighters that get to a position where they are, you know, world class, where they're challenging for a, for a title, and they're, they're really they they never quite make enough money where you feel like it was worth it. Right. Is there's like sometimes you read some of the uh, statistics, you read the fighter payouts, and you go. Right. And here's the thing. It's like you always hear these stories. And Bellator, by the way, if you're asking what percentage they pay out, it's mid forties. Mid forties to what to to their um, so that, to their, to that's their, what they pay right, which so, you could say is like you know who pays more UFC or Bellator, less. but they make a lot less. So the, yeah. and, and you can keep your sponsors there. I don't know how much that matters, but it matters in some cases, right? I'm it sure can. it matters with like Michael Venom Page, really popular right. guys, right? D Douglas Lima, Douglas Lima, right? Yeah, really um, popular guys. I'm sure it's, but it's th valuable. This is what I try to explain to people. It's like there used to be this debate because you hear these fighters come out and be like, you know, I got this bonus one time and it wasn't expected and it was huge. And it's like, listen, man. I've, if you've ever been broke and someone came in with a lifeline, <laughs> it is, I mean, you can't get anything but teared up thinking about it, especially right. if you have kids mm -hmm. and now you can have a Christmas with your kids. I take what the gesture of money to a person who needs it, I take it very seriously. I mean that, I mean that absolutely sincerely. I really do. But the debate is over. It is not, there is no more debate about fighter pay. We have court documents year over year over year with express intent written in language by UFC to say we want to keep it at roughly 20%. And they include the fighter expense of USADA as fighter compensation. That's called fighter compensation. So it's really a little bit closer to 18 or 19. What? USADA is... is fighter compensation. I'm not, I, I wish I was making that up. I'm not making that up. Yes. Oh, that's unfortunate. So here's my but point. He, please go ahead. Anyway, go ahead. I've been rambling. No, I apologize. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you brought this. That's okay. That's uh, okay. Keep going. The last thing I would say is I, I appreciate the stories of locker room bonuses mm -hmm. and helping people out at Christmas. But the fundamental question is, do you, if you're a fighter, do you get half of the UFC's money from ESPN? Do you get – what kind of cut do you get from pay-per-view? And how much leverage do you have to negotiate that? That is all that matters anymore, and we know what the documents say. The UFC is obviously a different kind of an organization than, say, boxing, where you just have a promoter, and the promoter promotes the fights they promote, and they don't have obligations to 500 fighters they have on the roster. There's obviously a much higher overhead for the UFC. The UFC runs multiple performance centers all over the world. The UFC uh, has this promotion machine built into it, right, which is very expensive. The UFC has a tremendous staff, which they've kept employed even during the pandemic. Right. They never let anybody go, which to me is very admirable. I feel what you're saying. I have always been the person, like, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm a, an employee, a long-term, started for the UFC in 1997, was a different organization. <laughs> I'm pre-Zufa, right? Yeah. But they, they do, they have something that doesn't exist anywhere else where you can go through 
the system, become a champion, and be a multi-multi-millionaire. Sure. That's not really available anywhere else. Here's the thing. I'm not advocating for a world where we make UFC suffer. The, 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 the UFC suffering is bad for all of us. It's bad for... I'd lose my livelihood. Why would I want that? That's right. bad for me. You just want the fighters to get a bigger piece of the pie. It's just when it's all over, man. You know, And you yeah. see them at the end there, and mm-hmm. they got shit to show for it. And right. part of that's their, by the way, to be clear, if not part of it, a huge portion of it is their own fault. Agreed. There's no doubt about it. Listen, it bothers me more than anything in the sport, watching guys at the, at the end, end with nothing. It's and like, then, and then you see what they lost it on. They got mm-hmm. scammed. Yep, yep. Or they bought a car and, or, you know, some you know, $700,000 Maybach or whatever. And you're like, holy fuck, how did we get here? How yeah. did we get here? But I'm just saying on some level, it's like with USADA, which we kind of got lost track on, like when I get up and I think about, before I hit publish or whatever, like, what do I owe these people? What do I owe the fighters? What do I owe UFC? What do I owe the public? What do I owe? Right? And I owe it to the fighters to say there is a situation where you could be making more. I do not think it would be 50%. Because to get that 50 What do you think the numbers... What's the right number? I think 30? probably around 35. 35. 35 seems like the sweet spot. Because to get the 50, Joe, you have to have a situation where like you play for... Um, pick a, uh, Major League Baseball. You play for the Royals, and they don't want you, but the Oakland Athletics might want you, or blah, blah, blah. And so teams are competing. That is what gets you to 50, right? But if you have just one promoter and you have one union, that mechanism to drive pay doesn't exist. What might exist is enough at initial CBA negotiations, just push it a little bit higher. Do you factor in all that overhead? Do you factor in all the employees? Do you factor in the machine that's behind the UFC that doesn't exist in boxing? Right. Sort of, it's, hard to, it's hard to parse that because... You have to ask yourself, to what extent is that kind of... It's vertical integration, right? They want their own hotel, which they're building. They want their own Apex facility, which they have. They want their own broadcast. They want their own... They have UFC Fight Pass. Like, if ESPN went away, UFC just still puts on fights. They have their own... They're going to have their own hotel. They have their own facility. They have their own broadcast network with, with Fight Pass, whatever. They have this total... Not total, but they have near vertical integration across the industry. And so, in many ways, that is a great way to keep fights going. But it's like... You hear Eddie Hearn, who runs Matchroom Boxing, and he always sort of laments. He's like, there's got to be a better model that, you know, the UFC model really has figured it out. But you don't get that (laughs) if the fighters have rights. You don't get that. You don't get a model where you can have all this extra stuff if the fighters get um, a significantly greater share. So my answer to that would be, um, I don't know how it will all shake out. And I don't know that I have the right answer. I would like a union to decide this. I would like a trade association to decide this. Not me. This is not me deciding it. But I just, you know, getting to a place where it's like, oh, we can just keep fights going. You do that because you have the leverage to keep it going. When you don't, it's significantly harder. Yeah. Um, have you talked to someone who has parsed out the numbers, has looked at the expenses, like what it costs yeah. to run the UFC? Sure. And yeah. John, John Nash has done this extensively. And what is... Through all the court documents. He'd be better to talk about the overhead and okay. how significantly that impacts. I'd be speaking a little bit out of turn. But this, um, this is a significant factor because it doesn't really exist in boxing in relationship to promoters. They don't really have the staff or right. the promotion machine. They don't have the, the amount of overhead. And you have to ask, ask yourself a question. Like in defense of the UFC, they're going to have this, you know, again, let's imagine the pandemic doesn't exist for a moment. They're going to they either have or it's already opened the uh, institute in China. Right. Right. So they are they are forcing that market to begin to recruit and develop and recruit and develop. And I don't know if it'll be successful, but no one in boxing has that kind of hand in the pot to begin to make things happen in the way that UFC could for the betterment of MMA. That's a real thing I give them absolute credit for. It's just you have to decide what you want. Do do you want an institute in Shanghai 
or do you want Diego Sanchez to have been paid what he should have been paid? Like, there's mm. a question you have to ask yourself there a little yeah. bit. Um, I want to get to Diego, and I want to get to Anderson, and I want to get to a bunch of other fighters as well. Um, the, the argument, if I was uh, arguing on behalf of the UFC, which, of course... I'm so not, I don't mean to put you on the spot no, for no, it. No, I'm again, happy not, to be put on the spot. Not, I'm, not, I'm never anti-UFC. I just I think about the fighters. What do I owe them? Listen, man. I owe them I, the truth. I'm on your team okay. when it comes to fighter pay. Like I don't, I don't dictate it. I don't. I'm not an accountant. I'm not the guy who gets to decide what the checks are. But I think they should be paid as much as they can be paid. I mean, I, I think it's the fucking hardest job outside of being a cop or a soldier, or a firefighter, or a first responder, or, or a fucking surgeon in the emergency room. It's one of the hardest goddamn jobs on the planet That's Earth. Crazy. I mean, I don't want to quantify whose job is tougher, but it's to me. I am obviously a massive fan. And uh, it means everything to me that these guys make as much as they can. But it also, the UFC has to be profitable. In order to be sold to someone like WME, it has to be valuable. In order for it to be valuable, it has to be profitable. In order for it to be something that they can promote and get behind and make it as big as they've made it, there has to be some sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for these people. When you're, you're dealing with business folks like, you know, like the WME, I mean, these are big-time players in the entertainment business. For them to come along and fork out billions of dollars, literally billions, for the UFC, it has to be a valuable thing. And from that, people have clearly profited. From that, stars have been born. And when it gets, when you get to a guy who's a superstar, like a Conor McGregor or a Khabib Nurmagomedov or uh, uh, Israel Adesanya or John Jones, they're going to make a shitload of money. Mm -hmm. The, the argument is, do the guys below them, you know, do the, um, you know, do, do the journeymen, journey women, do they make enough? Raquel Pennington, does well, she make I, enough? I would disagree a little bit, if I, if I may. So let's talk about John Jones for a second. Okay. Right? So, again, not my best friend, but I take his side on this one, which is, do you remember when John was beefing with UFC about going to heavyweight? Yes. And he was like, I'm retired. Yes. Right? Okay. Uh, and he was like, you know, he was asking for Deontay Wilder money. Yeah, he should. So, I agree, but there's no crowds. The problem with the asking for Deontay Wilder money when there's not a stadium, obviously you realize that stadiums bring in a significant amount sure. of revenue. It's a big deal. Right. I mean, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars for a fucking... If you, you're John Jones, you sell out the T-Mobile Arena. That is a fuckload of money. Yeah, but John doesn't see a cut of that. He doesn't see a cut of that, but it makes sense that they pay him more because of that. So here, here's what I would be sympathetic to the argument if... The problem was the song was the same pre-pandemic as it was during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, it was the same thing. This money is outrageous. We don't possibly have it. We couldn't manufacture this if we wanted to. Post or during the pandemic, it's the exact same argument. I'd be more sympathetic to it if the song had changed. But the song was the same. And the other point about here is this. If you want to just talk about the numbers, Deontay Wilder has had, what, one or two pay two pay-per-views in his whole life. The first and second um, Fury fights. Well, first one was about 300,000 or so. Second one was about 850 K and some change. Then the second one's a very good number. But it's like John has been outselling Deontay Wilder on pay-per-view, and this is not an exaggeration, for a decade. For a full decade, he has been logging four, five, six, seven hundred thousand pay-per-view buys. Now, <laughs> has he cost the UFC some money with his variety of you know indiscretions along the way? Maybe. But you're asking who sells more between the two and who has sold more? 
it's not even a contest. Especially cumulative, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's very easy call for Here's the question, though. When Deontay Wilder makes that money, everybody's tuning in just to see Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. The undercard makes a fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction sure. of that. Whereas the undercard of a huge UFC event, you will have four big fights on the card. Then you will have overall 12 fights, Sure, usually, 11 or 12 you have to pay all those fighters. This is what I mean, though. I'm not asking for the guys to get 50. I don't think 50 is realistic for right. the reasons you mentioned. There is a the, what the UFC has done spectacularly well is create a fighter middle class where guys can make six figures a year. Uh, I don't know how many of them, but there's a there's a portion of them where they can make six figures. They at least have some accident insurance, and there's ways to leverage that. And there's a whole lot of them relative to what there is in boxing. That's the sweet spot there. But when you talk about the argument about like who's most underpaid. The people point to the guy who's making 10 and 10 because right. he's a sob story. Right. But if you're asking who has generated the most versus what they were paid, yes, for the reasons you articulated, John shouldn't be getting I don't know, whatever he got for uh, uh, um, Deontay got for the second Fury fight. No, it would be a little bit less than that. But relative to what he got, no, he is Conor McGregor is underpaid relative to what he generates for the company. You think he got 50% of that? I don't think he got 50% of that. I have zero idea. I've never looked into it even for a second. <laughs> but when you get to a point where you're talking about like a world championship fighter, um, at least they have the leverage of people knowing that this is going to sell a shitload of paper. What leverage does Conor have? Let me ask you. It's a good question. He has no. Not has right very now. Right now, I would say he doesn't have a lot of leverage. But post Jose Aldo and then post Eddie Alvarez, I would he say some. he had a lot of leverage. So here's why Conor's in a bit of a problem. One, you may not realize this, but uh, the UFC over the years, they're, they're smart businessmen here. UFC is very sm That's what I mean. A business is going to do what a business is going to do. You can get mad at them for it. I don't get mad at them for it. I mm -hmm. understand they took advantage of – the UFC didn't break any laws. Right. <laughs> they took advantage of what the laws were. They were smart businessmen. I completely understand it. But they're very good now about having contractual revenue. right? So it used to be – for example, the ESPN pay-per-view deal is a very good example of this where you know, you know as well as I do. 2014, John fights Glover. Eh, may sell okay but not great. John fights uh, Cormier, it's going to be much higher numbers. And that's still true to this day because star power sells. But what cut the UFC takes or how much money they can get is a function that's very volatile by virtue of the star power involved. The ESPN deal cuts out a shitload of that. One, so? So, so for a couple of reasons. One, I, I really am ignorant to the US, ESPN deal. So, so there's a couple of different factors. One is to the extent that they meet their total quota, so I think it's like 40-something shows a year, they get $750 million, Okay, It's a shitload of money. But that's contracted. So you cross the finish line. Money's yours, and they're going to they're meet that quite easily this year, and good for them. I'm glad. I w Again, the UFC staying in business and doing well, everybody wins when that's the case, including me. I recognize that. So that's the first one. The second part is what they did with ESPN was they took it away. Like if you have a cable subscription through DirecTV or Comcast, you can't order UFC pay-per-views anymore. You have to go to ESPN+. Plus. The way that works is that ESPN+, Plus or ESPN rather, gives them a flat check for every pay-per-view. My understanding is this is not confirmed, and I hope your audience understands this, so double check it. It's believed to be around what they would get for a 500,000 pay-per-view buy, which is- Where are you getting that from? Again, various reports that we've seen from Sports Business Isn't Journal. Isn't that weird, though? Like, to, just to come out with a number okay, based we, on various reports? Have you ever asked the UFC to substantiate that? I asked the guy who wrote the article. Yeah? What yeah. did he say? Again, it's a little bit off the record, but there's a reasonable reason to believe it. Um, again, or double check it or don't. I'm just going to give you what I know. Okay. Yeah, but that seems like a weird one. I mean, I'm with you on all this, but that's a weird one to, if you don't have the fact, 
if I have not seen the documents myself, yeah. well, here's what I can say for certain. They get a, a stipend for each individual pay-per-view. And then on top of that, if it sells past a certain point, they get a cut of every, they get a percentage of everyone past a certain threshold. The Khabib fight sold 500? Is that what it sold? I think domestically plus domestically. an additional amount. Um, Do we know worldwide. what it sold internationally? I think around 150, 200 extra. Okay. Which is a, I mean, that's a huge, seven hundred sell at 2 plus. p.m. and you, right. that's a shitload. That's very, yeah. very good. Anyway, so the point being is what they have done intentionally, again, quite wisely, is they've removed volatility. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a certain amount of, and then through overseas deals with Combache in Brazil or European uh, um, uh, providers, they've got a series of contracted uh, pieces of revenue that take out the volatility provided they can meet the overall uh, inventory of content that they have to meet. This is very, very smart, but what it has done is it has reduced the amount of leverage that any one individual fighter may have. Plus, Connor pulls out and they go, okay, Jorge, you're on deck. And Jorge has just fucking exploded to a megastar, and he's all too willing to, to play ball until he, you know, he had a, his own moment. But you know, they, they have a ton of different resources to go to so that you, you fighters think, oh, I'll just retire. I'll just retire, and that'll that, that'll show them. It's not going to show them shit. Well, the John Jones thing um, wasn't he contractually obligated to fight? Like he he had a contract for X amount of money per fight, and he wanted substantially more to fight at heavyweight because he said the risk was higher, and that was where the negotiation broke down. If yeah, but I'm why correct. is that? Why is that crazy? That, that that's what would any other person in any other combative sport, or certainly in boxing, what you would get? You would get higher paydays. For a move up in weight, uh, you would um, if there was a, a fight there that would generate substantial revenue. You know, I think John moving up to heavyweight, you could make the look. What was how how well did Stipe versus uh, DC do the second fight? I don't the know. Third fight, rather. I don't know. You know that 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 would be the argument whether Stipe is a big enough challenge for John to uh, to generate X amount of pay per view buys, which would. Which would justify the but revenue. This is, but this is my point, Joe. It's like I'm, I see your point, though. It makes sense. I'm just trying there to say. It is. I don't. I don't. You know, Six hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand. Where's it? Where do you see that? Five hundred thousand. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so again, five hundred thousand for take, three. Take these numbers with a little bit of grain. So it's from Topology, which is a great site. But um, these are these are not double checked to some degree. Well, actually, you know what? Some of them might be. Uh, but the point being is this, Joe. It's like what what is John Jones entitled to? Here's what I would like it to be. I would like it to be a case where I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to let the union figure it out. Like you all, right. y'all fucking figure this out Probably and let it let it go. I feel you on this union thing. I, I understand the position, and like I said, I'm I'm always for fighters getting paid more money. But it just I don't know if that would ever work. It will work. You think it will work? Yeah, it definitely. You think will it's work. gonna work? Yes. Really? So you think the future is a union? How we get there, I don't know. Now that mm. is, I couldn't. I'm with you. It's like their reluctance, because I know for a long time. You know, privately, fighters would be like to me. They'd be like, "Y'all never talk about this shit. You'll never talk about it." And I was like, "You know, what? it's a fair point. We never talk about it." And then we spent the last seven, eight years talking about it, and it hasn't moved the needle. And so it's like, I don't think it's up to me. To, uh, I don't think we can solve this problem. You know, it's mm-hmm. really if you guys want it to be better, uh, it's up to you. Because again, UFC is going to do what they are allowed to do, right. and they're just going to keep doing it. So, like for example, we had this whole issue with Leon Edwards. He got removed from the rankings. Uh-huh. And, and everyone yeah. was like, fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone. I'm like, dude, <laughs> what do you want me to say, man? It's their rankings. Yeah. They're going to do what they're going to do. Like either. Well, the Leon Edwards one was weird because like, is there anyone that gets less respect for being that good than Leon Edwards? 
Like, no one is calling out Leon Edwards. No one is asking to fight Leon Edwards. Right. Like, Leon Edwards is a top five guy, right? Is easy. He, easy top five. He's world fucking class. He's supposed to be fighting Jorge Masvidal, right? After that scrap that they had uh, backstage where Masvidal sucker punched him. <laughs> Three piece in the soda. <laughs> That's supposed to be a fight that gets made, right? Yeah. And everyone knows, I mean, you, you look at how good he is. Beats Donald Cerrone, you know, uh, beats uh, Rafael Dos Anjos. I mean, he's a world-class fighter. And Gunnar Nelson. Don't but forget Dustin, Gunnar Nelson. Yeah, don't forget Gunnar Nelson. One of the best jiu-jitsu guys in the division. You don't hear his name being brought up. It's kind of crazy. Like, <sighs> for whatever reason, he's fallen into this kind of, like, weird spot where he's really good, but he doesn't get the attention that I feel he bad. I feel bad for him. Oh, Leon Edwards. Woo! Yeah, Kamzat Chemaev. Chemaev. That's that's a big step up for Chamayev. Yeah. That is a big step up. You know up. what's funny is, uh, did you watch the card? Fuck, not the last one. Maybe two cards ago. They had this dude from Kazakhstan. You know you know people, I don't care where you're from, Tennessee or Kazakhstan, if, uh, if you wear dead animals on your head, shit, dude, you mean business, right? <laughs> this dude, uh, he beat Cowboy Oliveira. Remember that guy? Yes, yes. Uh, Rachmanov, I think, is his last name. Yes. And... Uh, and uh, he guillotined, guillotined him. him. Yeah, it's like that dude guillotined uh, Cowboy Oliveira, who is better than anyone Chemayev has fought. And there's no fucking buzz about the guy. Part of it is for Leon Edwards is that, and here's the other part: like he beat good guys, he beat them like on fight pass events or like you know cards that just didn't have a ton of buzz on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has good management. He's with Paradigm, which is a big company. But up until recently, he hasn't done a lot of like vocalization. About like he hasn't done, he did he like when was the last time he did like a big interview with a big I don't outlet? know man but I hate that that's a factor I hate that fighters right. have to talk shit it drives me crazy not even that he just doesn't do a lot of talking here he is there he Shavkat is. R- Rachmanov look yeah. at this fucking animal oh he's very very good Bop. very good yeah and Fuck. Cowboy Oliveira you know is he the best fighter in the world no but he's not a chump by any stretch of the match. Look and, at that. And this guy has a fucking nasty guillotine, yeah, too. squeeze. Yeah. And then he goes good. and puts on dead animals on his head, bro. Look at him. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's probably directly related to Genghis Khan. <laughs> look at him. Like, that's yeah. Genghis Khan genes. Here's what really got Leon. You know, everyone took an L with the pandemic one way or the other. Mm-hmm. He took a major L. Sure, being in Europe, being well, in the he, UK. Well, remember, so the UFC had that show, The I think it was a Sao Paulo show, after every sport was like, we're done, they went down to Sao Paulo, and then they were going to follow it up in London, and that's when the world began closing airports and everything mm-hmm. else. And here was the key, man. He was supposed to fight Tyron Woodley mm-hmm. at that fight. That was going to be the main event for UFC London. And BT Sport, shouts to BT Sport, because they do an unbelievable job with promotional fighter packages. They did one talking about Leon's story, being bullied. I think uh, his parents, I, I could be getting this wrong, but I believe they are from... They're Jamaican by uh, heritage or his uh, his uh, his uh, family lineage, whatever it was. They had the story about him growing up, you know, uh, tough situation. It was all um, illustrated like a cartoon, and how he had arrived at this position. That was his big breakout moment, and I think he definitely would have beaten Tyron, especially the current condition that Tyron is in as a fighter. And he lost all of it. This there is it. it. Is, yeah. Look at this. I mean, the BT Sport does such an incredible job. Look at this thing. Oh wow. Yes, I was right. He's from Jamaica. I mean, they, they, they show the story, and you feel like all at once, I don't know who Leon Edwards is, but I want to know more. I understand his story. There's a lot of Jamaican immigrants, uh, certainly in the UK, and, you know, growing up hard scrabble and getting fucked up and being in fights and shit, and then finally arriving at this moment. Look at this shit, Joe. Isn't oh, that incredible? Amazing. 
That's a great piece. And he lost he lost the momentum from all of this. Well, you know, the good news is he's still in his prime, and once all this shit blows over, there's still a lot of big fights to be had at 170, and there's also the opportunity that comes with guys inevitably getting injured and f fights falling out. And the Chamaya fight, if you can shut down the hype train, that will put him right in the driver's seat. Chamayev. I mean, it's really quick that this guy has all the hype on him. And the Mearshart fight just fucking put a candle on that cake, didn't it? You ever watch the uh, re regional tape on this kid? Chimaev? Yeah. Oh, he's a monster. There was this dude, I uh, I was like, because people were like, he's just like Khabib. And I'm like, let me see he's how, fucking how true striking that is. is a different level. Exactly. So there was this dude he fought in, he's, he made most of his fights in Brave, which is the, uh, the promotion out of Bahrain. And um, he fought this dude who was a world champion in Sambo. No, 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 bitch at all. Like this guy is all dude, and uh, Chimaev couldn't take him down. Like for a full round, could not take this guy down. And then said, "You know what? Fuck it. Let's strike." And punched his fucking lights out. Like the mirror shot. Punch. He has one punch KO power. Yeah, that mirror shot fight, and also at one eighty five. Yeah, he's his a seventy. Carries, yeah. That's the crazy thing. He's a one seventy fighter. Yeah, I mean at one seventy, he's world class. I think. I mean, I'm really interested to find out. Well, we'll see. We'll see with Leon Edwards. I might uh, spoke too soon. We're going to find out. Uh, it's a very, very intriguing this is, fight. This is the guy I was telling you about. This guy he's knocking out is not a chump at all. He is very, very good. Fakes low, boom. Oh, man. Yeah, he's got legit power. Was this a 170 fight? I when the guy's doing the, the one arm frozen up in the air or a leg, anytime yeah. there's something frozen in the air, you know, it's a bad my, knockout. My, uh, my go-to on this is um, what we call it testifying in church. <laughs> when they throw the hands up, yeah. when they come back and the head fucking yeah. slams, like the testifying at church. The head banging off the ground is always scary. You see that Muay Thai ref who caught the head? Yes. Isn't that amazing? What a humanitarian. Yeah. Fuck Mother Teresa, this guy. He's probably a fighter. That's probably why. Yeah. He's probably a former fighter. But just the himself. agility and wherewithal to like catch the head. When you end. talk about guys that have been KO'd, who has been KO'd more than Alistair Overeem but shows less results, like less effects of it? I was thinking about that. Um, amazing. You mean like full on out? Well, he's been flatlined multiple times. He's been KO'd in Pride. He's been KO'd in K1. He's been KO'd like in multiple organizations. You look, but you look at him, and he seems fine. Yeah, I talked to him at UFC DC, which was in what no about a year ago. Seems lucid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, how? Even Vanderlei Silva is like sort starting to be the complaining about speak headaches thing. You know? Portuguese, but the people that I do fr that I'm friends with that do speak it say it's a say show. His the way he communicates in Portuguese is all fucked up now. Uh, sorry to hear that. Listen, this is how it is. You know, we know m multiple fighters that that slur their words and don't sound like they used to sound. Overeem and Bisping, Michael Bisping. I don't think he's been KO'd as many times, but certainly he's had a number of setbacks. Yeah. Like you got one-armed guillotine against Luke Rockhold, and the Dan Henderson knockout's pretty bad, and whatever. Like to me, the Dan Henderson knockout was clearly the worst. Really, yeah. really bad. Uh, but with Michael, but both those guys have an incredible resolve. In fact, you know Michael Bisping. I always this is like my sort of like a standard Michael Bisping point is that you know round three he fought um, Anderson. Oh, and he got yes. Oh yeah. And then if you look at the numbers, the best round Bisping had in any round in that fight was the next round. Oh, he's a fucking animal. It's just so, First of all, he got KO'd because he was pointing that he lost his mouthpiece. <laughs> he was trying to get the judge to give him his fucking mouthpiece. Right. And he let his guard down, and Anderson hit him with a flying knee. Right. Caught him right on the chin, and, and it looked like the fight was over. Anderson walked away like the fight was over and could have ended the fight, but thought the referee was going to step in and, and stop it. Didn't. I think it was Herb Dean, I believe. I might be wrong. I think that's right. Um, 
gold standard, Herb Dean. You know, now that John McCarthy's not refereeing, that's the gold standard. So Anderson walks away, and Bisping, like, you got to put that motherfucker away. Like, there's no quitting that dude. <laughs> Zero quitting that guy. I don't think folks understand. To get, when you, if you lose enough at something, and not that they've lost a tremendous amount. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer and a champion. Yeah. But I'm just saying, at the elite level, when you lose yep, like Herb that, Dean. There it, is. It, it is a psychological barrier to overcome it. Yeah. You know, it's not, people think it's all, oh, we just get back up and, but listen, we're, we're, ta- we're this is small potatoes. How about the fact that he fought most of the last half of his career with one eye? It's just shocking. That's it's what's com- insane. It's completely shocking. I mean, and, he kind of faked his fucking eye tests. Yeah, and another part is like, what would you say is like his ace in the hole as a skill? This is just Ca- tough. Just his tough. mind. He had, he had good everything. Yeah, but like he wasn't like Demi and Maya or whatever. He just had a relelentless fuck you in yeah. your face ability. Just tough as fuck. Uh, Doesn't and get any tougher. I've said it. Make up here, mm-hmm. bulletproof. Totally bulletproof. 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 You got to beat him. You know he doesn't beat himself. I mean the knockout of Luke Rockhold is goddamn sensational. I remember being there for that and like seeing the the joy on his face to finally achieved what seemed a little like, surprise. Yeah. Oh yeah, a little surprise on that right at first. Yeah. He had that smile like. Remember he looked around yeah, like this? Like, like holy fuck, yeah. I'm the champ. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. And the fact that he KO'd Rockhold with that beautiful left over the top like that, and that him and Jason Perillo saw that as a flaw in Rockhold's defense. But I mean, I, I think it, I mean that was an amazing performance. Clearly the performance of his life because it won him the title. But I say you go to the Kung Lee fight. The Kung Lee fight, he beat the fucking brakes <laughs> off of Kung Lee. And that was when Kong Lee was Kong Lee, and Kong yeah. Lee was like a scary guy. He had these wild Taekwondo kicks, would throw spinning back kicks and wheel kicks, and you know was had a dangerous style, hard to figure out. And Michael Bisping just beat the fuck out of him at in, the end of the fight. In retrospect, I'm a little less surprised by that, by virtue of the Scott Smith fights that he had in Strike Force, Kong Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, but Kong Lee in that fight also didn't he test test positive? Oh, I mean, I think he was like because he looked super roof saucy. Oh, he, he was fucking shredded. Yeah, yeah, he had a beautiful six pack. And then Bisping was like, "What the fuck is going on here?" Yeah, and still, which yeah. by the way, for Bisping is yeah. like extra. Oh yeah, well that know. was the Vitor thing too. Yeah. You, see, you know, when Vitor stopped him, Vitor was on just who knows full yeah. whatever the fuck he was on <laughs> that was when with, for there was a moment for people who don't understand this there was a moment of madness in MMA where you were allowed to take testosterone right and all you had to do was show low testosterone well guess what if you've been doing steroids you show low testosterone just get off the steroids and then your endocrine system's all fucked up so you go to a doctor the doctor blood tests you says yep you have low testosterone you need TRT so testosterone replacement therapy is on the menu you. Right. And then all of a sudden, you go from Vitor Belfort who got front kicked in the face by Anderson Silva, who had, if you go, go pull that up, because it's one of Anderson's most spectacular knockouts. Um, and the first time ever I saw someone get KO'd by a front kick to the face. Because I remember I had a conversation with Eddie Bravo once in my gym where I had like one of those little rubber dummies that looks like a person. Mm-hmm. And he the goes, could you throw a front kick to the face? I was like, yeah, you could, but you'd have to time it perfect. It's really not the best place for it. I'm like, the place for it, meanwhile. You know, front kick. But look at Vitor. Vitor then, you know, he just looked normal. This looked like an athlete. You know, he wasn't particularly shredded, particularly ripped. Now go to Vitor Belfort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what in the fucking holy shit? You go, 2012 was the year he was like super saucy. Go to Vitor Belfort versus uh, Michael Bisping, if you could find that. Because there was a time where they let Vitor take whatever he wanted, and... The problem with that is they did a test once, 
And uh, when they did a test on him, like look at that picture where they're touching gloves. We go, yeah, right that? there. Yeah. I mean, he is just fucking v- v- jacked. <laughs> Vitor Belfort is proof that no one's ever been like, you know what, your traps are too big. Look at that picture. Like, God damn, and that's making weight, right? That's that's when you had to make weight. That wasn't the yeah. uh, unofficial weigh-ins where you yeah. weighed in and rehydrated, and then you got to step on this. You know, and I would say the official weight for Vitor Belfort, 185, but really he'd be 195 plus right. when he would stand in at front least, of the camera. At, at least, at least, yeah. yeah. But look how shredded he was. And that's when he was on testosterone replacement therapy. So Bisping fights him all natural. And, and Vitor, when he was on TRT, is like the best goddamn. If you want to do an ad for TRT, you would have Vitor during the, those dominant years. You, then, you didn't even, to your point, you didn't even have to take uh, steroids to get TRT. You could just have a bad night of sleep. Yeah. yeah bad or, night of sleep. Or eat, by yeah, the way. Yeah. If you just ate like a bunch of shitty food. And they'd be like, eh, go yeah. on the low side of things. And then you you literally allowed to self administer. And this is where it got crazy because Vitor tested one time. And one of the reasons why they stopped the testosterone replacement therapies, they tested him one time when he was in Vegas and he was just off the charts. And they were like, what in the fuck, man? <laughs> And then, you know, they're like... He, he was said, off the charts for the uh, John Jones fight. That's true, too. Super yeah. off the charts. And John was upset with that, yeah. right? Because, well, that was a fight at 205, right? That was a fight that really tested John Jones' mettle. And that's that's a fight where a lot of people forget. John Jones had a fully hyperextended arm bar on him. I mean, his arm was fucked. And most people would have tapped. I mean, that arm was gonzo. To the point where John decided to coach the ultimate fighter because he knew he wasn't going to be able to train for a long time because his arm was so fucked from the Vitor fight. Right. Vitor, in his guard, threw up an arm bar and had it fully hyperextended. And I think Vitor might have let it go or something. I mean, I don't know what happened there. Either John just gutted it out and Vitor got tired, but his arm was fucked. Where if you're watching it, you're cringing because you're waiting for that, like, Frank Mir, um, Tim, uh, Sylvia. Tim Sylvia snap. But that that was actually low on the arm. That was he here, right? Him on the forearm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember that. God damn. But, like, Vitor, I donated to uh, Tim's GoFundMe for that. Did you? Oh, where you get the metal pulled out of the arm fell bad so i gave him some money yeah yeah how crazy is that right world champion the the, the why doesn't the ufc pay for that that seems uh, like i'm not sure what the part rule, of the yeah, medical he tried and i think it's a i i don't know is the answer i don't know mm. so so what they have to do they have to cut them open take out the, the so the, apparently the screws were getting pushed out naturally and he was poor like you could see he'd pour hydrox what's it what's it um um What's the clear like, hydrogen not, peroxide? Hydrogen peroxide, and you'd see all the bubbles and shit from the infection. Oh boy! So he had to, but he, I think he, I think he got like fifteen grand off GoFundMe. Oh, so nice. I think he more or less got the surgery that he needed. Um, but yeah, that's <sighs> from that. Jesus Christ! I know it's like why, why, yeah. why would you fight? <laughs> why would you right. fight for a living? It's so like. Well, how about Frank Mir? You remember when Frank Mir got hit by a car when he was on his motorcycle? Two thousand four. Yeah. He's got screws and plates in his fucking thigh. His, his femur was snapped in half, which is real touch and go. Like, you could lose a leg there easily right. because the blood flow and, uh, like, that that injury is super dangerous. Like, a femur break is really dangerous. I know you have, I know you don't follow um, team sports. Did you follow the case at all, though? Because this got a wider view of things. Uh, Alex Smith, quarterback for the formerly the Washington Redskins. No. Like, okay. So, Alex Smith, um, it was a recent quarterback. It was, I think, a season or two ago. He got tackled. But the way he got tackled was very different. He broke his uh, shin bone, okay, but, but it wasn't a snap like this. Right? They didn't break it like spaghetti. They twi- oh, so this is known as a spiral fracture. Yeah, they twisted it like a sponge, 
And not only that, you can see upper there. I see the upper left uh, right there. That's his leg. He had to get, uh, I think, a dozen. Go to that picture. Oh, well, they held it. They made a whole documentary on this guy, Joe. Look at this. Yeah, J- Jamie told me about him and that he's playing again now, right? Are you a football fan, Jamie? Yeah. Jamie, go to that full yeah. f- full picture, the upper top one, the one right there that you got up there on the right-hand side. No, the one you just had. Well, just before, just before. Yeah, yeah. go, go that to that. F- make that large. Jesus so Christ. So he had to get. Look th- at that. That looks like a dog's chew toy. Okay, ready? He, uh, I thought he wasn't going to walk again, and he got infected, and he almost lost his leg. A couple of weeks ago, he made his return to the NFL. That's insane. Can you believe that? Look at that. Look at that calf. Yeah, 17 or so surgeries, I think, is what he had. Over the course of how long? Uh, a year and a half or two, something <gasps> like that. Look at that picture. Make that picture bigger. That is insane. you got to watch the documentary they made on him, Joe. It is, I mean, again, I love fighters, but there's, there's more profiles in athletic courage than just <gasps> what they do. Ah! Look at that. They had to take muscle and reattach it down low. That's like an American werewolf in London when he starts to change. <laughs> it's like, are you are you teen wolf? <laughs> that's so crazy. And he made his return. Oh my god, that's a oh my god, look how bad that break is. Yeah, again, it wasn't in half, it was a rotating break. <sighs> that's rough. Isn't that crazy? Well, you know, there's only been two UFC leg breaks. Oh my God! Look at that. Show, show the drills. You could show if they got the video. You could see him do the drills. By the way, he made 18 million on his year off. By the way, so you know, nice for him. Yeah, good for him. It's just it's just video. Or, and uh, how did he do when he came back? He sucked. He wasn't very good. But uh, <laughs> and every time he got tackled, you were like, ah, Oh yeah, my God! Fuck. Imagine him and his, and his and dude. He had his little kids there and his wife, and they were like, Yeah. But I was like, Fuck that, dude. I could. I had, I had a hard time watching. He's fine, but he's not very good right now. Is he compromised, like to the point we'll never be the same again? To the full extent of that, I don't know. I mean, they put him on the roster, and he started at because the the initial quarterback they is young and he's not very good. They're gonna get rid of him. Then the backup got a concussion, hmm. so he was third string, and they're like, "You're active." So I, I think we have to go back over all the different things you were you were breaking down because I let you go on this long run about Sorry. the UFC. No, 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 it was, it was excellent. But there was a, a long run on the UFC and uh, all the, the different things that you think are uh, n- disadvantages for fighters. Yeah, well, MMA in general. I don't. Yeah, I don't MMA wanna, in general. I want to make sure I don't blame just UFC now, for all these problems. Th- there's. There's the argument, there's the monopoly argument, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, there's other organizations, right? There is um, the Professional Fighters League, they still call it that. I believe so. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you win the tournament, you win a million dollars. And that's on NBC Sports, right? Uh, ESPN2 uh, and ESPN Plus now. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was on NBC. Mm-hmm. They still, that's good. Good for them. That's yeah. excellent. Um, that's where Justin Gaethje came from back when it was the PFL. No, it wasn't the PFL. It was, it was the, uh, World Series of Fighting? That's right. Um, so you have one FC, which pays a lot of money, and they brought over Mighty Mouse Johnson and Eddie Alvarez and Brandon Vera's over there. I think he's still their heavyweight champion. Cut down to light heavyweight and lost, and just really looked drained. The, to what's his face? I that. forget the uh, the, the all, Malay guy. I all think. Lang Zang. I, I, forget, I don't know how to. <laughs> I say think his that's name. the song you sing at uh, New Year's. <laughs> the guy's a really good fighter. Yeah, I just, he's very I forget good. his. I, I don't know how to say his name. Um, we should sit, find out his name. Find out what is um the guy who just beat Brandon Vera for the light heavyweight crown. Um, Brandon Vera, by the way, at heavyweight looks fucking phenomenal over there, buddy. 
Yeah, they're letting him take all the Mexican he steroids. Looks, yeah, you know what? Good for him. Good, good for him, yeah. I mean, I he's been around a long time. Yeah. And he's fucking jackmified over there at, at, a, at heavyweight. He looked really good and with soccer kicks and all that shit on the ground. Like, uh, Brandon Vera is a threat. I remember him. Um, I saw him at uh, Lloyd Irvin's gym 2005. Say that name. So. Yeah, Ong Le- La... I don't know. I don't fucking know. Ong La... He's Burmese, so you know he's tough as shit. Yeah, he's tough as shit. He's really good. He's uh, and he is a uh, Henry a... Hooft student, right? Oh, is he really? I believe so. I believe he trains with the uh, the artist formerly known as the Black Zillions. Like, what do they call themselves now? So now they're Something Sanford like... MMA because yeah. they got a healthcare sponsor. Oh, interesting. so it was Hard Knocks three sixty five, and now it's uh, Sanford MMA. Yeah, that's an interesting camp, right? Because you got Gilbert Burns and who's a fucking monster, <laughs> and uh, then you got Kamaru Usman, who is now with Trevor Whitman. And, and he realizes that him and Gilbert Burns are going to have to go after it. Right. And that's that's going to be really interesting because yeah. they're longtime training partners. I can't wait for that one. Gilbert Burns is complete. You know what's He's amazing? Complete, uh, do you man. remember the uh, quintet that UFC did? Mm-hmm. I think it was like early in the... The, the grappling tournament. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a five on five. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, it was like Sean O'Malley, Anthony Smith, who were all good grapplers. And then it was like a bunch of... Um, I, forget, I, I forget who they were going against. But every once in a while, you'll see like an MMA guy, and oh, these MMA guys are usually pretty good at this point. Like not not like world class, but like they're very very good. Mm-hmm. And then Gilbert gets down there. Oh yeah. And you're like, oh right, he's one of them. Mm-hmm. He's one of the elite. He's a know. world champion, of course. But I mean, yeah. like he hasn't like I'm sure he's jujitsu has fallen off a little bit relative to what it was when he was just jujitsu. Mm-hmm. But you can tell like some of these guys, you know, he's not like one of these Meow brothers who is you know a gripping heavy kind of leg entanglement strategic kind of guy. Gilbert's athletic as shit. He can yeah. pass. He can go underneath. He's got a good guard. He can wrestle. He can do the whole nine yards. When I know? stand next to him, I have a hard time believing he ever made 155. It's shocking. Like He was really compromised. He's one of those guys that was really compromised at 155 because he's so thick. Like He's walking around well over 200 pounds. I mean, he's thick as fuck. Right. And, you know, and has zero problem competing with guys like Tyron Woodley at 170. Once he's a fucking monster, man. His striking is nasty too. That's what's interesting about Gilbert, is that he is an elite Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, but his striking is fucking world class. That Woodley fight was an eye opener. Oh my god, dude, his striking's terrifying. It's really, really good. Right, and I mean, here's the thing about it. it's like, you know, I mean, can you imagine? It's like, what's your ace in the hole? Like, what's your thing you can go to? If you need it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're a world champion black belt. That's the thing you have if you need it. Because everything else is good enough to win a UFC title. Yeah. That is fucking frightening. Yeah. God. If you don't want to stand with him, he's terrifying yeah. standing. By all I mean, because he, he and he could barrel down on Tyron. Because mm-hmm. it's like I, I mean, maybe he'll fight the takedown if it's there, but right. probably not. Because yeah. on the ground, you know, I mean his ability to sweep or just create space mm-hmm. or threaten you or omoplata or yep. whatever. Yep. Good luck fighting that fucking guy on the ground. Yeah. You know, probably at welterweight. At welterweight, let's, let's think about this. So you have Colby Kamaru, uh, uh, Masvidal. By the way, very underrated ground game for Masvidal. Oh yeah, uh, I'm sure you know that. I'm just saying for the audience's sake. Um, very underrated wrestling. Everything. Yeah, everything. Everything. Uh, but all those guys in the top five, Gilbert is your biggest submission threat by a country mile. Oh, a country mile. I would have really loved to have seen Jorge Masvidal and Kamaru Usman if Jorge had a camp. Because he did not have a camp for that fight and still presented right. some real big problems for Kamaro. Don't you find the ascension of Jorge kind of funny? I love it. I, I went love to. It. Do you remember when he fought Ally Quinta at 155? 
I do. So I was at that fight. It was in Fairfax, Virginia, and I'll never forget. Fight Week was at one of these UFC gyms in uh, somewhere in the suburbs of DC. I don't remember where. I live in city proper, so I had to like, you know, go out to the suburbs. And uh, it was decently attended. It was not a super well attended um, open workout. But it was, you know, it was enough people there. And Al got a huge, you know, whatever. And uh, f- I think it was Frankie. No, it was um, Chad Mendez and Ricardo Lamas in the main event. And uh, Chad was a big alpha male guy at the time, and you know he got a big applause. Jorge came out, and maybe ten people knew who he was. Media, the the Latin media that was there wanted to talk to him, but like most of the media, you know, was kind of like give or take on it. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, do you do y'all not know how fucking good this guy is? And by the way, I thought he won that fight too. And then years later, the crowd did as well. Remember? Yeah. And then I was like, you're gonna fucking boo me. You're gonna fucking boo me. <laughs> Uh, gotta love Al. Al's, Al's hilarious. Al. Uh, but you know, to see later, it's like, it's amazing. It's like you're nothing, you're nothing, you're nothing. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. something. It's well, crazy. you know, the resurrection. You know, he talks about it, how he went on that stupid reality show where they made him live in the jungle for a couple of weeks. Exelton? Yeah, whatever it Exelton. was. And he was like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? And then he had a chance to think about all those fights where he just fell short. And why did he fall short? You know, what did he do? Was he playing it safe? And he decided he's going to start baptizing people, as he puts it. And, man, you talk about a guy who turned a corner and, and changed. I mean, the Ben Askren fight, though, that was it. That was the cherry on top. And yeah. then, of course, the the murking of Nate Diaz. I mean, he beat the fuck out of Nate Diaz. I mean, that was a crazy fight. And they were talking about running that back. I was like, for what? Yeah, I was confused. I was like... Don't forget, it, Darren Till put his lights out, too. Yes, with a beautiful step-forward, left-hook combination. I mean, he's a monster. He's a monster. He's hard for anybody to deal with. And the fact that he stopped Darren Till when Darren Till was this terrifying striker that had just beat down Donald Cerrone. You know, Darren Till was a scary guy. And to see him put him away that way. And, you know, obviously it was after Tyron had beaten him. Uh, but it was still like a stunning, stunning KO. And he's just a fun guy. Like, everything's fun about him. Talk, like, I, like, I had him on the podcast, and I said, the real question is whether or not uh, Ben Askren can get a hold of you. He's like, he can get a hold of these nuts. <laughs> and, like, that's, that's him, you know? I mean, that's him. He's just a real fun dude. He's a fun dude to watch fight. He's a, a fun dude to listen to him talk. He's and been... He, he can do... Uh, he Sorry to cut you off, but, like, uh, Dan Levitard is a big... Mm-hmm. National sports radio guy based out of Miami. So like a couple of Miami guys, a couple of Cuban Americans, and they're on opposite sides politically, very much so. Oh, he's all Trump, right? Yeah, super. And Dan Libertar is very left, but like I, I, they have this camaraderie through heritage and identity and sort of shared experiences. You just can't fake, you know. Mm. Yeah, he's awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan, but I'm a big fan of him skillfully. I think he's a, a really exceptional fighter. He's very clever. He also has a very unusual stance. Like, he stands straight up. Like, he stands like a Muay Thai fighter. And it's one of the reasons why his takedown defense is so good, he's confident that he could stand straight up like that. And his striking is very crisp, very clean. And he's clever. Like, he sets traps. He, you know, he catches you. Like, that fucking Ben Askren thing was goddamn genius. And when you see him prep for it, when you watch the training footage that he did that over, and not only that, he, he prepped for the angle. Right, leaned against the cage, so he like presented this, and then turned a corner, went to the right, and then charged at him, so that Ben Askren would be like, "I'm just gonna grab this guy." Like literally, uh, he he set two different traps: the running at him, and then the turning the corner, and then running at him. And Ben Askren like 
instincts just dove in, and he couldn't help himself. I call it the Jorge Masvidal test. Go through any of his fights pre-till, win or lose, doesn't matter, and watch how many times when you know they're getting the uh, mouthpiece put in and the Vaseline put on at the, at the beginning, watch how many times the commentator says, folks don't understand how good he is. Mm-hmm. Folks don't know how smart he is. This is one of the most well-rounded fighters in all the UFC, and they do it in this kind of way to like almost plead with the audience to understand the fighter as they do. Yeah, that would be me. Yeah. <laughs> I've but, done well, that many Br- times. Brian Stan's done it a million yeah, times. I mean, yeah. The thing is, if you and Brian Stan are doing it and you're not coordinating it, yeah. something is happening here. Well, I remember when he knocked out Eve Edwards with a head kick. When Eve Edwards is one of the best 155-pounders in the world, after Eve Edwards had beaten Josh Thompson, who's another guy who doesn't get nearly the respect that he deserves. The totally. first guy to ever knock out Nate Diaz, right? I mean, Josh Thompson at one point in time was the fucking man, right? And so he knocks out Eve Edwards in Bodog. Remember Bodog? Fight? I have all the DVDs at home. <laughs> I have them all at home. Bodog, for people who don't remember, uh, Calvin Ayers, who's like this big gambling guy, who that there, I think what they were trying to do yeah, here it is. was Bob. boom, God damn, that was beautiful and total finishing. And then instinct. look at this. You and then look at the, look at this. <laughs> he, <really stopped. laughs> he poses like he's a male model. Yeah, um, but they put down a bunch of fights, like good fights. That was where Cain Velasquez made his debut. Um, that was where Matt Lindland fought Fedor. Remember that? Like, but I think their idea was uh, online gambling. They were going to do it, and they were going to be compensated through online gambling. But then that was right when online gambling got shut down in right. the United States, which is really weird. Because I'm like, why are you shutting online gambling down? We can be in person and gambling. Like, what? Why are you deciding where people can gamble? Like, right. what, what is this? And the, the company went under, and I think Calvin Iron is like, I think he's like a fugitive. I think he has to like live in other countries. <laughs> I don't know. I've not I think kept so. up. You might be right. Because Dana and him were going back and forth. And yeah, because Calvin Iron, when he had the Bodog thing, had a big billboard for Bodog fight, but it was him. Like Calvin Iron, like in Vegas, like looking slick with a nice tailored expensive suit. And uh, he was talking shit about Dana White. And Dana White's like, you can't even get into this country. Like, you're a fucking fugitive for the law. If you come into this country, they'll arrest you. Like, I don't remember what it was. But I think it was one of those things where he was doing this online gambling thing. And they were like, this is illegal. And he's like, fuck you, I'll do it in Belize or some shit. Costa Rica, I think. Something like that. I think he lives there now. He has to. I don't think think he can step foot in America. I might be talking out of turn. Please don't sue me. But I think... (laughs) See, see if you can find that. But he's a big he's a big gambling guy. I mean, he's a big online gambling guy. And I think there was some weird shit that went down, which, uh, look, I'm a big fan of personal freedom, and I'm a big fan of people being able to gamble wherever the fuck they want. And I'm not a big fan of people regulating things. like Unless you can prove that someone's getting th- robbed, unless you can prove they're stealing money from people, I think they should be able to gamble. Sure. And I think that was uh, that was one of the things that happened with that Bodog organization. Mm. But... They threw around a lot of money and put together. What is it? I, I thought it was sounded familiar. He got also involved in, a, in cryptocurrency afterwards. Mm. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, that case initially, I think, has been settled, though. The and cryptocurrency then, case? No, no, the initial, uh, the Bodog thing. Oh, so he's allowed to come to America? I don't know about that. Sorry, Calvin. That thing Again, don't sue me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be careful. Well, he put together. I gotta say, he put together some great fucking fights. You, you mentioned was those three: Chael Sonnen fought yeah, there. That's right. Jake that's Ellenberger right. fought that's there. Right. Yep. Tons of good guys fought yeah. at the Bodog. Yeah, and they did on, on the, the beach. beach with hot chicks. Who was her name? Uh, you know who fought there was the brother and sister combo. Um, 
Karina and Rodrigo Dam. Oh, that's right. They did the capoeira okay. shit. Yes. You know, they would be in the middle and they would do this shit yes. during the middle of a fight. Yeah, they would fuck people up too. Well, you know, the interesting thing is like, I don't know what what happened with that organization, but they put together a small number of fights. I think it was maybe three or four fights, three or four cards. But if you go back and look at those three or four cards, like they fucking hold up. They hold up like any affliction event. You know, which is another organization that threw a lot of money into big fights. You ever heard, uh, you ever talked to Jeff Osborne? Sure. Jeff Osborne and I did commentary on the very first UFC. I'm a big fan of his. No, but I mean like recently. No, I haven't. So out of nowhere, I'm no, no longer with SiriusXM. They, they, uh, I, I moved on, but I had a show once and they were like, Jeff Osborne's on line one. And I'm like, wait, the Jeff Osborne? So Jeff has a memorabilia shop of like all MMA shit in his uh, hometown. And he called in and we talked about a bunch of stuff. shoot. Who can shoot, right? That's him. But also with, do you realize this? The Kane fight that they had was in a ice rink, in the middle of an ice rink, and they actually built a studio slash like stage presence for it in the middle of an ice rink and like wherever the fuck it was, St. Petersburg, and then a ring to make it look like they were like somewhere else. Meanwhile, they're in the middle of a fucking ice rink. Really? Dude, yeah. All Dude, his story- Which fight was this? Kane's fight there. I thought Kane fought on the beach. Uh-uh. No? No. Who did Kane fight? I couldn't tell you. Who, who the fuck knows? But um, I could barely. I mean, and this I, was Bodog. Bodog. Yeah. So was, was this the same card where Linlin fought Fedor? I don't think so. But again, I can't be sure. Okay. But you got to reconnect with him sometime because this motherfucker. I'd love to. I'd dude, love to have his him on. Bodog stories are like out of control. See this? Mm. This is this is in the middle of an ice rink. Jeremiah Constant. Oh, he's about to. You got you got fat tattooed guy versus Kane. Kane about to work you like. Dude, it's Kane, no, Kane was a force of nature. He's the best heavyweight I've ever seen. I'm not saying he's the best heavyweight ever, but in terms of the eye test and what he could do, nobody was better than Kane. Well, you know, the thing is, it's like, how long can you be at that level? That's the real question. It's, it's not... Uh, sometimes you want to look at a guy like you look at Anderson, right? And you look at the Jared Cannonier fight, or you look at... The second Chris Weidman fight, it's really interesting. You look at uh, Anderson's career, and I actually went over it last night because I knew I was going to talk to you today, and I was, I was thinking, you know, there's one point in time where I was convinced that Anderson was a GOAT, and I think he was at, at his time. I think in his, in, his, in his prime, he was the GOAT at the time. And um, you go from the Chris Weidman fight where he's the baddest motherfucker on earth. Chris Weidman KOs him, and then he loses every fight afterwards. Except Derek Brunson. Except Derek Brunson. Yeah. He beats Derek Brunson by decision, but he loses every other fight. And it's crazy. I mean, you, yeah. you look at him, you go from Chris Lieben, Starch and Chris Lieben, you look at his fights. I mean, there was a few that people forget. There's a few that were boring, right? There was, a, there, there was um, you know, the... Uh, uh, Talos Lightes. Talos Lightes The Cote fight. fight wasn't that good either. Patrick Cote was very cautious because Patrick Cote knew that Anderson Silva was a counterfighter and Patrick had a powerful fucking right hand. And Patrick was like, I'll let you come to me, bitch. And then <laughs> Patrick, with a weird thing, like he hopped on his knee to throw a kick and his knee just blew out. Yeah. And he fell and held his knee and that was a really... But the Damian Maya fight, people forget that. That was in Abu Dhabi. And he came fucking like hell on wheels in the first couple of rounds trying to take Damian Maya out. And Damian Maya survived, and then he just coasted. 
for the last few rounds, and everybody was terribly upset. It was really Anderson Silva. Like I remember, Dana White was like, right, "If he does that again, I'll cut him." And everybody's like, "Whoa, this is crazy!" Like everyone was so furious because this was the big fight in Abu Dhabi. BJ Penn fought Frankie Edgar, and Frankie Edgar upset him, and everyone was like, "This is crazy!" BJ Penn lost, and then Anderson Silva comes out like a demon, and he was. Like screaming at Damian Maya. And Damian right. Maya is probably the nicest, most respectful person. I don't know what their beef was about. I, I just, still to this day, don't understand what it was. But for whatever it was, Anderson had in his head, he was angry at Damian Maya for, and fought very emotionally and tried to take him out and didn't. I also think in that fourth, maybe it was the fifth round, Damian hurt him. Yeah. There's a big punch that lands, and you watch the body language and the sort of tactical approach begin to change mm -hmm. almost instantly after he gets drilled with one. Now, maybe I'm not saying he's the best striker. I'm just saying at that moment. It was hot out, too, by got, the way. You we were, were there, outside. right? Yeah, yeah. We were outside. It was fucking hot. <laughs> and I think, and there were also bugs flying around, like the size of birds. It was weird. Like, what is that thing? <laughs> like, like, it was like weird because we were outside and Damien survived. He survived the initial onslaught and then, you know, but just could never be fast enough to take Anderson, you know, to get a hold of him. Right. It was just to never, take him down. you never could, felt like he was meaningfully moving the needle. Right. He just wasn't at that level, like, striking wise. Just, he, but he did threaten him. He did hit him. And then Anderson decided to coast. But Dana was so mad. And folks don't understand, too, this was, I think, two things were happening at the time. One, that was when they had made the sale to Flash Entertainment, and they had sold 10% of the company. I believe that's why they had gone to Abu Dhabi, was mm. partly of those reasons. That was sort of an internal thing. That was an external thing. But folks don't realize this. This was when the UFC was fucking red hot. Mm -hmm. Red hot. I mean, they could not miss. Every time they come out, maybe the pay-per-view wasn't great, but it wouldn't sell poorly. You know, this was at the time where I don't think it was too far removed from... I remember when I was in New Orleans once... With it, now my wife, my then girlfriend, and we watched. I remember this card got super fucked up. I don't even remember what the initial one was supposed to be. It ended up as Rashad versus Tiago Silva. Remember that? Mm -hmm. and it was three rounds and it sucked. Yeah. That thing still did almost 400,000 buys. I mean, they could not miss. Mm. And they had Anderson Silva, they had all these sort of important guests there. This was this coronation moment for this like new opportunity, and it kind of shit the bed a little bit. And Dana was fucking heated. Mm. Woo! After that. I can understand yeah, that too. I can understand it too. Yeah, it was uh, it was not a good fight. Uh, but Anderson, when he was in his prime, there was moments like the Forrest Griffin fight where you walked away and just go, "Who's better than that fucking guy?" You know. But it, obviously, it was a tailor-made kind of style for Anderson. Forrest was like a blood and guts come forward. You know, doesn't hide anything. Just really charges, and Anderson would just like see everything. He was so relaxed. He would find openings, and the, the 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 famous step back away from those punches, and then just hit him with a right hand, a fadeaway right hand, and knock him out. It's what Hall hit him with. Did you see that fight over the weekend? Which fight? Hall. Solo. Oh, Uriah Hall. Yes, exactly. It's not like, he yeah, it was like it was like sli slightly similar. different, but so I saw it and I was like, dude, this is a game where <sighs> yeah. you stay around long enough and the elderly get eaten. Well, it was also like when you're watching Anderson move, he's doing things that he would have never done when he was younger. It's almost like he's trying to like get the sparks flying, like crank the engine over, but it doesn't want to. You know, he's moving forward in a way that like you're like, ah, like you would never see the Anderson Silva that fucked up Rich Franklin twice. You would never see him fight like that. The Anderson Silva that stopped Chris Lieben, he would never fight like that. You know that that Anderson was a clever tactician. That that Anderson was a was a, a a technical fighter. Whereas like 
he fought really aggressive in the first round. But if you don't go back to Vitor being on TRT, you give Anderson TRT, you'll see a different fighter. But if you want to make him fight on the natch, you're you're 45, man. This is 45. It's 45. It's like unless you're Bernard Hopkins, unless you're a guy that's so fucking good at boxing where you're clever and you don't waste any energy and you're so disciplined and so technical and so defensive oriented that you can take these like world championship caliber young guys and drag them into seven eight nine rounds and then set traps for them and eventually capitalize on them there's very few guys that get to the point like bernard got into his 50s it's it's it's, when he changed his nickname to the alien yeah i didn't think it was a better nickname but it was maybe a more appropriate one, you know. <laughs> but then when he fought Joe Smith and he got knocked out through the ropes and yeah. fell and landed on his head, right? And I was like, oh Jesus Christ, this but, is. But the difference you, you highlight, I think, is really important between Hopkins and and um, and Silva, which is that it, it it would not be accurate to say that Silva lived on his chin. That is not true. Oh. But it would be accurate to say there was a couple of times he let it slide. You'd see times in fights where he would kind of just take one and then like his head would whip. But he'd still be right there. How about the Jorge Rivera fight? Right. Remember the cage rage fight? He let him punch him in the face. Right. This is. I mean, that was a little more. That was a little more demonstrative. But that I mean, was crazy. Okay, but there's there was all these moments where he would kind of let it go, mm-hmm. and uh, he just at 45, you just do not have the capacity for that. Yeah, at all. You don't. Yeah, and also again, we're talking about a natural 45, a guy who can't, you know. You're, you know, you have a very low testosterone level. Bro, my back low. hurts. I'm 41. My back hurts when I got a fucking bed. <laughs> I know. You know, I'm not Imagine a world class athlete, but I'm just saying, like full training camp. But even if you watch him train, it's it's not what you want to see. You know, I've I've watched training footage of Anderson. It's it's hard to say unless you're in the gym with him day in day out, like what what kind of output he's he's really doing. But when I'm watching him hit the mitts and hit the pads, and it's just not. It's not what I used to see. You know? He is um, he is one of I think three. There may be more, but if I had to ask, how many fighters currently competing in the Ultimate Fighting Championship have pro MMA wins that predate nine eleven? Robbie Lawler, him, and Overeem are the ones that come to mind. That's about it. There might be a couple Diego, more. Diego, but Diego's out of the mix now, right? I'm not even sure he has a win that predates nine eleven. He might, but um, but the point well, being, is not in the UFC. You're right because his yeah. debut was two hundred five. Oh, not in the UFC. Maybe just period. 2005. Does he have one that predates 9-11, really, Diego? I don't know. He's 2005. He was his debut in the UFC when he won Ultimate Fighter Season 1. Okay. Right? Well, That's 2005, 2005, correct. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, certain, there's a certain beauty to it, which is, and I know you appreciate this. You know, I was thinking about it. I was like, you, there's a lot of strikers and like a lot of great fighters folks don't remember. And mm-hmm. Silva, I don't even fought him, but like, you know, Mark Weir. Folks have looked totally Sure. Old. Mark Weir's a great fighter. Dude, Silva's maybe best fight. And this is debatable because of the Chael Sonnen comeback. But you asked me like my favorite Anderson Silva fight. He fought Lightning Lee Murray. Lee Murray in, Cage Rage in Cage Rage in yes, London. Yes. When by the way, everyone knows Lee Murray as like oh the guy who robbed the bank because it's such an incredible story and mm-hmm. I recognize that. But put that aside for just a minute. Lightning Lee Murray was a bad motherfucker. Bad motherfucker. He could fight his ass off. He was very good. Vicious power and athletic and quick and, and like mean. hard. Yes, yeah, super fucking just elegantly evil. Okay. <laughs> And Anderson Silva beat the fucking brakes off of beat him. Beat the brakes off in of London him. in yep. front of Lee Murray's hometown crowd, and yep. did it and did it with a certain gusto. Mm-hmm. And no one knows that shit. Yeah, because uh, you can you imagine if you just joined. Like, I, I you, listen. You come to MMA when you come to MMA. You can't you can't be one of these fans that like beats up on newer fans because they didn't. I got lucky. Someone introduced right. me. Yeah. 
But can you imagine understanding Anderson Silva as a function of like Conor McGregor popularity? Like you came to UFC because of him and that's all you know? Oh my fucking God. You yeah. missed the whole show. Yeah, you missed the evolution. Because there was times where like if you go back... Do you remember uh, Alex Diebling, the Brazilian killer? <laughs> they didn't like that nickname too no, much, they did they? Hated it. And Anderson caught him with a high kick and busted open his eyebrow and stopped yeah. him. Um, but I believe, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, look at pulled up Anderson Silva's record. I think Rio Chonan beat him after Lee Murray. Yes, he did. The Leo Rio Chonan man, that was a crazy fight. So did what's he his hit face? Him with that flying scissors hold. Yeah, that was his last fight in Pride. He went from that, I think, to. Maybe he had the Otsuka fight. I have to go look it up. But um, he went from that to the Lieben fight, I believe. So something I, something like that. I think he might have fought one more time in Cage Rage. Lee Murray, so Lee Murray and then Rio Chonin. And Curtis, That's right. Curtis Stout, another yes. good striker that folks don't remember. Cage you know? Rage 14. So that's what's interesting, right? So he loses to Rio Chonin and then beats the fuck out of Jorge Rivera. But that was after... The Lee Murray fight. Right. So he went from Lee Murray, which was arguably, I agree with you, one of his most impressive decisions, one of the most impressive vi victories, rather, and then Rio Chonan beats him. People forgot about Rio Chonan. And then the Yushin Okami win is just that was a, a disqualification. Yeah, he just he upkicked him on his knees. That basically. was BJ's promotion. And then the Tony Frickland crazy upward elbow. Hot. Remember that? Yeah. And then he went and fought Chris Lieben after that. Remember when Lieben said he was going to send him back to Japan? Yeah. Hi. I'll never forget. I was at, so I had a job in Washington, D.C., and this job I hated. I used to work in a little bit in politics, and I, ha I hated this fucking job. And I'll never forget. It was the night of uh, Silva versus Lieben. And I, everyone was like, hey, we got a bunch of work to do, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I had to make up some excuse. I'm like, I think I have AIDS. I'm sick. I don't know. Something's wrong. <laughs> and I was like, I had to go home. And I sprinted home. And then I was like, I don't want to watch this alone. And I went to a bar um, that was near where I was living at the time. And I watched it. And it was one of the most... I, I, I've never... like Drinking alone stories usually don't end with a, like, like a smile and glee. But I, no one, I, none of my friends like MMA. I'm just the only one. And uh, so I didn't have anybody to call. So I was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to go to the bar. And I watched it. And it was one of the, the truly like great sports memories of my life you know yeah i remember i had friends come into that and that was back when you, you could bet i mean you still can bet but uh you i used to bet on fights i used to bet on fights before i, I didn't nobody told me not to but i, I decided <laughs> at a certain point i probably should stop and uh i don't think i'd bet on that i think that was like the last one i didn't bet on because like this is stealing money because whatever the line was it wasn't big enough I was like, listen to me, and I was talking to my friends. I go, that motherfucker can't lose. Can, I go, this I, guy's an assassin. Can I make a request to Jimmy yeah. to look it up? Can you go to bestfightodds.com? I'm not paid. It's just a repository for good information. Sure. You can look up someone's odds through, throughout their career. Oh, okay. How it opened, how it closed. Let's go best uh, bestodds.com. That's what no, it is? Uh, bestfightodds.com. Bestfightodds.com, and try to find the Chris Lieben, Anderson Silva All you have to do is just punch in someone's yeah. name, like Wikipedia, and it'll show you all their odds. But I remember telling my friend, this is stealing money. I'm like, this motherfucker's an assassin. I'm like, he's so good. He's so good. I, I thought it might be competitive in the sense that Silva was better. Here we go. So do they have it? Ah, fuck. I don't think they have it. It goes all the way back to Nate Marquardt. How is that, that was 2007. How is it that close? Jesus. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, Nate was really fucking good. That's why. I mean, Anderson was only a two-to-one favorite back then. But you got to remember, Damn. that's Nate Marquardt when he was in his prime. And Nate Marquardt. King of pancreas, know, bro. When I talked to Brendan Shaw, when Brendan Shaw was training with Nate Marquardt, he goes, dude, let me tell you something. He goes, I never saw that motherfucker lose a round in sparring. Nate Marquardt is a guy who, at one point in time, was one of the elite of the elite. Remember, he knocked out Damian Meyer with one punch. 
I mean, in the air. Yeah, he was a fucking killer, man. But he and he knocked out Tyron Woodley with like one of the most nasty fucking video game combinations you've ever seen. <laughs> it was like right out of Mortal Kombat. He hit uh, what's his face? Uh, who's the striking coach? Christian Allen? Is that his name? The striking coach over there for him? He's the striking coach at Elevation now, I think. He's like mm. uh, Corey Sandhagen's guy. Is that who he is? I think it's Christian Allen. Who ever, I've never talked to him, but everyone tells me he's a fucking genius. He hit uh, Wilson Gouveia. Remember this? He hit him with the um, he hit him with the punch, punch, high kick, spin, uh, back fist. Oh yeah. He hit him with that. God, I forgot about that guy too. Wilson Gouveia, another good guy. There's so many fighters that just like you like you forget about Travis Luter. Like, oh yeah. Yeah, but he's training the next gen of guys. Is he? Kevin Travis, Ho- oh. Kevin Holland's at a Travis Luter's gym. Is he really? Mm-hmm. Kevin Holland's fucking good, yep. man. He's fucking good. Travis Luter's one of those guys where uh, I remember, you know. I remember when he fought Silva, I was like, mm, this one might be worth watching. And then he Let missed the weight. Let me tell you this, dude. I've never seen anybody closer to death than I did Travis, Travis Luter on his way to making the weight. When he missed the weight and then he was going to the scale and I saw him shuffling because he couldn't walk, couldn't pick his legs up. He was shuffling like he was snow skiing, right? And then his, lip, his lips were cracked. Like you could see like they're red in between the cracks. Like his, like he had no water in his body and he was trying to make weight and he couldn't make weight. That's how Habib was. Um, I interviewed him. We had media day before the Ferguson fight at 2.09, which obviously did not happen. We did media day, and I, it was my turn to talk to Khabib, and I stuck a uh, microphone in his face, and he had the worst. Co- I've seen, I've seen, you know, in 15 years in the fight business, and I've covered, you know, uh, collegiate and Olympic wrestling a little bit. I've seen Cottonmouth. Okay, I've seen a lot of it. That is the worst Cottonmouth I have ever seen in my life. I mean, he could barely separate the tongue from the inside of his mouth. It's crazy to make guys talk like that. You know? And it's also crazy that we allow that. You know, I applaud one FC for their weight cutting measures. I think what they've done with their, their their whole hydration thing, I think it's the most important thing in MMA. I think we need to do that across the board, but I think there needs to be more options for fighters. I think there should be more weight classes. I really, really, really do. I'd be a little bit skeptical of them. Yeah? Here's what I'm saying. The weight hydration system as we understand it through collegiate wrestling appears to be a godsend, right? Mm-hmm. So what we understand of it works. Now, I am I want to be very clear about what I'm about to tell you. I am not declaring to you that what they are telling us about their weight-cutting system is wrong, because like you, I've talked to Ben Askren, I've talked to Gary Tonin, and they really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. What I'm telling you is I'm a little bit skeptical of the veracity of the claims that aren't independently verified. Mm. They have only recently begun to stream their weigh-ins, and even then you can't see what's on the scale. You have no idea about if someone is missing weight, and there could be any number of factors related to whether or not they actually made it. I'm just telling you, I personally, as a guy in media, I do not take promoters' word for it. And so this is not me declaring to you that their weigh-ins are fugazi. This is me declaring to you, until we get independent verification of them, I would pause a little bit on some of their claims. Do you know what Fugazi really means? Do you know where it comes from? I know the band, and I know it's supposed to mean like, because <laughs> I'm from D.C. Fugazi is actually how I pronounce the band. I say Fugazi. But it means sort of uh, counterfeit. It was bank. a company that was writing bad checks. I'm pretty sure it was a limo company. And they were writing. That sounds, that sounds perfect. They were writing bad checks. <laughs> and so it became like synonymous, a Fugazi check. I, I found him, my, my friend Mike Starr, who's, uh, who's in the Godfather, or um, uh, Goodfellas, has been in a bunch of movies. He uh, was in Dumb and Dumber. He told me about it. I was like, what the fuck is Fugazi? Yeah, I, I, I'm from D.C., so we know waiting room. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit of, I have a bit of skepticism about their drug policy. Because, a bit? You know, yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> quite a bit. And now, now that Vitor's over there, and they got a few guys over there that look pretty juicy. Yeah, good. I don't yeah. care. It doesn't bother uh, yeah. me. 
I don't care if it's known. You know, the the thing is, it's it's like I wish there was a policy. Like, there's an argument that could be made when it comes to things like um, Tour de France that you could argue that it's safer to do it with the steroids than it is without. Right. With the blood, it kills the human body. Yeah, it's destructive. And like, there's an argument that like doing that with it is actually healthier. The problem is in this country we have this idea that you're cheating and it's un-American. Right. Like we have it from baseball and Mark McGuire, all the a lot Sammy of stupid Sosa. ideas, Joe Rogan. Yeah, there's there's a lot of weirdness when it comes to that. So the last few years, I remember I used to talk to Travis Tigert, who runs USADA uh, pretty regularly back in 2015 or so. And uh, I found him to be a very earnest guy, very nice. Um, I think he's very committed to his mission. This is not – I have nothing bad to say about him personally other, way, other than now – I couldn't find more disagreement with him if my life depended on it. Basically, it sent me down a rabbit hole. And let me tell you what I've been doing the last five years of my life. No one will tell you this. I don't know why. But there is this entire movement. And I don't mean of weirdos and people of ill repute and people who haven't done their homework. I'm talking academic scholars with research who have done the homework in the most complex of ways. Right? There is this entire body of work around anti-doping. And if you follow the rabbit hole that I went down, this is not some YouTube rabbit hole. You, in fact, if you look, you can't, you can't find it. This is it's it's dense reading, quite candidly. The history of anti-doping, where it come from, where it comes from, how it developed, um, and what the status is today. You can only come away with a couple of conclusions. One, anti-doping globally is a dramatic failure. It has not worked. And number two, the major problem that I have is I'm not expecting everyone to agree with what I say about anti-doping. Many of my views are outside of the Overton window. But the debate around anti-doping is so incomplete and so dishonest that it's hard to get in a word edgewise. It's hard to get people to understand that like you're just repeating 1980s drug war nonsense without even really realizing that's what you're doing. If you actually examine the facts of the case... Again, maybe you'll come to the conclusion that I come to. Maybe you won't. What is the conclusion you've come to? That here is basically what we should do with drugs and sport. They are not going away. There is nothing we can do about it. They are not going away. And to the extent they go away, genetic manipulation will happen with the CRISPR technology or some other version of it. Or there's, there's things called financial doping, which big clubs get involved in in Europe. It's been a big problem over there as well. What does that mean? Financial doping is a basically a way to cook. It's a, They call it doping because it's a way to make things sound bad. In fact, the word doping comes from the early 20th century when they were trying to figure out a name for giving horses drugs. They called it doping, and then they used that. Um, they ported it over to um, human athletics mm-hmm. to sort of make it sound. And by the way, in fairness, it was the mafia doing a lot of that. So they took this sort of like organized crime, human on animal crime, and then they brought it over to a, 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 a human sport. But basically it's the idea of like, oh, we have certain um, limits. You can't pay more in salary than this. We'll find ways to sort of manipulate the books to make sure that uh, you get paid more and I get paid more. It won't show up on the ledger in the way that it normally would, but when you actually calculate the total, we're not meeting the demands of keeping the payload restricted so that we can remain competitive across the league. It's mm-hmm. called financial doping. But there's a couple of scholars, Werner Muller, out of, uh, I think he's out of Denmark, and then uh, Paul DeMio out of Scotland. They have written a couple of books on the history of anti-doping, on the state of anti-doping, on the ethics of doping and anti-doping. These are not guys who think that steroids should just be legal. People think that, like, this is one of the major problems with being in the position that I'm in. People are like, oh, you just think everyone should take steroids. No, that's not what I think. I think if you're an athlete and you say, listen, man, I'm really good and I don't want to take drugs to compete, 
I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but when you begin to drill down how you solve that problem, no one really wants to get to what the heart of the issue is. First, the issue is this. Um, everyone, you cannot understand drugs in America without understanding uh, media hysteria and how it has changed things. And no, no one should appreciate this more than you. Think of any drug we've ever had. To what extent have false media narratives, exaggerated claims, totally uh, ridiculous things have had to been year over year pulled back by virtue of evidence that has weighed in or, you know, whatever the case. Reefer Madness is sort of like the common example. Steroids is exactly that way. The claims of harms related to them are totally overstated. It does not mean there are no harms. It means relative to what people have claimed, it is simply not true. In fact, the Australian government did a study uh, over like what would be the most sort of harmful drugs in a human experience. And it was behind tobacco. It was behind numerous other drugs well in advance that are perfectly legal um, and have a deeper societal exception or acceptance, excuse me. So that's for harm, though. Right, it's for harm, but yes. in terms of I'll get actual performance. Yeah, I'll get to that. The okay. argument about steroids, especially as it relates to com combative sports, if you wanted to make the claim that if you and I were fighting and were, let's say, reasonably equal, and I took it and you didn't, it, com it tilts the competitive balance, and that makes it unfair, I would agree. I think that is actually true. I don't think there's much argument about that. But that is not really fully what they claim. What they claim as it relates to MMA is that uh, or any other combative sport, is that it makes MMA safer. There is literally not a shred of evidence they have ever presented, not one time, that makes that true. Joe, you've been watching MMA a long time. Looks safer to you? Looks no, safer I, to you since the introduction of USADA? I wouldn't imagine it makes it safer. I wouldn't imagine. Right, but that was a key selling ingredient when USADA was sold to the public about why it was necessary. I think the, the argument is that if someone is on it and the other person isn't, a la Vitor versus Michael Bisping, right. That Michael Bisping winds up blind in one eye from a high kick by Vitor. Right. So let's let's remove that example for one second because it's such a it's such a powerful example. It's mm -hmm. like the it's like the Ben Johnson of examples. Yeah. Show me all. By the, the way, Carl Lewis was on some shit. Too. Of, of course. Yeah. Of course he was. Yeah. He was on some shit. Show me the evidence that since the introduction of you. Allegedly, don't sue me, Carl. Yeah. Don't Carl be Come friendly. On, Carl, get be together with Calvin. Show me the evidence. <laughs> Show me the evidence that mm -hmm. MMA has become safer as a virtue because uh, what everyone had said at the time was this is not like hitting a baseball. This is not like dunking a basketball. We need to protect the health and safety of athletes. Right. The the Vitor Belfort incident doesn't even come close to the Cyborg versus MVP incident where he cracked his skull, which was ostensibly totally done naturally. Yes. Okay. Yes. The idea. That was crazy. It was super fucking crazy. The uh, Fighting is like smoking. You can smoke Marlboro Reds. You can smoke menthols. You can smoke lights. At the end of the day, you're putting yourself at risk at a pretty significant degree. It does not matter what kind of filter you put on the cigarette. And you could make the argument that if you are taking EPO and if you are taking testosterone, you'd have more energy to get away from shots as much as you would have energy to land them. I think the argument so maybe about it could be safe. Here's the issue. I think the argument about taking what is complex, and I think ultimately the athletes should decide. Right, so who should decide who takes what in the UFC? I think the athletes should work with the UFC to make a broader decision. And by the way, they might decide that USADA is what they want. I cannot preclude that as a possibility. But to me, it's like let's take the Pepsi challenge. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Vada and let's see how many to a man decide this is something that they want. I bet you you get the numbers drop off fairly significantly. Do you think point. there's a way to skirt the system right now, even with USADA? Do you oh. think there's some some therapeutic, some shit that people aren't? Do you think so? Of course, I would imagine, is. but I'm not. Let me, let me I'm say, ignorant to it, so I'm just guessing. Let's let's say something outright, right? Okay. This, this will get me in trouble with the with the Puritans, but I, I think it deserves to be said. Drum roll, please. 
when I watch athletes who I think or know are on something, the sport tends to be better. Okay. When I watch Mark McGuire hit balls into fucking Mars, I love it. I think it's great. Well, especially baseball, because that's the only good thing about that stupid fucking <laughs> it's, sport. It's not my favorite sport One in the world. One of those meatheads okay. hits a ball into uh, another dimension. Right, but when I watch <laughs> when I watch any other sport where I know it's drug-addled, it does yeah. not reduce my enjoyment of it. And that's you're supposed to have this moralistic, puritanical idea about drugs. I do not, because I understand this is complex. But the basic idea is this: um, all the claims that folks want to make about MMA as it relates to, to safety. There is no indication that if you say USADA is working, it's any safer. You're asking about how it's being used now. It's a little hard to say because, again, USADA claims a lot of victories without providing any evidence about them, right? I mean, I've never, I've never in my life, can you imagine you're somebody you hire to do some kind of service for you, claiming all the victories they claim, and then when you ask to see the receipts, they don't have any? I mean, it's really, I know, they, I know Jeff Nowitzki came on your show, and I'm sure he means well, but saying that the testosterone has been lowered, I actually asked Paul DeMio about it. It means nothing. It doesn't, in, in any way, there's no way to draw any conclusion about usage. There's a guy, by the way, he has a YouTube channel, More Plates, More Dates. He, he's been a longtime steroid user and PED user. He has gone through several UFC fighters. He has shown, there was a recent study that was done, you can still take um, all kinds of testosterone exogenously and come way under the limit for what USADA is looking for. More to the point, what we know from academic research is that... But don't they do tar carbon isotope tests you can that beat, show? It's easy to beat all of this stuff. Really? Yeah. Here, here is the key. Uh, what we know from academic research is that is there a reason to believe that relative to what commissions were doing, that the introduction of USADA has overall depressed usage? There is some reason to believe that. And well, there's physique changes. Yes, but Which again, here, big one. here it goes again. Everyone doesn't respond to physique changes normally or uh, equally. In other words, you could have genetics that make real uh, major pronouncements and change related to physique change, and I could take the exact same thing you're taking and not have the same result. Mm -hmm. But the point, the point is, is, is this: is that as it relates to these considerations, what ends up happening is you might depress overall usage, but what you do is you end up empowering the folks at the higher end. I mean, since 1960, the growth in pharmaceuticals, which the anti-doping world basically just plays catch up on all the time. I mean, they didn't catch Marion Jones, right? The way they got her was somebody mailed some shit anonymously, and then they developed a test for it, and all of a sudden, eureka. Right. But the amount of independent stuff they can find to catch everyone, they have to wait until someone basically tells them about it. You, what you end up doing is you end up codifying a system where the rich are able to avoid detection and entrench their uh, relative advantages over those who don't have those economic resources. So you might have prevented um, overall amounts of use. That's one plausible explanation. But by doing that, you have only made those who had more money to begin with solidify their position. But what is the alternative? The alternative is you let people get juicy as they want? No. Like, do you have so, limitations? So here's my view on things. Okay. Number one, you look at American football. And this is what kills me when MMA fans try to defend USADA. It's like, this, this ain't the hill to die on, folks. In American football, we have multiple deaths and fatalities every year. I'm sorry, deaths or paralysis every year. Not just that, we have multiple deaths at the high school level annually. Annually, these kids die. If you look at the health outcomes from American football relative to a, a, a fighting, it is much worse yeah. across the board in American football. And that is a sport where you can get caught taking something and they'll suspend you for four fucking games. You are watching in the NFL, and I don't want to name names because I don't want to be sued, 
But you see a lot of guys in their 40s or late 30s continuing to do shit that they're not supposed to be able to do or they look like fucking He-Man. It's because it is very easy to take something in the NFL and avoid detection. And the fans simply do not care. The idea that they're really concerned about the health and safety, given the outcomes and given the nature of the sport, is simply does, does not meet, uh, match the reality at all. So what do I think is best? A couple of things. One, if you have a system where the athletes have a say and they work with the organization and they carve out a system where it may not be as rigorous as possible, because by the way, there's a study at the University of Adelaide. Testing is basically low information. It's, it's basically theater for low information fans. It's not, it does something, but not really all that much. The real big fucking fish that USADA gets or any other anti-doping agency is a function of investigations through snitching, which MMA fans don't like. I'm like, folks, that's how the sausage is made. I don't know what to tell you. So if you wanted to do testing, you'd have to do it literally. The University of Adelaide has a study that came out that said it had to be basically every day. But that would require privacy invasions, right? So you have these enormous amount of privacy invasions where they have no life. They would constantly be under rigorous what, what control. What would be different, though, with testing every day versus testing randomly? Like, How would you catch someone? Like, what are they? Obviously, there's if they're taking something and you just wake them up at 6 o'clock in the morning, hey, Frankie Edgar, i got to check your piss. Like, you're, you're going to catch them. If they're taking something on a daily basis, right? Yeah. Uh, you mean through random or through... Random. Random is the idea is that it would happen frequently enough that there would be no method of, uh, or at least very few methods right. of avoiding detection. The idea, though, is that there are sufficient things you can take to gain real clear advantages that even randomized testing simply could not account for. Uh, again, you, it would be uh, uh, some kind of proprietary drug that a rich person could make that there'd be no test for, is a clear example. So, but if you did, okay, so something that doesn't have a test for it currently. Right. Something like the clear, something right. like what Balco came up with. Yeah, something like that. But there's right. a couple of examples. So here's what I'm saying to you. One is like, what's a, what's a suitable model? Well, NBA, MLB, to a lesser extent, but MLB, and then NFL, we already exist in a world where basically a pretty significant chunk of those guys are taking something and nobody seems to care and it works out well for everyone. What they, people claim they don't like is the, the sort of the scandalization of it all. What is the Billy Corbin documentary on Alex Rodriguez? Oh, I've seen it. Screwball. Screwball. It's fucking, fucking great. Fucking amazing. It's fucking great. Is it those little so, kids acting? Yeah, little kids are acting the part of Billy Corbin or, or excuse me, Alex Rodriguez and the, the other players. And all these and like the all these like low-level mafioso types, you it's, know? But what a genius idea to do it that way. Yeah. Well, let me just get this out. Sorry. Keep I, going, I, keep no, going. Sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm no I'm ranting, but the, the last thing is this is there's a couple different methods you can pick you can just decide that the existing professional sports leagues in my judgment have totally figured it out which is that you get a union to organize basic protections you put kind of a lid on the lobster and you just let it cook there without sort of really being super inside the details about it which means you will allow for some but you basically get to a point where there's not too many violations you're not giving too much of an advantage and you just let it rock because it, the, the general for-profit sports world tends to prefer that. Yeah, but then we're just we're agreeing to deception. We're agreeing on deception. We already it, agreed to deception. Right, but why do that? If USADA, we're is not the, USADA is not the cure to the... Well, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of some of the practices. The big one is things like Josh Barnett, right? Josh Barnett gets hit for a tainted supplement. He disputes it. He's out for, I, I believe it was more than nine months. Yeah. Uh, they say, Tons oh, money we fucked up. It's a mistake. You're free to fight. But what what happens to all that time and money that he's missing? Nothing. No one compensates him. It gets worse than they that. They don't exonerate him. How about Tom, Lawyer, Tom Lawler? I mean, they took his career from him. It needs to be said out loud. USADA tested Tom Lawler. 
And they said, you tested positive for, it was an Austrian at the time, and you tested at such a level, we're going to ban you for two years. Two years later, they come up with a test that re makes them give more refined results. And they come back and they say, if you had tested at this level, you'd have been totally exonerated. They took that fucking guy's career from him, and they never apologized, and they never acknowledged that basically they had too much belief in their scientific uh, instrumentation to ever say sorry. Dude, that is fucking evil. That's evil. That is evil. Yeah. You cannot do that to a person. So this is my point. Here's what I think the health – there's one system is, which is let the, let, let the basically let a union decide and work the, what the union decides with the uh, sports organization. The other one is basically what the, um, but the, the strength and fitness world has done, which is that you have some competitions where you just don't test and you have some where you do. And that's not a perfect solution either, right? Because you can still take and then try to take the one that's sort of Yeah, mad. but again, we're agreeing to deception. This is why I, I, I'm what with is the you most of the way. <laughs> there, there, there is no alternative. Well, isn't the alternative let them do whatever they want? And, sort of. And not test. Sort of. I mean, at that point... It's, it's, see, because I, I, I just don't... I don't imagine a world where we're going to agree that you're allowed to lie. That doesn't make any sense to me. Because oh, you're, that's the world we live in. I understand. But but to to legislate this, to mandate this... Well, to, well, to have it, you, you're saying like there's some kind of harm to it. It's If you have an organization like the UFC, that's this multi-billion dollar organization, they are never going to come up with rules or say, hey guys, we know you're going to lie. So we're going to allow you to lie, and we're going to talk to your unions, and we're going to set it up so you can lie. They're not going to do that. No, no, but what they will agree to is certain amounts of protections for the rights of athletes, and through those protections... They can lie. They could lie. That yes. seems so ridiculous That's to the me. world we live in, man. But is it every, the world we live Every in? lawyer in the world has used that okay, trick. Let's, let's assume, let's, let's go from where we are now to the future, where I agree with you, we will have things like CRISPR and genetic manipulation and some other methods that we probably haven't even invented yet. Right. And they're going to invent them, and they're going to have perfect physical specimens. What do we do then? Then it's going to be ridiculous to say that you can't do certain things because it's going to be undetectable. It's going to be unstoppable. You're going to have people in China that are they're making designer babies that are seven feet tall and they're, they're, they're built like He-Man. We're, we're going to get to that point eventually, right? Right. So here's the deal. You have to have stratified sports is the answer. And people don't want that balkanized world. Is that stratified how so? In the sense that um, basically what happens now is that like let's say you want to compete in elite weightlifting. right? That's what you want to do. You don't really have much of a choice to do it other than through the Olympics. But if you want to do it through the Olympics, then it involves a series of procedures that relate to anti-doping and blah, blah, blah. Okay? But what if you want to do like strongman, for example? People kind of clown it because they do it in a circusy way. But to me, it's a perfectly legitimate sport by any other sports measurements. I agree. And you can't compete at World's Strongest Man's unless you are juiced to the mother fucking guild or gills it's phenomenal to watch but what strongman has figured out is the average person men or women by the way they may want to train strongman they want to compete in their local tournament they want to compete nationally they have a series of all different kinds of competitions for those who do want to do drugs and for those who don't for weight classes for age for gender and everything else in between now you don't get the satisfaction of saying that you won Tour de France, the only competition as it relates to that. There's no, I mean, there's other ones to, you know, other races, but there's only one Tour de France. But you have to live in a world where you just understand um, some of these are going to, everyone wants to make it like, oh, I'm the athlete who doesn't want to take drugs. What about me? Right. Well, what about the two athletes who both don't mind taking drugs? Right. What are we supposed to do for them? We're supposed to say you can't take drugs? Why? Imagine a world where they never did put, any restrictions on testosterone replacement use in Vitor Belfort still around? Okay, but see, I'm actually against TRT. For, yeah, for a couple of reasons. Who the fuck are you and what have you done with Luke? <laughs> 
for a couple of reasons. One is that um, the easiness of it was a little too much for me. There should be some hurdles to taking some kind of drug. You should be able to lie like cleverly. You should put some effort into your lying. <laughs> there should be a little bit of hurdle. You shouldn't just be able to go to a doctor. No, that that's the problem. If it's that easy and it's that ubiquitous and it's that easy to hide, you've not created enough uh, stumbling blocks and obstacles along the way to deter some usage. The whole point is to deter the low-hanging fruit. That's what you really want to sort of... Uh, but that, doesn't that set it up so that the rich guys and the guys that are the big camps that are funded by major sponsors, they're the ones that are going to have the best athletes? It's the, it's the opposite. Now is really? what you have that. Now is what you have because the other ones are super restricted. They don't really have much of an opportunity to fight back against against any kind of other form of testing. They're really sort of subject to it. They can't afford a lawyer so to challenge you, it. So you are of the opinion, and we don't need to name camps, but that the top camps employ scientists or doctors or someone who knows how to get around the system. I don't know about top camps. I don't know how it would work that way. But I know you're asking that me like top top athletes. More plates, more oh. dates guy. Yeah, I, mean, I know that guy looked at Yoel Romero. Yeah, and, and uh Paulo Costa. Yeah. And a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. Yeah, and again, is everything he says gospel? I don't think so. But it's worth but sort of I think of... his take on Yoel Romero was that he's a genetic freak. Right. But he got fucked by USADA too. Yes, he did. Right. Well, so did Tim Means. Right, another guy who doesn't look like he's on steroids at all. Right, there's a bunch of guys, a, bu a bunch of female fighters too. Right, haven't they been popped? Sure, for tainted supplements. Sure, it's a. They it's have a, no one protecting them. Yeah, but that's also like you're not supposed to take that stuff. Okay, I mean, listen, I've dealt with fighters for a long time. They're not the most organized people in the world. I love them. God bless them. They're the yeah. most inspiring people I know. You're but, preaching to the choir. But yeah. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, okay, 1 p.m. East Coast time, we oh, have an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they just, they just, <laughs> oh, they're like, oh, I was napping. Like, you think they're going to take, they're going to look on the fucking bottle? No. For, I mean, come on. No. And let's be honest, also, there's a lot of guys who say they took a tainted supplement when really they were probably microdosing and they got busted. Right. There's also that as well. Yeah, there's there's that as well. So I think you have to look at two situations. One, do you want a professional sports world like we have, where people claim they care very much about health outcomes, but they really don't, where people are obviously using in the NFL? Which, by the way, I mean, how do you get through an NFL season without growth hormone? I would love to know. Probably very difficult to do Peptides. that. Peptides. Okay, but here's yeah, my point. Like, something. something, something yeah. I mean, it's a brutal, vicious game. Vicious game. And then on the other side, or you can just you can balkanize it a little bit. You can mm -hmm. have divisions for older people. You can have divisions for um, uh, people who don't want to take drugs. And for the ones who do, again, does this solve all the problems, Joe? It does not solve all the problems. But it's a much more honest and uh, a policeable world. When I talked to Roy Jones and talked about the Mike Tyson fight, he told me that they're testing. They're, they're doing VADA Why? testing. And I was like, man, like Roy's 51 and Mike is 54. And I'm like, hmm, boy. I would have swore that's not the case if you looked at Mike's physique. He looks ripped. He looks so shredded. But he might be one of those outliers, one of those rare Herschel Walker type dudes right. that can be 54 years old and be shredded. I mean, there are yeah. guys like out, that out there that have just unbelievable genetics and maintain their physique deep into their 50s. I mean, Yoel is what, 45, I think? Something. Three. He looks ridiculous. He's I mean, he's insane. He's, a, he's, a, he's the epitome of specimen. Right? He's a specimen. Do you know what happened with him once? Want to hear this story? Yeah. I told it before. Forgive me if you've heard it, folks. Uh, he got uh, a fracture. I think it was in Australia. Um, he had an orbital fracture. And uh, the, the after the fight, doctor. I think it was the Whitaker fight. Um, doctors examine him, and the doctor calls up the UFC and goes, where did you get this guy? 
And he goes, well, yeah, he's one of the UFC fighters. He's like, he's like, this guy's a specimen. He goes, yeah, yeah, he's amazing, right? He's a top fighter. He goes, no, 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 no. No, no. Like, I've never seen a person like this. Mm. He's like, I've been doing, I've been a doctor for decades. He goes, his tendons in his eyes are three times larger than a normal <laughs> person's. And he goes, and that fracture is already healing. Wow. Yeah. And so... Dana was telling me about this. He was saying that, you know, Cubans had this crazy athletic program and they were doing all kinds of experiments with people. And he thinks that they did some experiments with athletes to create super athletes. Like you remember Corellin, you know, Corellin uh, was, they, they called him the experiment. That was his, ex that was his nickname yeah. because his parents were both like five, 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 seven. And he's a fucking giant a of a man who, who yeah. moves like a panther yeah. you know literally a 300 pound man who moves like a panther and you know obviously cuba had a a, a deep relationship with russia and if you've seen the movie icarus you've seen that movie mm -hmm. right which mm -hmm. is an amazing movie mm -hmm. on doping like russians don't fuck around when it comes to doping nope i mean they had a very specific program yeah. no, no corner cutting with them no corner cutting it was like super scientific and everyone's on board like, you're not going to compete on the Natch. Like, no, 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 no. We're here to win, bitch. And, uh, you know, the, I don't know what they did to make Yoel Romero, but that's not a normal human. And everybody who fights him says the same thing. Luke Rockhold said it feels like he's made out of metal. <laughs> it's like you fight the guy. It's like he's made out of steel. Yeah, here's what's funny. The guy, so I uh, tore my labrum lifting weights uh, maybe 10 years ago or something. And uh, the guy who ended up doing my surgery, by the way, the MMA fan, he loved talking MMA whenever I would go see him, uh, was the previous orthopedic surgeon years ago for, at the time, the Washington Redskins, they've since changed their name, but NFL football team. And I was like, what are they like? Like cutting these dudes open. He's like, they, this is exactly what he told me. He goes, they're not built like you and me. You know, he was like saying you cut them open and you can't believe that the muscle fibers look the way they look or that the tendons attached with the same kind of like tensile strength, whatever the proper terminology is. He's like, it was just like everything you understand about the human uh, uh, anatomy, you know it from a sort of averaged position. And then you see these Herculean monsters <laughs> and you're like, oh, so that's what Mothra looks like when you cut them open or some shit. Well, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen eventually in MMA if the money does get higher. You're going to see more of these next level Yoel Romero type athletes because they exist more in NFL and NBA like imagine you know a guy like LeBron James fighting in MMA who's like just a perfect specimen imagine these Michael Jordans imagine these next level athletes which right. unfortunately a lot of those guys wind up going to sports like basketball or baseball because there's more money there's more money in those sports and you don't get kicked in the face you know, and then the football guys, like, like, there's more money in football. Like, you can make a fucking insane amount of money in football. Like, I was just re reading about some guy whose contract was, like, $400 million, like some crazy shit. Like, in football? Yeah. That's, I'm not sure who that would be. Who's, the, who's, the mo who's got the most money in football? Patrick Mahomes. Maybe it was baseball. This is how little I pay attention to sports. You're missing out, there man. There was an article yesterday about a guy who uh, is getting his full contract in baseball and it's a lot of money. So that's like three hundred million. Yeah, that's not yeah, Maybe it's that guy. Bro, have you seen DK Metcalf? No. Holy. Who's that mother, guy? A motherfucker. Yeah. You think Yoel Romero's a specimen? Can you pull up DK? Really? Yeah, yeah. Have we talked about pull, him before? Pull up. No. Pull up DK Metcalf at the combine. Oh my god. Dude. <laughs> Here's the thing. I disagree with you halfway. 
which is to say, to the extent you get this kind of athlete, you're probably going to get, on average, better results. The one caveat, look at this motherfucker. Bro, he's a... He's a... (laughs) Joe, Joe, he's a pass catcher. How much does he weigh? Six four two twenty nine. What was his? What was he's two twenty nine? Yeah, dude. What were his? What were his combine numbers? His uh, his bench and his uh, his run. He is. Oh, look oh at this. Oh my god. Six three two. Now, the one percent. The one percent uh, body fat is not real, but he did run a four three three. No, he benched two twenty five twenty seven times. And he had a forty inch vertical. Look at that motherfucker. He can't be one percent body fat. No, that but, part's that part's not real. But holy shit, is he shredded? Look at that. Woo! I mean, try ta- thing, try tackling this fucking wall. The thing about fighting, though, that separates the men from the boys is the mind. Right. And the difference totally. between being able to perform in a sport and being able to fight another man is trying to separate you from consciousness is a very different thing. It's like some guys just can't rise to the occasion Watch, in a fight. This is the big thing he did last week while he went viral. He is right here. Watch him at the top of the screen. I'm going to start Watch over him. again, though. Watch him at the top of the screen. This guy here. Top of the screen. Here he comes. Middle. Look at him run this fucking guy down. Oh, my God. Look at him. Dude, he's 240 pounds, and he runs the guy down. Ooh, that's that guy incredible. should be very fast also. He's no, he's yeah, by the slow. way, the, the guy he's running <laughs> down is like, than yeah, super, it's like a wide receiver. Oh super God. fast. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's just amazing how many times these guys get tackled, and it doesn't just rip their fucking legs Sorry, apart. it was an interception, so it would be a cornerback who got this, I believe. Watch DK Metcalf. He goes for it, misses, and then comes back around and chases this fucking guy down. That's amazing. It's unheard of for a guy this big. There he is. There's DK right here. He's done running. He's, it's, it's Look at him. Fucking Look at smoking. Him go. Look at him go. Dude, DK Metcalf is so impressive. Oh, my God. You ever God, watch the combine? Amazing. Dude, when the combine comes on, dude, I'll, I'll turn off everything. My wife is like, you're watching a bunch of dudes run. I'm like, not dudes. Heroes, superheroes. <laughs> but to your to your point about the uh, the fighting, yeah. Mark Ellis. You remember Mark Ellis? Yeah. Like the, he was like a Division One national champion wrestler. Mm-hmm. He had a I think he had one fight in pro elite, and he was like, no mas. Yeah. This is the one caveat. I don't know about DK Metcalf or anybody else, but you see these guys, and they're just all, like in terms of athletic ability, they're they're beyond comparison. Yeah. But there is something about two things. One. People always like, oh, with with fighting, it's like you got to learn how to like be punched in the face. Mm. Yes, that's half of it. The other half is, and I think people overlook this. You have to have something constitutionally where you're willing to hurt another person, and not everyone has that. Not to the same amount. That is not an automatic response. It might be in the case of it's an emergency. It's not just that. You have to solve a puzzle. You have to solve a puzzle that's and reason in front of you. through it. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on. There's creativity that's involved in fighting that may not be involved in a lot of other sports that are just pure strength and speed and athleticism and, and a knowledge of moves and understanding of positions. But there's a different thing that's going on where you're trying to create an opening. When you're trying to create an opening, fighting, you know, there's there's just there's things that people can do in fighting that you, also you have to commit to that at a very young age if you want to be elite. Like, you can be a guy like Greg Hardy who has a reasonably successful career as a heavyweight just because he's a tough motherfucker who hits really hard and he's a very good athlete. But are you ever going to be Francis Ngannou? You know, are you ever going to be uh, Stipe Miocic? Are you ever going to be – it's like there's a, there's a there's a level that you reach where you only reach that level if you've been training it most of your life. Mm. And particularly for striking, for some reason. There's exceptions to that rule where some people can figure it out, but not in boxing. In boxing, it's very rare that someone even picks it up after their teenage years and reaches an elite world championship level. There's something about the timing and the understanding of... It's like 
to someone who's looking out on the outside, it's a guy trying to punch another guy. The guy's trying to punch you. You're trying to punch him. But there's a there's so much more to it. That's why a guy like Floyd Mayweather always wins. Like he's got a vocabulary that's just fucking volumes and volumes of books. And you got a little pamphlet. <laughs> you got a little pamphlet of ideas. <laughs> You know, and right. he's standing in front of you with his shoulders like this, and you think, oh, I, I see, I, I can hit this guy. You, you don't have a fucking chance in hell. He's so many steps ahead of you. And that's what you saw in the Conor McGregor fight. He just slowly lures Conor into his web and so relaxed and composed and eventually starts piecing him up and taking him out. But there's, there's levels that I think you only achieve if you start while your body's developing. There's something that happens where your body's maturing and growing with striking. When you, that's where the real speed and timing and power comes from. And again, there's there's exceptions. There's, there's some people that are just sensational athletes that just learn. Like I don't think Gilbert Burns started out as a striker. Mm -mm. I don't think he started out doing any striking. Mm -mm. I think he learned how to do that shit as a world champion jiu-jitsu player who got into MMA. But he's a, a rare freak, you know. But it's also. He's already a champion martial artist, so he also know, already knows how to smash men, right? There's a thing about that. There's a thing about knowing how to solve a puzzle, knowing how to figure a man out, getting a hold of a man's neck and putting him to sleep. He knows how to do that already. So to figure out that, I just need to do, know how to put knuckles to chin. And he's already a fast guy. He's already an explosive guy. And the dedication that allows someone to get to a world championship level in jiu-jitsu, it's the same thing. In striking, if he just puts the time in and has the focus, the intensity, and, and and figures out how to put in with the right coaching, which is also huge. The wrong coaching can set a guy back for, I mean, you could, it could ruin you. The wrong coaching can ruin you. Someone with bad ideas and piss poor strategy and execution, you could fucking, or you can get, you can run into a guy like Duke Rufus and he can create a world champion out of you. I mean, it's, it's, there's so many factors that play into it, but if you can get a guy who has that mentality, has a fighter's mentality, a, a, a person who wants to risk it all, you know, and not have the protection of other players, not have the, the, you know, the caveat, well, you know, the, the team, we didn't put it together defensively and we'll be back next Sunday. Bitch, there's no next Sunday when you get head kicked, <laughs> right? You know, like you're not fighting again for a long time. You get, you're suspended for 90 days. You're not even supposed to be sparring, you know, and then when you come back, you're, you're probably still going to be a little bit fucked up from that fight. There's a thing about fighting that separates us from all the other sports. I... I hate to say it again, but I call it high-level problem-solving with dire physical consequences. Mm. It's different than anything else because it's it's there's so much going on. It's just two people, and there's so much going on in that in that in those exchanges, and it's so hard to read unless you know it and understand it. It's like the ground game. Like one of the things that meant so much to me when I first started doing commentary was expressing what I know about the ground game so that a person who's never trained at all can understand it. So when people are going through positions and like a guy gets to a position and I, I know they're close to a finish or I know they've reached a pivotal point where the eyes turn, I would get excited and explain it. It was so, I wanted to explain it so descriptively like now he's got to get the arm. And once he gets that arm past his leg, now he's fucked. 
and the, and and being able to do that to people so they could piece it together and watch it at home like oh when Khabib mounted him and sat on top of him and put his leg around like, oh that's how he's setting up the triangle and then he finishes Justin with it oh I wanted to be able to show people what I feel when I see a guy do a mounted triangle in a fucking world championship MMA fight and then find out the guy had a fucking broken foot when he did it madness just madness not every baseball player can do that. Not every soccer player can do that. Not every football player can do that. It takes a man with a, a, a gladiator's mind like Khabib Nurmagomedov to do something like that. That's a unusual human. It's the 1% of the 1%. Well, I, w I would say, for me, uh, I, I often view the combative arts like a language. Mm. Which is why learning them five, six, seven, that's actually you teach someone a second language, right? Yes. If you teach them at two, they don't actually pick it up. You have to wait a few years and then they begin to get it and then they learn to speak. You can't force it on them when they're young. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've tried with my daughter. It's not, you know, she, <laughs> she prefers apple to manzana. We're, yeah. we're, we're working on it. But okay, the point being is, you know, you wait till they're five, six, seven and they begin to begin to get absorbing. And, and then once it becomes a language and the fluency and everything begins, it, it, at, by the time they're 14, 15, 16, 20, 21, my God, the fluency is sort of incredible mm -hmm. at that point. So that's part of it. Wrestling is the same as boxing in that way. Yeah. You have to start very, very mm -hmm. young to actually yeah. want to compete later on. But the other part is like the problem solving. I would say that someone like who's like a quarterback, dude, that is high level problem solving. Oh, for sure. You know, it's yeah. not the same kind of situation where, and this is why, again, everyone's going to focus on a different aspect of fighting that really appeals to them. The problem solving is interesting. And that's why, like, Adesanya faking and fainting because he keeps him at a distance so he can watch everything. I hate and to have favorite fighters. But right now, he's my favorite guy to watch, How next you, to Khabib. Because yeah. there's something about Stylebender, man, especially that Adesanya, the, the uh, Paulo Costa fight. God damn, did he shut down the hype. He changed the way I, I broke down fights. Ever tell you this? And I guess I haven't, because the first time I'm talking to you, but I was just thinking about this the other day. He did something in the Silva fight where I was watching, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck he is doing here. I can't make it. Like, if you just watch it, even in slow motion, I can't make heads or tails of it. Like, I don't understand what the, what the, what the point of it is. So because of because of him, now when I break down fights, I actually start. I go round by round, and I make notes every time any kind of strike lands or misses, and then I begin to go back and I piece together a narrative based on what if there is a narrative. Sometimes there's not, but more often than not, there is about what is happening. And I had to do it from this stance and then that stance because mm. he was switching stances, mm -hmm. close distance, far distance, inside distance. He is so meticulous and so thoughtful, but so effortless that I had to peel everything apart before I could even begin to comprehend it. People go and look at that fight, and they go, oh, well, he only won 29-28. That's not the story there. The story there is that, yes, it was a little bit on the defensive side. That is true. But he is so smart and so – he's the smartest fighter we have right now, I think, personally. I agree. He is so smart that he can watch what is happening, set things up, and do things in terms of manipulation, distance, timing, and everything else, and a trap setting to the nth degree mm -hmm. that – there's he doesn't have a peer in that particular. I regard. really enjoyed your breakdown of the Paul Costa fight. Thanks. Yeah, particularly that one where you 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 broke down how he pointed the fake, like he faked, pointed out that Paul fell for it, and then kicked his leg right afterwards. Yeah, you bit on it, dude. He fucked that guy's <laughs> mind up afterwards. Like you signed the contract, signed the guy. He's like contract, contract. Did you just not watch what happened? Right. You got torn apart for two rounds where you landed uh, two body kicks and one leg kick for two rounds, and you got dismantled and, and, and dropped with a left hook and then beaten down and dry humped. That was the 
And you're talking about a guy in Paulo Costa that everyone was terrified of. The guy who walked down, Yoel Romero. The guy who was smashing everybody they put in front of him. He's a destroyer. I mean, Paulo Costa is a fucking terrifying force. Super. Terrifying. Adesanya just had all the answers. And he knew he had all the answers coming in. What do you think about Adesanya Jones? Where are you on that? I love it. <laughs> yeah, everyone I loves love it. it. What do you, how, how competitive do you think it is? Well, he's got to get past Jan Blachowicz. First of all, that, that motherfucker hits hard yeah, he, does. he hit scared when he put out dominic reyes i was like holy shit when he ended with a weird punch too a weird left hand over the top that fucked him up he's a beast man and he's another guy that was killing himself making 185 right goes up to 205 and starts nuking motherfuckers he's a dangerous dangerous guy you can't make any mistakes with that guy gustafson out wrestled him for three rounds and at the time i remember people like oh he had to wrestle him he ain't that good i'm like in retrospect that's a great win by Gustafson. A great win. A great win. Yeah. Look, you know, that that guy moving up to 205 is going to be some growing pains. But now he's the champion. And he knows that he can nuke a guy like Dominic Reyes, who went five hard rounds with John Jones and, in your eyes, won the fight against it's Jones. It's the only time I've ever scored against Jones. The only it's time. fucking tight. It was tight. You, it was arguable, for sure. Um, I'd have to go over and watch it again if I wanted to score it, but I remember thinking, God damn, this guy is ahead deep going and then John came on strong in the fourth and fifth. But he nuked that guy. He nuked Reyes. And 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 it's not like Reyes wasn't in the fight, but when he started hitting that left kick to the body and left that gigantic brute, you'll realize like this dude hits so hard and his game is all power. He's just a big power striker and, and just durable and tough. Just a bad motherfucker. He's he's, a, he's impressive because I had force. I had Dominic Reyes on my show after the the loss to John Jones, and we talked about his game plan. And his game plan was pretty smart if you think about it. Which is you're not going to barrel down on John. It's really not going to happen. John, I think his offense is not the same as it used to be, but his defense. If you look at the numbers and just what the tape shows you, mm-hmm. John's defense is excellent. Why it, Why do you think his offense not what it used to be? What so, do you think is different? So do yourself a favor. If you have Fight Pass, Fight Pass, I just I, I can't say enough good things about Fight Pass. I think they need to update their interface. But in terms of like the service it does for someone like me, like because you think you see a fight in your head one way, then you go back and you watch. You're like, oh my god, I totally forgot half this shit, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to remind yourself. But if you go back and you look, he had a certain kind of wrestling dominance from the Shogun to the Rashad, really even up through m- most portions of his career that has begun to wane. His his takedown ability has gone from about the mid fifties, uh, a little higher than that, it's a, the sixties to about the thirties. It's dropped off a cliff. But what do you think's happened? The game has just gotten better. I mean, if you think about it, Dominic Reyes didn't make his pro debut until 2014. Now, John Jones was the fucking man already by then, right? I mean, long since been the man by 2014. So how could it be that a guy can be training that long and at least make it that competitive on paper? It's because best practices have gotten much, much better. Mm. So what, what Dominic Reyes wanted to do was create motion. The idea was to get John moving because if he's stationary or he's barreling down on you, he's much harder to hit. But to the extent you can get the guy moving, he's open to the body and to the legs. Now, that's a hard way to win because really the head contest is what wins and loses fights more often than not. Whether or not that's fair, that's just it's hard to win a fight on body shots unless you drop them. But uh, I thought he did win it. So he tried the same kind of thing against Jan Blahovich. He was trying to bait motion. He was trying to bait activity. Blahovich no sold it completely. He mm. was just standing there going, "Nope, 
Not but not playing any of this bullshit whatsoever. Yeah, come close, get nuked. Yeah. That was his game. And so Reyes couldn't yeah. he, had, he had a no I don't I don't I don't think he was expecting that. I think he had a hard time adjusting. Well also when he smashed Reyes' nose, like Reyes was in deep trouble. He had shattered his nose before that big overhand. He's just a beast of a man. I think that's an interesting fight to watch Stylebender fight him. And apparently, that's the next fight for Stylebender. It's right. going to be at light heavyweight. I don't know if it's going to be for the title. Does he say? Did, oh yeah, it is going to be for the title. Oh, is yeah. this confirmed? No, no, it hasn't. It been. is confirmed, Jamie. So, so Dana White announced it. Mm. it We've not had a full-on confirmation, but you know, Stylebender did an interview with Submission Radio. Those are a couple guys out of Australia, and he was talking like it was a done deal. So I mean, they, you know, they haven't formally announced it, but I would expect it. I am very interested to see that because Bohovic has that power style, and Stylebender is, in my opinion, the most sophisticated striker the sport's ever seen. And, and he's so clever. And the, 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 you look no further than the Paulo Costa fight. I mean, Paulo Costa is a fucking gorilla. He's just a, a attacking, smashing dude, and he he had nothing for him. He had nothing for him. And then afterwards, to see Paulo Costa, I was injured. I was this. I was that. Signed the contract. It's like, bro, stop talking. Take away his iPhone. Stop. Right. Stop talking. What is happening here? Adesanya. O- opens as heavy favorite over UFC light heavyweight champion Jan Blachowicz. Oh, my goodness. You know what, though? But Blachowicz has been slept on forever. Mm, That's dangerous. Nothing, there's nothing new there. And I, I've been wrong about him a million times, too, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, it's very, very interesting. Oh, can you pull up his record, though, real quickly? Last thing on this. Can you pull up Blachowicz's record? Because he, he here's a guy who I think lost the majority of his first six UFC fights. I think he lost like three or four of them or some shit. Mm. He had like a really not a great run at first. But, dude, you know what's amazing? These guys, like Michael Bisping or whatever, it's one thing to persevere in the moment. It's another one to have just like long-term w- relentlessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so look, go yep. scroll down here if you can for just a second. Go to so he starts. Fights. He starts there. He wins against Ilir Latifi, which is a nice win, and then he loses to Manawa and Anderson. He beats Igor Prokayek. Then he loses to Gustafson and Cummins. So he's losing four of his first six. Mm-hmm. But then he's like, you know what? Fuck all you hoes. And then he just started. <laughs> He lost to Tiago Santos. I believe that was the last fight at 85, yeah, right? And he was a beast. Okay, no was harm, he, no foul. And then he KOs Rockhold. And then the Jacques uh, Ray fight was not Sosa. great. No. But the Corey Anderson fight is a perfect example. Corey Anderson bodied mm, him in yep. the first fight. You know, The fact that he KO'd him with one punch like that, I mean, that is crazy. Yeah, that was, that was a really interesting thing because Corey can take a shot too. And Corey was coming off of that big win off of Johnny Walker. You know? It's look. There's a lot of great fight. You know what I'm really interested in? Mm. Alex Pereira. Alex Pereira, who is the glory. Um, he, I believe he's a two division champion. Bolton. Yeah. He's what is he fighting for? LFA. He's fighting yes, for. Yes, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's fucking terrifying, and he's the last guy to KO Adesanya. He's on my radar. I'm really interested. He's a in champ, champ over at Glory too. Or he's he was terrifying. That guy's yeah. fucking terrifying. Yeah, they, uh, that guy is almost like you want to grab his arm and feel what it feels like like what are you made out of that motherfucker just puts people into orbit he he ah. K, he ko's everybody i mean when he knocked out jason wellness watch this flying knee ko and boom Will, and wellness by the way a beast who by the way beat adesanya i believe and it was a close shouldn't have okay i it gave was, it to adesanya i gave it adesanya as well but it was close enough but you look at that i mean this he's is, just but this is this is Pereira. look slip. at this shit bah. He, but he does this to everybody is there something about this guy? It's like you you see him hit guys, and it looks like normal punches, and they just go unconscious like that shit. 
I mean, these are world-class kickboxers, and this motherfucker just puts them into another dimension. He just put out an instructional with uh, BJJ Fanatics. Have you seen it? No, but he's been training a lot with Glover Chichera. He's in Connecticut training with Glover, and I think it's one of the reasons why Glover has made this resurgence. Like, Glover has looked sensational as of late. Glover to share. I love Glover. And I think one of the reasons why Glover at 40 plus years old has made this resurgence is he's training with Pereira. I think that, I mean, look, iron sharpens iron. We all know that. And there's something about exchanging ideas with one of the best kickboxers on planet Earth. Not just the best kickboxer, but a weirdly powerful one. He's a freak, man. There's something about Pereira. He He's astonishing. And I think him moving into the LFA, and if he gets through a few fights there, and, you know, I have zero idea what his ground game is, zero idea what his wrestling, zero idea what his takedown defense is, but he nukes motherfuckers. I mean, in a weird way. I mean, when he knocked out um, Stylebender, it was like, whoa, Jesus, one left hook. He does it to everybody. I know. With the big gloves. He's got a lot of different ways to do it. It's not like yes. Deontay where it's just this. Oh, he does it with everything. He's Knees, kicks, a, punches, all of everything. It, all of it you can, name it. Yeah. And now he can throw elbows? He couldn't even throw elbows in glory? <laughs> now he can throw elbows? And he can grab you and I throw know. knees? Everyone's going to try and take this fucker down. Though. Oh, they you have they to. Are. You fucking better. <laughs> you better. You're standing up with that guy. That's death. That's death. I know. I'm just like, it's like I don't. I, I want to get excited. He beat he beat Stylebender twice in kickboxing. I know, but I'm just by decision and by KO. I'm just dying to see I how the rest of it looks because of the. Well, issue. how old is he? How old is Ooh. Alex? I don't know. He might be like 34 ish, 35 ish. I was there at the Last Man Standing tournament when he was uh, right before he peaked. He was he was pre peak at that point, um, and he was still a formidable. 33? So he's still got some time. And it literally completely depends on how much time he has spent on the ground. How much time he's spent drilling takedown defense. How much time, because it's relatively late to enter the game in MMA. You know, he's had a couple of MMA fights, Mm -hmm. but as a kickboxer, it's just a fucking shame that he can't get the love and the money as a kickboxer. Because as a kickboxer, you're just watching executions. Like, when does he land? I know. And Gloria was a shame because... Did you watch the? Uh, Still exists. I know, but uh, they had their they had the, some issues obviously with, due to the pandemic. But did you watch the uh, Batterhari and Rico Verhoeven? Yes, crazy. Fuck, that was so fun. That was they did weird. Such though. a great job. How how weird was the stoppage? Like he fall, he throws a wheel kick, and then well, didn't falls he get injured in the process? His ankle. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, just the fucking feel of it. You've been oh, to yeah. the Netherlands, I'm sure, right? No, I haven't. Never. Never. You don't know what you're missing. Really? Uh, what am I, I missing? I would say, I, I, so it's funny. I tell this to the Dutch, and they're like, you're totally overselling it, so I'm sure that I am. <laughs> but I went there with my wife, and you know, she comes from a different place. My wife was an immigrant, so she came from a different background, and I have a different background. And we went there, and we both looked at each other, and we go, this is how society should be organized. Really? Yeah. It's a homogenous society to a large degree. Obviously, that, part of the reason why it's, they have some problems is because to the extent that it's not homogenous, they have some issues. But... Um, just the way you see the municipal planning and how life looks like in the, in the cities there, it's peaceful and it's happy. It's like, how did a place that is so tranquil and so lovable and so nice produce you savage motherfuckers? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just shocking. I know the story because of the Dutch went down to Thailand and brought it back and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But dude, it is, I, I, it's a, I, if I had, if someone's like, you had to leave America cause it got set on fire, where are you going to go? Canada, a little too cold. I'm going to the fucking Netherlands. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's where I'm headed. Well, they certainly have an insane history of kickboxers, right? Rob Kamen, Ernesto Hoost, you know, uh, 
I mean, there's just so the many. The list is endless. Yeah, so many. Raymond like, Deckers. Ramon Deckers is like one of the all-time greats. And he may be even more impressive because he was small. He was the size of the ties. And he would go up there and light them on fire. He was <laughs> They amazing. didn't like that too much. Dude, he, he fought so hard, he, he shattered his ankle and had to have it fused. So like, and he still fought and still kicked with it. Like, you can't kick with this ankle. You'll, you'll have to have your foot amputated. He was like, fuck you. Just kept kicking with it. He was an animal. He was like literally the gold standard for uh, European Western guys who went over and, and fought the Thai. What's the word? Farang? Farang? What's, what's yeah, the Thai that's word? that's what they call it. Something yeah. like that. But it's amazing, too. Like, you know, one thing about the Dutch is kind of funny. I don't know if you've picked up on this. The Dutch will fight their teammates without a whole lot of consternation, especially in kickboxing, mm. where it'll be like, you, wait, you're from Mike's gym, and you're from Mike's gym. How come you're fighting? And they're like, business. You know, not personal. I'm like, yeah. in America, that's like the most personal They don't thing. seem to have a hard time getting knocked out and getting back in there again either. Nope. Which brings you back to Alistair Overeem, who's a, a Dutchman who's just got this crazy record. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who's had – what an insane record, right? <laughs> K1 Grand Prix champion, Dream Heavyweight champion, Strike Force Heavyweight champion. At the same time. Yeah, and he's just gotten so close to UFC gold. You know, hurt Stipe, dropped him, had him hurt. And just eventually wound up losing the fight. But he's a guy, when he was juicy, you couldn't stop him. When he beat Alistair, or excuse me, when he beat Brock Lesnar, yeah. that's as juicy as the world gets. Do you remember when he was fighting in like Dream and K1 at that time? What Michael Schiavello said about his back? No, what did he say? He said you could screen a movie on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Dude, when he fought Todd Duffy, I'm like, oh my God. When, but when he fought Brock Lesnar, that's probably the most impressive because he, he muscled Brock Lesnar around. Like Brock Lesnar was the guy. And obviously Brock Lesnar coming off of diverticulitis. He had the, his uh, giant section of his uh, small uh, is it small intestine. Something like that. Something. Digestive organs, yeah, for sure. Yeah, some serious stomach surgery, right? So he's got gut surgery and not that many months removed from that. Less than a year, he's getting kicked by Alistair over him. I remember Alistair hit him with his shin to the body. You see him like grab his body and go down and get beaten up. But it was the way he beat him up before that. It was just everything about it. He muscled him. He moved him around. It's just like, and he was just, the that was the ream when he was like full uber ream. When he was 265 pounds, shredded, built like a tank, looked like a comic book superhero. God damn, if you want to make an argument for steroids, that's the argument. Well, again, he should be doing it against other people who know what they're in for. I I'm totally okay with that. But uh, well, oh, don't you think Brock knows what he's in for? Yeah, I mean, again, you think I have sympathy for Brock Lesnar in this case? No. We're talking juicy. Uh, but here's my point about Overeem is I remember when, um, when Ronda got knocked out by Holly and Max Kellerman was on Twitter at the time. Love Max. And Max had said, you know, I don't think Ronda's ever going to recover from this mentally. And at the time I was thinking like, Max, you don't know shit. Now, he ended up being right, but the reason why I felt that way was because I had seen guys like Overeem get viciously KO'd. Or Michael Bisping. Or Michael Bisping and come right back. Yeah. Some people can come they back. They are special, special guys, man. Yeah. Some people can come back and some people are never the same. Um, before we wrap this up, there was a few other things you were saying about the UFC. I know that we, we this has been so much fun. We've been going on all these different rants. But there was a few things specifically that I, I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't cover. One of them you think is USADA, which no. uh, I can agree with you. I just don't. Can I make one final point yeah, about that? For sure. To wrap up yeah, on this. Yeah, the yeah. one thing I want folks to understand is if you look at the history of anti-doping, and again, the scholarship on this is quite clear, pre-USADA UFC, I mean, long into the 20th century and then really beginning around 1968, the, the way in which anti-doping has moved itself forward 
is through there's been reports in the media that drive further forms of hysteria and then that forces the institutions to act. And so you have to understand you can't talk about A, uh, anti-doping without media hysteria around drugs and B, a lot of times when you see these uh, developments in anti-doping protocol, it's institutions protecting themselves. Like when the UFC really went to USADA, was it on behalf of the athletes? If you want to believe that you can, I cannot say it is wrong, but what the scholarship is pretty clear about in anti-doping is that institutions do it for their own protection, which I understand. There's nothing wrong with the UFC being like, you know what? If we have a scandal here, we're going to get fucked if we don't do more. I totally get it, but that's a part of the argument that deserves to be noted and should not be forgotten. Yeah, I don't know what the argument was that forced them to institute USADA. TRT. TRT caused all the problems. Mm. It was a over TRT was a problem. Mm-hmm. The question is how you solve it. Right. And we went overboard in my judgment. That's the problem I think we had. Now that's debatable, but it that is that is the cause of everything. Do you think that a certain level of TRT would be acceptable like a doctor administered in a TR I I, I tend to think that like that it's such an ed, uh oh listen if you're going to have a system where folks are going to use, then the way to screen that is through health outcomes, right? So you're looking at um, forms of screening, not so much for what they're taking, but how you know, their blood enzymes look and digestive organs and what kind of damage they're taking and blah, blah, blah. To me, TRT is one of these things where it's like um, we're going to make it super easy and we're going to... Like I said, the readiness of it is too easy for me. Is is part of the issue that testing is random and that testing is, you know, you might get tested four times a year. You might get tested 10 times a year. Yeah. No one knows. No one can tell. What if there was a way where every fighter had like something like almost like an app and it, it somehow or another you put it on you and it screens you? Mm-hmm. Like there's something that you could do where right. it can't be faked. You check in. Maybe you check in on your computer, like a FaceTime thing, and it does something. Like if there was a way, I'm obviously I don't know what I'm talking about, but if there was <laughs> some sort of technology that allowed them to see every day, twice a day, check you in the morning, check you at night. Okay, Luke, it looks like you're good. You're like right. you, you're you're in the range. Everything's fine. So a couple of things is like every employee that I know who's not an athlete gets to have time off, except an athlete. We ask certain things of athletes that we don't ask of anyone else in the world. And the reason why is supposed to be to combat these harms. But if you can't prove to me that these harms are existing or that you're meaningfully doing anything about it, then why are we engaging in these privacy invasions? Well, how about wasting time with Conor McGregor when he's he's in on in a fucking yacht somewhere? Right. They show up in a buggy, like, hey man, you gotta give me a piss test. He's like, I'm fucking retired. Right, right. <laughs> so, there's, so there's a lot of problems there. It's like if you can't prove what you're doing yeah. or stopping, why are we engaging in all these privacy invasions? But it gets to a larger point. Remember when Tim Kennedy got back from practice and he didn't want to get ringworm, so he showered, mm-hmm. and you saw the folks were like. We got to test you. Once we're here, we can't like give you time. So they watched the fucking guy showered, which is deranged to the nth degree. Yeah. But the point being is here's what anti-doping folks don't want to tell you. There is a natural tension between what privacy exists and what solutions there are. And there's a lot of good solutions, or not good solutions, there's a lot of better solutions if you just decide that people don't have any right to privacy. Mm. If you decide that, you have some options at that point. Right. But if you at all care about athletes and what they are entitled to as human beings... Um, and what, by the way, problems might be like, where's Don't all this? Don't you have da- to look at a guy's dick to make sure it's not rubber? 
Oh yeah, you, you got he 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 showered with the curtain open, and like Tim but Kennedy, I mean, even when you, you know tap, Tim Kennedy yeah, was like all balls and everything. <laughs> you know, he was, yeah, he's like, hey, watch my back, come watch my back. <laughs> but when you when you pee, do they have to look at your dick? Yes, I think they do. They look at everything because you can have the whizzinator. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. And guys, didn't Kevin Randleman do that? And he, they said is non-human urine. Yeah, it's like you have like a <laughs> dead man's piss. How did you do that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I just it's it is weird whenever someone's allowed to look at your dick because they're thinking you're gonna cheat. How about you see if they're cheating first and then you go, hey, I gotta see your dick next time. Right. <laughs> like it just seems, it but, seems like a first step to just look at your dick while you pee is pretty. Crazy. If you moralize doping, which mm-hmm. they have done, if you yeah. moralize it, which is not a moral issue, it's a strategic issue. If you moralize it, you've decided that it's a evil worth combating to the point now. Uh, well, this is Rodchenkov Act is being floated through Congress. Yeah. I mean. Do I think I'm right about doping? I think I have some right ideas. But here's the future of doping. They're going to start putting more and more people in jail. This is the way it's all headed. Because every time I've tried to make an argument, everything has escalated. I've just noticed it's falling totally on deaf ears, and I suspect it will be the same here, even though I've tried to make an earnest argument. They're going to start putting people in jail. And they already have in Europe to, to a degree. Now, what they've done is they've carved out, if you're an athlete, you won't get put in jail. But if you're anyone who's aided in that process... You're going to go, but they're eventually going to realize what they've always realized, which is that the punishment, the sociological research on this is pretty clear. It's really not the punishment that really uh, concerns them. It's the, it's their, um, to what extent they'll be, they'll be caught. They think they'll be caught. But if you're rich and you can avoid it, or you're willing to take risks because that's inherently in the job that you're in, you don't really think about these kinds of things. And by the way, you might have good methods of uh, evasion. So they're going to put people in jail, and I think honestly, we're uh, they're going to put a lot of people in jail. I think almost like we need a separate podcast just about this, and I feel like it almost should be a roundtable discussion with like someone like you as a proponent of this, someone like me who's I, I, I kind of see your point, and I, I agree with you, and maybe some doctors and maybe someone from USADA that would argue against it. I think that would be an interesting discussion, right? I, because I'm, my my arguments against USADA are the Josh Barnett arguments, you know, the uh, the Tom Lawler arguments. This, the arguments where you, you're ruining guys' careers and there's no repercussion and they, they're, they're ruined financially. They lose so much money. They don't get any of it back. You've made mistakes. It doesn't matter. And I get what you're doing. I get you're trying to make the sport safer. You're doing your job. You were hired to do it. But is it the most effective use of time and, and resources? Right. And can also, can you prove what you're doing? Show me. Show me the results of what you have done. And they will be like, oh, but you know, probabilistically, we should rely on us. I have never seen an institution in my life more than anti-doping institutions who just will are begging you and frankly demanding of you to take their word for it. Motherfucker, show your work. I have to show my work. Show your work. When you say show your work, like what, what do you want to see? From Prove them? to me that what you are doing is having an effect. And don't give me all this bullshit about, well, we can't really do this and we can't really do that. You are demanding money. You are demanding that athletes give in to privacy invasions. You are ruining people's careers, which we've already shown. Mm-hmm. So it better be fucking worth it. This juice better be worth the squeeze. Show me the squeeze. What could possibly? What could they possibly show that would make it? That's, show that's that worth is it? that is their concern. That is not mm-hmm. mine. I, I, I the burden of proof is not on me. The only thing that you could say is you've caught people and you've stopped people, and you could look at physique changes and saying, yeah, means nothing. Means mean, nothing. Means a lot of that. <laughs> means a little bit of that. But I'm just saying, you have anecdotal evidence. Yeah. And what other world can you say? I've got anecdotal evidence for my broad-based claims. I can tell you, you go fuck yourself. There's no other world where you can do that 
accept theirs. I'm saying to you, if what you are saying is working and what you really believe in is true, show your work. If there was a lawsuit and if someone won a substantial financial reward for some of these fuck-ups, I think we'd see a big change. I think that that would make if if someone like Tom Lawler won in court and got really paid because of this. Well, they don't have money for that. Tom doesn't have money for that. It's unfortunate yeah. because that he's I think he's, you know, but John is the agree. John John Jones is the future, right? Mm -hmm. So the the scholarship on this is clear. If you want after this is over, I'll give you a couple of things you can read. Okay. It's a little bit dense, but it I'll is I'll pretend to read it. <laughs> I'll skim it. <laughs> Keep it on your bookshelf because even okay. if it's a reference tool, you may, mm -hmm. be, you may find some value in it. Again, dude, you read the shit and you're like, I had no idea, I had no idea, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. It just keeps going, you know. But uh, what they found through scholarship is that um, so they've upped the punishments from a year to two years to four years. So first of all, someone explained to me why UFC athletes are on Olympic cycles. Number one, number two, that's number one. So the second one is beyond that, um, uh, in in putting together the sort of um, uh, portfolio of, of, of punishments beyond the sort of Olympic cycle. Um, I think I said this already, like they, there's no evidence that indicates that the severity of it forces the behavior change. It's mm. only the sort of surveillance of it all as a function of, um, sort of fear, but you can only do that if you abridge the rights of athletes. So the point is this, you'll hear them talk a lot about, we have to protect the rights of clean athletes. Clean athletes deserve to have their rights protected. Mm -hmm. Joe, let me ask you a question. How do you protect the rights of clean athletes by overrunning the rights of athletes generally? That seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? The UFC fighters did not sign up for it, right? And you have a situation where John Jones, for example, he got the whole Terenable thing. We don't have to get into it. But there was another athlete in the Olympics elect from Ukraine, Alexei Torakiti had the exact same problem, tested the B sample, it was totally negligible amounts, and they took that fucking guy's gold medal from him. So wait a second, why do we have one standard for the Olympics, and we've got one standard for a private client for an underfunded organization, which is about 20 million is their budget for USADA, and results in this sort of different world punishments. John is the future because the research shows that the more severe punishment you get, the more that you have to take uh, precautions to not fuck someone over. Right, because if you're going to ban a guy for eight years, you're going to ban a guy for life, man. You better be damn sure you're doing it. But that has opened the door to fighters like John, who have money and a legal team, and of course there may be the science on his side as well. But it shows that you can take that opportunity and you can say, "Aha, you were trying to ban me for four years, man. What is your evidence?" And they can poke holes through all of it. When your punishment is a year, it doesn't really matter what mitigating circumstance you can show. Well, his case is so weird too because it showed positive and then negative and then negative and positive, but in such trace amounts, there's no way he could have tested it and then had it go out of his system in time. So The argument is that he had the long-term metabolite but not the short and medium-term yeah, metabolite. Yeah, so it's showing this weird pulsating effect where it comes and goes, particularly during weight cuts. Right, which is apparently what uh, Alexei uh, Torakiti had and he got <laughs> fucked. Mm, all right. Like, Luke, this is a lot of fun, man. I'm glad we did this. I think I talked too much. No, you were awesome. Okay. It was great. I really appreciate it. And well, I appreciate you. I appreciate your show. I really enjoy your breakdowns. I enjoy your MMA show. I think you have a, a very unique perspective. And uh, I, thanks for coming, man. It was thanks, awesome. for the, thanks for the invite. And uh, let's do it again. The whiskey was great. I'm happy to come on anytime. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.